everyone. The boys in between the sheets. Episode number 318. I'm your host, Chris Elner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix, and Span and Bix. We're standing in the 90s. And uh, we're jumping a calendar year from last week's show. And uh, got quite the show this week. Yes. <laughs> Long pause there, but there you go. But uh, we are joined by a dear friend of ours. I haven't been on in a while. We're always glad to have him on. Uh, he's got a lot of things going on in uh, his life. Uh, wrestling-wise, doing a lot of great research and great work for his podcast and his website, which we'll definitely be talking about, Charting the Territories, and uh, all the other stuff that he's involved in as we are enjoy, enjoy, We are joined. Enjoy, we are, we are enjoyed jo- by... We are enjoined by our dear friend, the Duke of New York, Al Getz. Al, welcome back. You are enjoying being joined by Al Getz. <laughs> hopefully yes. you will be. Hopefully you will enjoy it. We, I guess that remains to be seen. And I'm guessing the- you're only enjoined from anything in Davidson County, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> This is the latest we've ever had you on. I mean, timeline-wise, on the show, ninety-eight. So uh, yeah, well, this is, uh, and I, you know, there's a reason for that. Yeah, I we'll believe. get to that later. I, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm name-dropped in a, in a way. Yeah, you're you're firmly entrenched in the business by this point in time. Yes. So yeah. you have a different mentality. You're uh, you're actually uh, making money in the wrestling business. Well, I hope you were making money in the wrestling business. I was. I was. Well, there you go. Yeah. I know some weren't. So <laughs> Yes, but, and then uh, a few months later, you would not be, well, excuse me, you would, what's the best way to phrase that? You would be in the wrestling business, but not really making money. <laughs> um, well, uh, let's excuse see, you me, know, you would not be making money from your office job in the wrestling business once you moved to California, I guess would be the way to say it. Uh, no, I um, I had I had a job, a paying gig uh, in California as well. Well, there you go. Well, uh, again, neither, neither of these paying gigs were <laughs> were much, but yeah, well, yes. Uh, unfortunately, they, they didn't run enough house shows to make it work, but there was some money dr- trick trickling in. <laughs> yes, there you go. That trickle down economy. All yeah. right, so let's talk about the week that was September the second through the seventh. 1998 and we are not having September 1st on this show because we already covered that on a previous show on so the summer that, show right which that was show 265 so a full calendar year ago we did that week so let's begin with the world wrestling federation speaking of SummerSlam, and uh, we have some pay-per-view notes from SummerSlam. Preliminary estimates are that SummerSlam an estimated 1.48 buy rate, which would be between 500,000 and 520,000 buys, which would be a $6.57 million gross, or in other words, a huge success. We've been along the same lines, just slightly behind what WCW did for the Bash of the Beach for Dennis Robin and Carl Malone, but far ahead what WCW did with Jay Leno at Road Wild, which turned out to be a 322,000 buys and a 0.93 buy rate. Now, we talked about SummerSlam on show 265, and we, you know, talk about all the stuff going on there. But Al, uh, this, it, it seemed to me, and I'll get your take on this, at this point in time, that SummerSlam 98 may have been the most hyped non-WrestleMania pay-per-view I had ever seen the WF do at that point in time. That damn um, Highway to Hell video by ACDC was everywhere. I mean, it, they just 
they put it all out there to, to hype this show up. And I'd say it did damn work, didn't it? Yeah, it definitely worked. I, I mean, I remember being really hyped up for this event. Um, at the time, I was living in Nashville working for Music City Wrestling. And what they would do, he would run a show at a sports bar in downtown Nashville on Monday nights. And I forget if the show, it would be a short show, but it would end either before Raw or if it would start or it would start after Raw. I think it ended before Raw. And then everyone would also watch Raw. Uh, and I remember, you know, just so being in that sports bar with the wrestling ring set up and watching uh, Raw on the big screen TV with Highway to Hell blaring. I mean, they did a, a tremendous hype job for that. And according to these numbers, it paid off. Yeah. <laughs> well, also remember something else that they did here, and I believe they did again in 99, was the MTV Partnership. In the week leading up to the show as well, mm. where they they were on in some form. They had like a themed show of some kind on MTV at like peak MTV hours every weekday leading up to SummerSlam and including the premiere of True Life. I'm a professional wrestler. Yeah, I mean, they it, they had a heavy presence at this point in time. And of course, the show being in New York, also huge factor as yes. well. I mean, you you're always in the area, in the city, and able to well, have better access. I just realized something else that can't be neglected. What? First show with a live Sunday Night Heat before it. Yeah, there mm -hmm. was, and, and there was, we talked about that on that show. There was a lot going on on that show, on the Sunday Night Heat show. So, yeah, I mean, they they were hitting on all the right cylinders business-wise at this point in time. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a heavy, heavy house. Yes, it's and and gross. And here's what they have in it about. Uh, excuse me, in multi-channel news and from our week by Kent Gibbons. No, uh, Steve Donahue. No, uh, no one like that. And the headline is PPV Wrestling stays on a roll. Thank heaven for for, for professional wrestling. So say cable operator pay-per-view executives these days. The latest edition, the August 31st World Wrestling Federation SummerSlam, performed splendidly. Pay-per-view managers said last week, the basic cable mainstay is no substitute for Mike Tyson's heavyweight paydays, but it's the biggest thing going in the world of pay-per-view events. The stuff is continuing to save us this year on the event side, no question, said Coaxial Communications Vice President Greg Graff, general manager of the Columbus, Ohio system. Without the benefit of outside celebrities like Jay Leno or Dennis Rodman, SummerSlam delivered 1,241 buys for Coaxial, just shy of April's WrestleMania 14, which featured a heavily hyped appearance by Tyson. Overall buy figures cannot be obtained at press time, but a WWF official said the estimate is that there were more than 500,000 buys, far more, excuse me, far above the 234,000 recorded for last year's SummerSlam event. The category strength continues to build, buttressed by the WWF and World Championship Wrestling weekly shows on USA and TNT, blah, blah, blah. And they talk about the cross promotions and it's H H HSN saying they got 10,000 calls and $250,000 worth of sales for the home shopping thing after. Ted Hodgins, pay-per-view manager at Media General Cable at Fairfax, Virginia, said about 2,000 subscribers ordered SummerSlam versus 700 to 1,000 for similar past events. It was well-promoted, he added, in several markets, including Fairfax County. There were tie-ins with local radio stations and free trips to see the event at Madison Square Garden in New York. 
and Media General mailed out 7,000 promotional pieces to every household that had ever bought a wrestling event. You know, I think that may have gone out in other cable companies, other parts of the country, too, because I kind of remember getting something in the mail with the, you know, the kind of like cartoonish Austin and Undertaker fighting over the Empire State Building logo they used for some of the promotion. Yeah. So I remember getting something like that, I think. Uh, but it says the sales were still a surprise, Hodgins said. Everything clicked, he added. Um, event revenue is down because of the absence of heavyweight boxing events, which carry price tags of, of up to about $50 compared with twenty nine ninety five for wrestling. But Hodgins noted the wrestling events are solid pro producers, and they come along twice per month. Wrestling has accounted for 64% of Media General's event revenue this year versus 7% for boxing, while boxing outpaced wrestling 57% to 23% last year. And, uh, you know, Comcast in Sacramento saying it's their ability to build storylines to generate interest. Uh, but even with wrestling, however, many MSO's pay-per-view revenues were down more than 40% in the second quarter, quarter compared with a year ago. That's because of the notorious Tyson Evander Holyfield fight last June, where Tyson bit his opponent and got his license revoked, his hearing's coming up, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, this show did well. Well, I don't want to read, read about the Home Shopping Network things that you just did. So <laughs> WWF has produced a very limited quantity of Austin Rules Goldberg Sucks t-shirts for sale at some major mall stores. Okay. And I saw these. I saw they these? Were, I don't think I knew that South WWE made them. They were at South Lake Mall. All those shirts were WWF made that I would see in the, in the in those stores. I know they had official shirts that were but, in stores that were different from the ones that you would get from, you know, from them. But I did not remember that these were actually made by WWF. There was a um, a, a rock shirt that I had bought that was an Airbrush Brahma Bull logo that was only for sale in mall stores. They never sold it on website or at the house shows. And you believe that was a legitimate shirt? It was a legitimate shirt. Okay. Oh, and if you look at, if you look for it on eBay, it does have like WWF logos and tags and stuff on it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, so. this, okay. So this one has like the hologram tag and stuff. Not everything I saw in some places had the tags and stuff like that. This I presume is talking about your Spencer gifts, hot topic, whatever type places that might carry wrestling shirts. And that's another thing, Al, this is the era of the wrestling shirt. And I mean, being, being on the independent scene at the time, I'm, I'm sure that that's probably the most wrestling shirt you ever saw, uh, you know, floating around was not, during this time period where all the NWO and Austin and Goldberg and all that stuff. I mean, that must have been something to see all these fans wearing their shirts. Yeah. You definitely saw a lot more fans at independent wrestling shows wearing uh, wrestling shirts. Obviously the overwhelming majority would be WWE or, or WCW, uh, but also out in the wild at non-wrestling events. The, the number of NWO shirts I would see just, you know, walking around, was mind boggling. And, uh, and, you know, at this point in time, I had been a wrestling fan or, you know, more recently involved in wrestling since uh, the mid eighties, since, you know, 1985 and to see, you know, how acceptable it was, how okay it was for people to wear uh, a pro wrestling shirt in public uh, was just 
shocking to me because even even in the you know WrestleMania peak in New York in the mid '80s, you didn't see people wearing WWF shirts out and about, even though and you know they they had them. It just it was still came cool to be a pro wrestling fan. Yeah, and it's a, it was a wild time because I never would have thought that would have happened when I was growing up and. Here I am, you know, I'm just now out of high school, and this is just, it's huge. And I don't know if we'll ever get that way again. I really don't. I think the world has changed so much in the way people consume things and and so many different options out there. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point where something like wrestling will be that big again, where you have so many uh, young adult males especially watching and consuming and buying merch and all that. I don't think you'll ever have that again. It was a moment in time. Absolutely. Um, so. I just remembered something I almost forgot about the SummerSlam buys. There is a little weirdness surrounding the number, though. Um, almost forgot to mention it. And this is stuff that's not, ne- well, some of it's in the newsletters, but you understand what I'm getting at in a second. Starting in 03, in some retrospective, Meltzer starts saying it was 700,000 bots. I'm not sure why. There may have been like a WWF, like SEC filing that gave some old pay-per-view numbers, maybe. And that was in there. But then also um, in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, I think it was, or it was one of the Minnesota papers right before SummerSlam the next year. He says it's 600,000 while Paul Kagan Associates was saying 550. So... It could even be a lot bigger than the number we had here, but it's awesome. it's a little unclear exactly what's going on there. And by the way, oh, I forget the name it was. Using. Thank you, by the way, to the guy on Twitter who apparently worked for Paul Kagan Associates that gave us some information about how much maybe we should or should not trust their numbers from back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Kurt Angle signed a multi-year contract with WF. His next work will be at the September training camp. Who that? <laughs> I said that worked out pretty well. <laughs> but I mean, in some ways, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, I mean, they that was a you know interesting signing at the time because you know he had never wrestled anywhere professionally. I mean, you're taking somebody you know off the amateur ranks, all the gold medalists. But you're taking some off the amateur ranks, and you're going to bring him in and, t- and teach him. And, you know, who knew that he would be such a natural at it? So I'm sure that's what they're hoping for Gable Stevenson, you know, that he'll be and they fall in those same footsteps when they get him taken care of. So it should be interesting, but there you go. Well, and did you see also, right. as we're recording this, they already signed Gable Stevenson's brother. Yep. Yep. Oh, along with the... Your buddy Ben Buchanan, along with the Georgia boy, yeah. Ben Buchanan, and, I, and I'm a big Ben Buchanan guy. So he's only and he's only 20 years old. So that's another thing too. So yeah, definitely uh, keep your eye out on old Ben Buchanan. He's uh, he's gonna be something else. And um, yeah, Bobby Stevenson, that's Gable's brother, and they signed Daryl Dawkins as a nephew, <laughs> Chocolate Thunder, uh, and you got a Ricky and Rikishi's son. The youngest of the uh, crew there, I think. So, uh, yeah, so interesting signings. All right, and Vince McMahon's AOL chat. Boy, I remember when these were a thing. He ended that WF maybe back on a network slot. 
there's nothing close to imminent, and there have been a lot of queries based on these strong cable ratings, but the most likely scenario would be something on Fox. Fox is also still very much talking about starting their own wrestling company, however. You know, for a story that was whispered about the newsletters for like five years, I'm still not convinced this was ever remotely close to being a real thing. <laughs> yeah, th this is like the ECW TV situation in New York. I mean, it seemed like it's just about every week or every other week we have something on Fox Network wanting to uh, start their own wrestling company or getting wrestling on their network. And it's, it's funny to me, especially considering, you know, it's Rupert Murdoch and... You know, working with Vince, that's one thing, but R Rupert wanting to stick it to Ted, and just the amount of egos involved in that whole thing, Al, is, uh, it makes it funny, especially at this time. Yeah, but I'm I'm with Bix. I don't know how much traction there really was or if this was just, you know, something small uh, that, by repeating it every week, made it seem bigger, kind of like the Tessa Blanchard stories uh, <laughs> that seemed to be a weekly thing in The Observer recently. <laughs> That never went anywhere. This might be one of those cases where he's trying to make uh, a mountain out of a molehill. Um, what? Because wasn't it a few years later the Will Ponds were going to get involved? Will Ponds. That was after. Right? Was it ever determined yeah. if that guy was a legitimate Wilpon? Wilpon. <laughs> it was. It could have been as legitimate as Milty. Dale Gagney. <laughs> Dale Gagner. Yeah, he would have. He would have been Wilpon. But uh, I mean, it, Fox. Which, by did, the way, did, like we should we should yeah. explain to everyone real quickly. Like, not not just like because people had come along in general, like that alleged Milton Wilpon Sean Davis project startup. That's a major reason why people were not taking Tony Khan seriously at first. Yeah, you have a guy who is presenting himself as like a billionaire sports team heir. But we know Tony Khan was actually the legit son of Shad Khan. Well, I yes, mean, and that, also that, a giant not, wrestling that's, that's fan. Beyond yeah. question, yes. <laughs> so yeah. Um, Fox didn't get involved in boxing though at this time. Al, you might remember this. Uh, Oscar De La Hoya fought on Fox, I know, in '99, um, and they had talked about you know doing a regular boxing thing, but with uh, with with Bob Arum and Top Rank, um, didn't work out. But eventually, they did get in boxing years later, just like they got in wrestling years later. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm more a fan of Foxy boxing than Fox boxing, but you know, to each their own, I guess. Foxy boxing, yeah. <laughs> now, Wait, Al, Wayne, Al has a thing for strippers? I had no idea. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Al, oh, Al's um, real big, quick, though. Al's big fun of that misty blue Linda Dallas uh, Foxy boxing oh, video. <laughs> um, so, okay, so for the record, the question and answer from the AOL chat, which, by the way, is the infamous Vince AOL chat where the connection goes completely and Vince starts talking to himself. Which we t did on the previous show. Yes. Um, question, Mr. McMahon, is it true that the WWF is in negotiations with the Fox network? I'm not at liberty to discuss which networks are talking to us about programming. Well, there you go. Now, um, of course, now, because it's 1998, we have things like all caps. Hey, Vince, who's your pick at SummerSlam on Austin, on, excuse me, on Undertaker versus Austin and stuff like that. Now, Wade has more on this. If the WF is negotiating with a broadcast network, the most likely network is Fox, given the feelers Fox has set to various powers in the wrestling industry in the last six months regarding starting their own promotion. Fox may have concluded, given the long-term contracts most top wrestlers are committed to, that the time frame of establishing a new major league promotion would be prohibitive, and now we're looking to capture some of the cable ratings magic on their own network through airing an existing product. Fox is working on a network special on Steve Austin there in October. 
I don't think that happened though, did it? That never happened. I always wondered <laughs> what that would be too. Um, so apparently though, we have both newsletters saying it. Yeah, and Wade's got a little bit more, you know, information. So uh, who knows? What, who knows? Who knows? As we've learned from the ECW television negotiations, or whatever they lack thereof in two thousand, <laughs> can't always trust something like this. No. All right. After getting no. Yeah. After getting a sick MRI done this past week, Hunter Hearst Helmsley was given this past week off from scheduled house shows, but the knee at this point won't require surgery. That, of course, being from the SummerSlam match with The Rock, the latter match, where he hurt himself. And doesn't he still vacate the title, though? Yeah, he has to, because he's fucked up. Oh, right, and yeah. that's, it's the tournament with Shamrock winning that this leads to. That's so right. He's not great, but he's he's at least avoiding surgery. And Notice, how, notice the bigger he gets, the more he gets hurt. Isn't that something? He's not that much bigger it's... yet at all, though, really. Though. No, but I'm I... saying he's starting to inch that way up. Well, and he and always had bad it, knees, though, too. And as it goes along, you know. Oh, sorry, guys. Got to go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry, guys. All right. Well, let us know when you come back. All right. For those of you who just heard that, uh, <laughs> Al had a little fire alarm uh, deal happen in his place, but everything's all right. So... Folks, we like they, they used to do in the territory days. We uh, paused while we went to the uh, break there, and uh, you didn't miss anything. I promise you, you didn't miss anything. Tape machines so, were rolling. Unfortunately, the though, tape- there was a robbery at the box office. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, and the right. neighbors down the road called and called the cops and canceled our backyard show. There you go. <laughs> Damn them. All right, so uh, let's pick up where we left off. Mick Foley was originally going to be given time off until the pay-per-view, but the pay-per-view being headlined by a triple threat match. In order for the house show main events to not duplicate the pay-per-view main event, they've changed the house show mains to Fatal 4-Ways, with Cactus Jack returning to gain revenge for what Undertaker and Kane did to Mankind. And you can see the obvious tag matches stemming from that. So we back on the road starting on September 11th in Calgary. Both Sergeant Slaughter and Joe Briscoe will be on the road as special referees for those matches. Undertaker and Austin were off the house shows this past week because they were smaller arenas. Triple H and X-Pac were replaced against the nation by New Age Outlaws due to Triple H's bad knee and figuring they should just send the Outlaws to be the DX tag team against the nation. Owen Hart was replaced by Mark Henry against Ken Shamrock since Owen had been bothered with a groin pool for a few weeks and decided to let him have the week off as well. So guys are getting banged up and this is not the time for that to happen in that company. Because, yes, they're, you know, doing really well. Their depth is not well. No. Also, Owen had a match that good at the pay-per-view with a pulled groin. Well, he's Owen Hart. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Now, Shawn Michaels and Sable were off the recent TV tapings to a PR work at the proposed new WF Hotel in Las Vegas. Uh Sable (laughs) spent two days in Vegas and the rest of the week in Hollywood doing the episode of Pacific Blue. And we should play a prisoner in all women's prison. And Dave will just bet women's prisons are filled with women who look exactly like that. <laughs> well, he's seen the movies that come on after Thunder, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, me and Al know about, you know, movies like Chain Heat and stuff like that. I mean, you didn't see women looking like that in prison either. So, <laughs> yes, the USA the one... up all night lied to us. 
<laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> Which was the one that was on after Thunder once with Heenan giving this impassioned stand-up promo about it being the greatest women in prison movie ever made? Was it Chained Heat? I don't think it Chained Heat aired on TNT. Well, TBS. Uh, well, TBS or whatever. Uh, no, because, no, no, Chain Heat did not air on TBS. I would be shocked if that aired on TBS. Wow. I don't know what it would be uh, then. Uh, oh, man. I had to think about that one. Because I got to think they would not air that. Um, well, any women in prison movie of that era, I don't know why it, how it would be airing, even edited on basic cable in, like, 1998, 1999. <laughs> uh, um, so, anyway, as for what else we have here. Okay, so Pacific Blue. Hopefully they've learned from having one of their top baby faces play a child pornographer the previous time. <laughs> Maybe it was Black Mama, White Mama with Pam Greer. Sure. Although that would be tough, too. But go ahead. Um, although Sable is also a villain here and wearing a sports bra for the entire duration of the episode. because of I'm shocked. I didn't know they provided those in prison, but whatever. <laughs> um, so with Vegas, so they had bought the... Debbie Reynolds Hotel at auction a few weeks earlier. And the thing that people forget is that even though they eventually decided they were just going to sell it, and I believe made a profit, because they felt the remodeling and the idea for the WWF Hotel and Casino just didn't make sense, they actually did run the hotel for, for a year or two before they sold it. I forget the name. Let me see if I can find it real quick. But they actually did, uh, they did, okay, so it's the Clarion Hotel and Casino, now, uh, World Wrestling, 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 okay, Debbie Reynolds Hollywood Hotel, this is what Wikipedia says, so after her bankruptcy protection, winning bidder at $10.65 million was the WWF, which planned to level the building and construct a 35-story wrestling-themed hotel and casino. They stripped much of the interior in preparation for the demolition, but ultimately decided the site was not big enough. The hotel was open for a short time, including October 2000, as the Convention Center Drive Hotel, and then they sold it to Chicago-based Mark IV Realty Group that year for $11.2 million. Crazy. In the, in the context of the time... I don't think it's a terrible idea. I think it's hindsight that makes it look like a bad idea, but it worked out fine for them, so whatever. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> but do you get what I'm I mean, saying? Really. It, 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 you were, well... Oh, well, actually, wait a second. Well, hotel. I just realized something, though. Well, also, I just realized. We're more than a year away from the IPO. Yeah, I mean... That's what rest... makes it a bad decision, I think. On more than everything I, else. A restaurant I can see easier than a hotel. A then, why is the restaurant, then why is the restaurant the one they did after the IPO? So say I can see the restaurant easier than a hotel because the restaurant is not nearly as big. And you have more of a chance of getting business there than you would a hotel in Las Vegas. Right. There's so many hotels in Las Vegas. Even there's a lot of restaurants in New York. But still. But right, if you're a Times Square restaurant, you are a destination by default. Problem is, I did go there like one afternoon at, to the world, you know, the WWF New York when it was open, 
well, it was a weekday. I don't remember what day of the week. They were empty. It was not what you would expect from a Times Square theme restaurant at that time of day on a weekday. Well, I mean, weekdays were like that at some of these places. I mean, Al, I don't know if you ever went to the ESPN Zone in Buckhead, but you know, you you go to the ESPN Zone in Buckhead during during the week on a weekday. And there weren't only nobody in there either. So, but is Buckhead exact the ESPN zone in Buckhead the same kind of tourist destination that ESPN zone in Times Square is? No, but still, I mean, it was a prime in the prime spot. Sure, in in Buckhead, you know, I mean, that was a uh, it was a big deal. But you know, team restaurants, yeah, that's a blast in the past. I, wow. I'll say, but really. I never thought about this before. I think this should be the bigger legacy of this. Why are they doing this so long before the IPO, which led to all of their other similar spending? Who knows? Right? That That is weird. I'm not alone in this, right? No. Who knows? All right. Sh- there's no target there for Shawn Michaels' return to the ring. Other than guesses are towards the end of the year or beginning of next year. Sure. He's down quite a bit in weight right now. There are many ideas that have been thrown around, but none are locked in in stone about whether he'll feud with DX or be a D- DX, or others will break away from DX when he joins, but there's none of those positions, potentially others, that are locked so until the time comes he can return. Well, we all know what happens here, so there you go. Farouk missed some dates because his brother was murdered in a shooting. Hmm. Uh, Not good. No. Steve Blackman and Animal both underwent arthroscopic knee surgery this past week and expected back in the ring on October the 1st. They're doing an angle where Hawk is claiming he, he's in rehab, which he isn't. They time Hawk's rehab angle with when Animal was getting his knee done in October. Hawk and the Storm may conquer his demons, and the two will be back in gear. Well, the problem is, they'll still suck. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Hawk's in poor physical condition parts because he's recovered from numerous real health problems, not limited to the problems with his liver and hepatitis C. Yikes. Let's Not just good. say, I think we talked about this when we did the SummerSlam show a year ago, too, but we got to say it again. Why the hell are both major promotions doing storylines built around actual addicts being intoxicated on the air? I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. I really don't know why. why. At the same time. Yeah. Some money in that wars. Got competing against each other in every way. Yeah, I I guess. I don't know. At least we got right, the well, pusher man out of it. House <laughs> shows on September second in Cohasset, Massachusetts. Tentor. Drew a set of two thousand one eighty two, paying fifty one oh seventy seven. September third in Hyannis, Massachusetts. Drew a set of uh twenty one fifty seven, paying fifty four thirteen. September 4th in Warwick, Rhode Island, just uh, 2994, paying 73.079. And Springfield, Massachusetts on September 5th, through 6542, paying 121.989 for shows without either Undertaker or Austin ever booked. And with DX and Nation in a tag, Kane and Vader and Shamrock versus Owen as the advertised top bouts. Merchandise for the week was 137 137 or $675 per head. $675 per head merch on the tent tour to me sounds really good. Yeah, like we were just talking about merch was uh was smoking hot in this time period. Yeah. So yeah, Well right. Springfield wouldn't have been Springfield would have been a regular venue probably, right? It would have been the yeah, the uh Civic Center. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. So Warwick. Was Warwick a tent show? That would have probably still been the uh, theater. Oh, God. Because Cohasset is Cape Cod Melody Tent, right? Yeah. I'm not sure what the Hyannis venue is, but I know those are both the tent shows. Yeah, which they were doing. Yeah. They still do for at least like three or four years after this, too. I, uh, Cohasset was the South Shore Music Circus, Hyannis Cape Cod Melody Tent, Warwick was the musical theater. And uh, Springfield was Civic Center, yeah. And musical so. theater is like a actual building and not a tent amphitheater. They ran that forever, so okay. yeah. All and, right, uh, go ahead. I was just gonna say the one the one thing for some reason that always sticks with me about the tent shows is Sean Waltman talking about how until they redid the rings, the tent shows had by far because they needed a smaller special ring to, for the venues. It was by far the best bump WWF ring that he had been in up to that point. Yeah, because, like you said, they were smaller and they had the big rings, you know. All right, notes from the tapings uh, for Raw on August 31st in New Haven, Connecticut, before I saw 7,607, PM 148-435. Since Raw airs on Saturday night at 11.30 p.m. Yes, U.S. Open had bump Raw to Saturday night at 11.30. Oh, Saturday night made event slot. Heat will air on 6.30 Sunday, and thus we have more viewers. They concentrated on the important stuff on Heat, and Raw was almost a throwaway of nothing. But Undertaker and Kane run-ins. Showed one of the shotgun tapings. Jim Ross presented Bart Gunn with golden gloves as a war for winning the brawl for all, and Bart challenged anyone in the world to face him under those rules. Bart got a nice face pop coming out, but his interview was dead. Dustin Runnels beat Lance Diamond. Future Simon Diamond. Dan Severn beat Jeff McGregor. And Shoichi Panaki and Mince Teo beat Julio Sanchez and Steve Carino in your shotgun matches. Real quick, by the way, um, I don't think either of you have watched it yet. I'm sure me and you will talk about it more during halftime later. But everyone, please go out of their way to watch the Steve Carino, Colby Carino match on IWTV. It is I've heard phenomenal. great things about it. Yeah, I still haven't watched it yet. As of, we're recording this, but I will be. So yes. I'm guessing you'll watch it before you know the weekend. So <clears throat> excuse me, we'll talk about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So then that raw taping started with Mark Henry and Rocky Maivia beating New Age Outlaws by DQ, and China did a run in, and Spirit Henry had to be pulled off of him. But he loved doing that. Southern Justice beat the Headbangers in a bad match. Vince did an interview called Undertaker stupid for sending Kane to the back. He got nailed with a plastic water bottle during his diatribe, but didn't lose his train of thought. He called Kane the Undertaker's retarded brother, quote-unquote, and said none of the WF wrestlers were afraid of them anymore and called them putrid pussies, quote-unquote, with pussies being bleeped. Which is interesting because they're starting at 11.30 p.m. You know, you, may, you would think maybe they would have been a little bit more lax. Yeah, well, if Chuck Taylor still can't say the S-word on TNT. Yeah, go ahead, Al. Yeah, I, I think still at this point in time, they there was you know a hard pass on any language. Of course, now it's a lot more flexible. I think wasn't South Park the first one to break that barrier? They were the first one of note. Yes. No, 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 no. FX no had some issues. Are we talking? What are we talking about? Specific words or like shit? I think yeah. shit. Yeah. So are we talking about cable or broadcasting cable primetime general in general? The cable. cable. The first primetime show that was using shit regularly was NYPD Blue. Yeah, they were. Right. 
And then the South Park episode about the TV show cop drama using the word shit was based on that. And then, you know, that things started changing from there, I guess. But I'll, I'll mention this since it came up. So one of my dad's oldest and dearest friends in television worked at ABC for years and years. And when NYPD Blue got clearance to start saying shit, he explained how there were very specific negotiations and concessions between, like, Bochco and ABC. And at one point, the suggestion was horse shit. But that was rejected for what I believe was because horse shit is more literal. Because bullshit is just a full-on, you know, colloquism. Whereas horse shit... Bullshit, too. It is, but it's you don't. <laughs> no, no, no. You get what I'm saying. You don't immediately know, think of saying. actual bullshit when you hear bullshit, whereas when you hear horse shit, you think of actual horseshit. So that's how they ended up going with bullshit, and always bullshit, never shit, never anything else. Always bullshit. Well, there you go. Was your lesson in shit? All right. So uh, they showed up, and McMahon jumped over the guard, jumped over the guardrail to escape. Fans were all over him. Undertaker and Kane said they proved McMahon wrong. So then we got the DOA still here against Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman. DOA brawl with Shamrock. Undertaker and Kane showed up, destroyed Blackman. He's having that legit knee surgery. So there you go. Undertaker unveiled a new leg lock and put Blackman in to give a storyline excuse for the surgery. Oh, of course Battle. Undertaker wants to do the martial arts with Steve Blackman. <laughs> Too bad we never got a uh, battle arts take uh, style match between those two. I've been a, a trip. Now I do need to ask Al. Let's say hypothetically, uh, someone from WWE and talent relations, maybe a Jim Cornette, is wa- is watching a, a fine NWA 2000 show or something at this time, or in this era, and they like, oh, I like that Duke of New York guy. Let's have him manage DOA. How would you react? <laughs> Oh, managing. Uh, let's see. I did not know the um, the Harris brothers. I assume that's why you're asking. I, I don't yes. think at that point in time I I was familiar with the Harris brothers. Uh, you know, tattoos, interests outside of the ring, past proclivities, mind you. So I, you know, I probably would, you know, would have uh, jumped at the chance. And then let's be clear, no one's calling the Duke of New York in 1998 uh, to come work for the big leagues. But hypothetically, yes. if that were the case, um, yeah, I don't, I don't believe at that point in time I knew. Uh, you know, the the negatives about them. So, no, I wouldn't have had an issue. The question is then at some point, if I do find out, what do I do? And that's the million-dollar question. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, you don't know. Uh, it's hard when you sign, you know, when you agree to do something and then you have uh, – I've been watching Ted Lasso. Have either, you, uh, either of you guys watched Ted Lasso season two? I haven't watched any of it. Okay. It's an amazing show, but uh, so they basically pay, play for a professional football team in England. And uh, in season two, one of the players ends up having an issue with the primary corporate sponsor of the team. 
and it's really interesting. I, I just started that portion of it, but it, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out because that really is the million-dollar question is uh, when you have principles and beliefs and values and they interfere with your livelihood, how do you balance that? And, and I think it's something that a lot of people can't answer until they're thrust in that situation. And so I could hypothetical all I want. The truth is I have no idea how I would have reacted. I, I do know that I was one of the few people that called WCW to complain when they brought out Jeep Swenson as the final solution. So I did have some principles in the mid-90s. Who did you call? I'm curious about this. I I don't remember. I probably don't, but uh, someone at Turner Broadcasting or whatever, and I've some some poor receptionist probably got an earful from a young Duke of New York about <laughs> how uh, pissed off I was uh, and offended I was by them using that name. So yeah, no, I didn't get through to any of the higher ups. I just vented to whoever answered the phone. <laughs> by the way, we should note that the impression everyone's always gotten is that. Whoever came up with the name had no idea what it meant. I never got and, the impression he was supposed to. Yeah. Like, it, I never got the impression it was supposed to be a Holocaust reference. I think it was an accident. And and I you know the, I guess the question is when they come up with gimmicks, uh, you know, what is the process for running it up the flagpole to find those very things? Because wasn't there a story a couple of years earlier where Skip and Zip were going to be Skip and Flip, but it turns out that was some obscure copyrighted artist name from the 60s so they couldn't use it Correct. so you you would think there needs to be some sort of well, flagpole that they run these ideas up and someone along the way in wcw would say yeah that's uh not gonna fly well i don't think they have creative services in world championship wrestling <sighs> should have asked uh lenny and uh lenny and larry <laughs> yeah all right so um val venus and vader wrestled next Bradshaw tapped Vader for the DQ. Undertaker and Kane came out. Bradshaw's never touched, but it did lay out Venus and Vader. Hmm. They didn't touch Bradshaw. Shocking. Uh, Tiger Ali singing Abu came out in this segment. That will certainly be talked about. Oh. All right. So we're going to play this. So let's go to Tiger Ali Singh, who at this point in time is doing his uh, Million Dollar Man tribute gimmick. And, uh, yeah, this is quite the segment. So uh, let's go to the clip. And we should stress. This is, well, wait, Abu, right? This is Abu at the point. Yes, we'll yes. have more on that. Okay. And we should also note the Tiger Ali Singh. Um, he's wearing one of Vince McMahon's shoulder pad suit jackets, except the suit jacket is on steroids. <laughs> so was Vince. Let's just be glad he admitted that and move on. <laughs> Henry, you better be careful. Mark Henry tried to... Give China a kiss a couple of weeks ago against her wishes, we should add. And now this pompous ass, Tiger Ali Singh, and his uh, little uh, sidekick there, Babu. Or pompous what? For the past several weeks now, I have proven beyond well, it a says shadow. Babu, so now I'm very confused. Keep going. I doubt that American men have no class, no courage, and will do anything for money. Actually, you know what? It's not just the shoulder. That might actually be hey, a Vince. <laughs> that might actually be a Vince suit or so, or someone else's suit because look, that suit does not fit him at all. It's gigantic. Remember that guy eating that worm? American. Yeah, look at this thing. It's hanging off of him. The pants are too. Oh, and whatever. he's supposed to be playing this million dollar man type character. Great. 
and men have continually embarrassed themselves by eating worms and by licking my servants' unwashed feet. I have also proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that American women have no morals and no self-respect. American women have also degraded themselves continuously by taking their clothes off and by eating dog food. Why do we give him airtime? Frankly, I have concluded that there really is no limit for how low you American peasants will go. What is that he's stuffing in his mouth? Well, it smells like sardines from where I'm sitting. Babu! thought that was you. Are you eating sardines again? You think that might be curry? You have eaten nothing but sardines for the past four days, and frankly, the stench on your breath is getting on my nerves because you have never even brushed your teeth. Phew, it's not good to eat that much this late at night, JR. Wait a minute. I have an idea. I will pay $500 cash to any American woman here tonight to come in the ring and, how do you peasants put it? French kiss. Babu. Oh. He said woman, right? Babu. Why are you thinking about it? the American woman. Look at her. Who's he pointing at? Whoa! You want to make a pit stop over here with me first? Need a little practice? Uncle Jerry, take it easy. What that smell, JR? Those sardines are horrible. You know, you know, you are one of the best looking American women I've seen. So as a bonus, I'll give you 600 US dollars cash. The deal is simple. The deal is very simple. All you have to do is French kiss Babu for five seconds. And I will count. I'll count. But if you stop kissing Babu before I reach the count of five, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. But you will not get paid. Do you understand? Well, Tiger thinks his culture is superior to all people. Let the tongue kissing commence. Tiger Ali Singh was born into a family of great wealth. He thinks he's better than anybody, especially America. Put the sardines down. Put the sardines down. And this is his way and of proving it, And let me see. Well, this is. Let me see the tongue. Now, deep. What's <laughs> on her tongue? Inside, inside, one one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. Wait, wait, wait! Keep the noise down. I can't concentrate. Look at this, Jr. She loves sardines. Four one thousand. I told you to stay quiet. I can't concentrate. Babu's hand. Babu's about to lose his hat there. And there it is. Well, the stench of those sardines is about to make me Babu. Curl. Okay. Oh, yes. Once again, I've proven my point. Oh, no, look. 
that there's no limit for how low. Look out. Here they come. The Undertaker and Kane, and they mean business. Get her over here. I don't think so. Brett smells like a horse. The Undertaker and Kane have been doing whatever they want to whomever they want all night long. And go, yeah. These two brothers of destruction, the big red machine and the phenom, have struck again. And for this, we can thank our beloved Mr. McMahon. Well, do you think Mr. McMahon is still even here? We'll find out when we come back on Saturday night. Tonight. Also, I just realized, I think there might actually be a third Abu or Babu. Besides this guy and Pablo. But this was Pablo. We'll Wait, that is that. Pablo? Yeah. Okay, I completely right. losing track of this now. Okay. All right, so let, let, let's talk about what happened here from the taping notes. Okay. All right, so uh, we get the uh, the sardines for three days, number of teeth, $500. Woman in the crowd, obviously a plant, jumped up and down. Her top came off. She didn't put it back on very quickly, and she was picked. Anyway, sort of French kissing. Scene kept getting distracted. Finally, he got the five, but they kept kissing. Finally, they stopped. So, if you notice, there was an edit there. Here's why the fans were chanting, Show your tits. So, she lifted her top up three times, and then Abu, Babu, whoever, started kissing her breast. Oh, uh, well, that sounds in character for Pablo Marquez. So, <laughs> wow. Wow, because yes. wasn't he uh, deported for some kind of uh, offense of sorts? He had some issues. So then Undertaker Kane showed up at Choke Slam Singh and Abu. So wait, uh, is he the first guy or the second guy? The first guy was the other guy, right? Yeah. Which I'll go ahead and read that now from later. All right, here we go. Uh, the character of Abu, the psychic Ali, Ali Singh, was dumped in favor of Babu, who started at last week's TV, which is the team we were talking about. Babu, as wrestler Pablo Marquez, has also worked as Ubas and up over the Canyon ECW. They wanted someone who could take bumps for angles, as he's a very good bump taker and worst manager style match if needed. Now, on the deal from New Haven, which is where we had this raw tape, with the stripper, so that she was a stripper, they edited out most of him making out with the stripper off the air. Well, we saw what they edited out, so there you go. So, yes, yeah, she was a stripper. <sighs> <laughs> I, I, I am trying to understand whether or not he had consent for that. And wow. It's 1998. <laughs> it's a different time in place. So there's a very good chance, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this. I'm not sure there's any other way to say this, that Pablo Marquez just straight up sexually insulted a woman in front of thousands of people at a raw taping and no one remembers it. Well, then come out of it because she probably she didn't do I anything about it. I get, wow. It's 1998, you know? Wow. But anyway. So he, wait, so when's the, when's the mixed tag where it's Tiger and Babu against Luna and Kurgan, I think? Because they had a match where it's mostly Luna versus Pablo and it's actually really good. Um, it, it wasn't long because That's what Babu I'm saying, he only works like a week of TV. Um, I'm gonna check no, he worked on that. 
Yeah, so, so why is the, Dave saying he only went to at, That happened at the Raw after Survivor Series. So why? So he sticks around well, for two months. Weeks after it was November 30th. Okay, so but who's saving his job then? That, he didn't make that many appearances. But, so one. who saved his job after this then? It wasn't the issue, but I actually got remember 698. No, but it seemed like they were saying, it seemed like Dave was saying he was done. No, he started. He just started. I'm sorry, my brain. This is all just rotting my brain as far as confusion in the timeline of this. <laughs> yeah, so they got rid of the first one, and they brought in Pablo Marquez, who may or may not have sexually assaulted a woman in front of thousands of fans, and they enjoyed his work so much they kept him around for a few months. There you go. Th- thank you. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Well, we kn- we definitely know who enjoyed this segment, bro. So there you go. Right, bro, 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 you gotta just eat, eat, eat those anchovies on camera. Like, really, <laughs> really work the anchovies. Yes. D'Lo Brown, X-Pac ended with Jeff Jarrett in for the DQ. X-Pac and Jarrett brawl in the crowd. Undertaker and Kane came out. Rocky showed up and got in front of D'Lo. D'Lo ran away, and the two of them beat up Rocky. Edge and Marmero ended with Gangrel and attacked Edge for the DQ. Merrill figured that Undertaker and Kane were coming, so he ran away. When he got to the curtain, they showed up there and beat him up. <laughs> so that's for you, Mark Marrow. Insane Clown Posse showed up with the oddities, doing the dance against LOD and Drozdoff. Hawk showed up, loaded, still wearing his helmet, dancing with the oddities. And for some reason, this is out of order in the recap because the Al Snow segment is before this. Well, Dave doesn't mention that in the, in the notes. Oh, so. okay. There we go. So, yeah, it was that's embarrassing. You know, I mean, the whole Hawk thing was just bad. So bad. Sable wasn't there. She should be filming the episode of Pacific Blue all week. He got the silver, gave Hawk this terrible powerbomb. And Tigger Kane showed up and beat up ICP, which I'm sure they love that. And uh, they're uh, one last go around for ICP. They're going to have their one last tour, and that's it. So yeah, there you go. I mean, sad to hear about Violent J's, you know, heart issues and stuff. But gl- yeah. glad he's at least well enough to do the final tour. They had a hell of a run. Yeah, they've been going for over 25 years. Yeah. Props to them. Like I've been telling people lately, too, like, at this point, with all the good they've done and, you know, everything Violent J said over the years, you know, about lyrics that don't age well and, like, you know, talking about his daughter saying, tell tell, tell your friends your father was an idiot, all that. Like, and every, all the good things they've done for wrestlers. I, I, I don't have a bad word to say about ICP. Well, they, I mean, as far as anything related to ICP, it wasn't always ICP that was, was really a problem. It was their Juggalos. following. Well, yes. Yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure you probably encountered some juggalos over the years in your independent wrestling travels. Yeah, I worked a show in Florida that was, uh, ICP was supposed to be there and they ended up not being there. Um, oh, I'm But sure. yeah, it was. Uh, uh yeah that was uh that was an interesting crowd they uh didn't care about the wrestling but they cared about a lot of the spots um uh, i was there i think i managed uh francisco chiazzo when he was frankie capone uh, against tommy rogers and the crowd did not enjoy tommy rogers one bit oh i'm sure they did times yeah, it was one of the few times you can say a pro wrestling crowd did not enjoy Tommy Rogers, because my God. Um, but uh, yeah, they. But well, I've, actually, once we heard that ICP wasn't going to be there, and they were waiting till the end of the show to tell the crowd, oh, myself oh, and no. Tommy Rogers were staying together, so we got the hell out of there. Um, I heard 
it wasn't ugly, but it was almost an ugly scene um, when they announced that ICP wasn't going to be there at the end of the show. Wait until the end of the show to say it. Oops. Uh, <laughs> All right, Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor being Jesus Castillo and Miguel Perez Jr. One of the only two decent matches in the entire show. And then we get the main event of Raw. Wait, I thought you wanted to play the snow thing, though. It's not coming up yet. I, that's, it I'm happens, totally... or, but it, no, it's already big. It's show. not in the notes yet. It's not in the notes yet. Oh, okay. See, you tell me not to spoil myself, and you said it's not in Dave's recap, so... <laughs> it's not in the notes. It's a separate thing. All right, so let me let me make sure I queue up our clip that we're getting ready then. Because <laughs> it's a specific timestamp, but... Anyway, so Jeff Jarrett and Scorpio was the main event of Raw. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then with X-Pac interfered for the DQ and they brought him to the stands. And Undertaker and Kane showed up and laid out Scorpio with a stiff tombstone pile driver. Now, actually, you're, I mean, you're right in order because that doesn't come up with no shit either. So. <laughs> I know, but still, we're getting, we're almost there based on where the, what's on here. All right, for Heat, Bradshaw beat Shamrock by DQ and Vader interfered. Edge beat Taka, and only a good match on the show. Taker and Kane beat Animal and Drawsdorf, and Hawk came out, and Kane beat him up. Taker used his new leg lock on Animal, who's also having his knee scoped this week. <laughs> Two knee surgeries from Hunter Taker. How about that? Road Dog went to WDQ with Dennis Knight when Jarrett next pop up interfered. Kane and Taker came out dragging Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe and told me, man, they were his chief stooges, and if he didn't come out, they would destroy them. He didn't come out. They got destroyed. Patterson sold the great. I'm sure he did. D'Lo killed the European title pin in Valvina, so after the match, Venus got the chest protected from D'Lo and splashed him with it. And Gangrel beat Dick Togo. The show and taping ended when McMahon announced a triple threat match for the title with Undertaker, Austin, and Kane's main event for the breakdown pay-per-view on September 27th from Hamilton, Ontario. Undertaker Kane came out. McMahon apologized for the names he called them and then called out Austin to tell about the triple threat match. When Austin found out, he gave McMahon a stunner, although McMahon was said to have sold it poorly. And when didn't he? <laughs> that wasn't one of his high spots for sure. No. Selling the uh the stunner. Yes. Also, I miss them doing the B pay-per-views in places like Hamilton because I mean, well, not only was Breakdown a pretty good show, but that's one of the hotter bell-to-bell pay-per-view crowds of this period, too. Yeah. Cuz you could tell they were kind of starved for it. I'm going to skip in and notice that you got this prepared. It was really weird on the very forgettable episode of Raw that aired late on September 5th that during the Jeff Jarrett match with Scorpio, Jerry Lawler had a line about Jeff Jarrett's new crew cut, which Jeff got his head shaved to SummerSlam, and this is the beginning of Jeff sporting the haircut that he would have for the next few years. So let's go to Jerry Lawler and this very, very unfortunate comment. Successfully retained their tag titles from against uh, The Rock and Mark Henry earlier tonight, thanks to China, quite frankly. Well, I'll just tell you this: I, I can't help, I can't take my eyes off Double J's head. I mean, he used to have that beautiful, natural, long blonde hair. Now look at this. Jeff and Jill have the same hairstyle now. That would be his wife. I'll tell you one thing: Steve Blackman. Has- Boy, did Jr. want to get out of there as soon as possible. <laughs> All right. Why? What? What are you doing, you awful, awful man? Like what? Lawler. And, let me read what it says so people can understand what what he's saying. Lawler, in referring to Jared's new crew cut, said he now looks like Jill. 
And Jim Ross almost grudgingly appeared to say, that's his wife, in reference to Jill Jarrett. It was weird, because Jill Jarrett lost a lot of hair undergoing chemo for breast cancer. Ooh. I mean, this is this is a guy that he's been friends with, known forever. Someone I mean, he's literally known since Jeff was a child. His his dad was his business partner for so many years, and he's probably he's probably known Jill just as long as anyone too. I'm I gotta think in Lawler's mind, he thought he was not malicious in intent, but that's terrible optics. And now I'm gonna go to you. I mean, you've done plenty of announcing over the years. I mean, good lord! In a situation like that, you got you got to sacrifice the cheap line and and, and going for that here. You can't do that. Um, but I mean, I think as you were saying, Jerry Lawler didn't think he was saying anything wrong. Well, in, in his mind, I, I I really I really you know you look at all the things he he says and does. He thinks he's continuing to be funny slash edgy, and, and doesn't know you know where the line is. He's I, a I heel. It's deplorable. He's a he- don't get me wrong. He's a he's he- I am not entirely he's not sure in this case heel. though, because he really shoehorned that in the way he delivered it. Yeah, like, he didn't have. To- it, do you get what I'm saying? Like the way he delivered it makes me a little more inclined to think it was supposed to be on the square. I don't know, but go ahead, Al. What were you going to say? I, I, you know, I just, I, you're, you're attempting to put yourself in Jerry Lawler's head, and and that that's that's where the problem <laughs> is. We we call we all can understand that this is wrong. You don't that there's a line you don't cross. Um, but wrestling commentators that are used to saying certain things, you know, they just they just don't think like normal humans do. Yeah, yeah, that happens, and that. That that happens in sports, you know. It's like you know, we just had that latest controversy. I don't know. I'm sure you know about this. The whole Jack Morris thing with Shoya Otani. Yeah. You know where I mean, he he did a a Asian impression, and it was you know just not the completely not the best way of of doing that, yeah. and you, it you got him removed that- from television. You have guys that have been broadcasting for many, many years that don't, you know, that just aren't up to speed with the changes in society. Um, you know, it, it's it, and it's hard to put yourself in their shoes because th- that they don't understand that what they're saying is wrong. I, this is a complete tangent, but I want to tell a story about my stepfather. Uh, this was for many, many years ago, um, but. Uh, one time we were at a Thanksgiving dinner at my aunt's house and her neighbors came over uh, and they had just adopted a, a young, a, adorable, precious young girl uh, from Africa. And on the whole ride home, my stepfather just couldn't comprehend, well, what happens when they go to her school and they'd say the teacher, oh, we're, we're her parents and the teacher doesn't understand it because they're white. Just he, he just came from a different time and a different era and, and he just doesn't understand how society has changed. And, and, you know, the reality is the teacher would have said, Oh, okay, cool. Nice to meet you. Um, you know, but, but something but like that doesn't even just... necessarily come off malicious either. Right. No, it, it absolutely wasn't malicious. And I think, again, I, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think, I think Jerry had it in his head 
prior to this that he's going to get in a funny a funny zinger about Jill and and was just waiting for the time to do it and maybe I had to sort of throw it in there. Um, again, I I just in his mind he's not saying anything wrong and and neither was uh, the, that announcer and, and neither was a couple of years ago when the uh, a wrestling commentator uh lost his gig for recycling a line from the mid 80s about Ethiopia you know <laughs> so yeah you know, again when you're doing something for decades and society changes it's a lot of times hard to adjust your your spiel yeah, yeah this is a guy who wants cut a promo for heat about the Mississippi burning murders. So. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's at a different, different level at times than you would think somebody should be. So. We're also talking about the Not guy who cut racist promos in front of mostly black audiences as a baby face. And they still supported him. Yes. <laughs> so. Not defending it, but you can certainly see how certain things would be conditioned to be acceptable in Jerry Lawler's strange, strange brain. Right, right. It's, it's, a, it's wrestling. It's a work. Yes. And yeah. Jeff on his podcast did just do SummerSlam 98. I have not listened yet. I don't know if this is covered, but I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Especially knowing how Jeff is very much willing to wear his heart on his sleeve on his podcast. So kind of curious about that. All right. But the big thing to come out of raw on the Saturday night raw was Jim Ross did a sit down interview with Al snow. And basically it's a, one of those Jim Ross sit down interviews from this era where we're going inside the man and uh, we're going to see what Al snow's really about. And Wade Keller said, this was excellent. Let's find out for ourselves as we go one-on-one, Jim Ross and Al Snow. Well, Wade's interviewed him. He should know. (laughs) After 16 years in relative obscurity and one failed stint in the WWF, Al Snow has returned to the World Wrestling Federation. Ironically, I mean, technically it was about a dozen years in obscurity and then a few more in relative obscurity. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It was Al Snow's failure that had him turning to a mannequin head for career advice and made Al a cult hero ECW in ECW. Clip. ECW is a completely alternate experience. It's a completely different situation. I was able there to show them what I knew, what you yourself knew several years ago, that I was capable of carrying the ball when it was given to me Capable of taking my chance and running with it. I was a star there, and I can be a star here. And if I'm not given the chance, JR, then we'll take it. But really, seriously, you're talking to a mannequin. How, how are people going to take you seriously if you carry and talk to a mannequin? Oh, they're going to take me seriously because I am a serious person. I'm not a joke. I'm not a gimmick. I'm not some freak for Vince McMahon to exploit. I am a normal human being. I have a wife. I have children. I have a regular life. I go to the grocery store. I mow the lawn just like you do. But but I don't mow my lawn carrying around a mannequin head. Well, I don't either. I can't hold on to the bars of the mower. I have to use two hands. They set up on the porch, for God's sakes. Supervising, I would assume. 
Well, no, I don't have to mow the lawn. I don't need their help for that. What do they sound like, for God's sakes? They, 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 are there male voices, female voices? You've been hearing them all your life. What, what, what do they sound like? They, they sound like you and I. I mean, they have a voice. They, they have different voices because they're different people. You believe in God, don't you, JR? Absolutely. Can you see God? No, sir. No, but you believe he's there, even though you can't see him. That's true. Just because you can't hear something doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that you're not listening, that you haven't opened up your mind, that you haven't opened up your ears, that you still shut yourself off from alternate possibilities. I have hope for you, JR. I'm good. I have hope for you, too. But it's being challenged sometimes. Well, you know, we all have challenges, JR. I mean, I've had a number of them in my life, as you know, but we overcome them. Al Snow's sanity is arguable. However, I've known this man for over a decade and have personally seen him compete in obscure locations for little or no money. But Al Snow's desire to become a WWF superstar took many forms, including the mask avatar and the 70s teen icon, Leaf Cassidy. These cumulative failures drove Al to the brink of a mental breakdown and out of the WWF. They want me to apologize to you because that was wrong. Well, I'm not looking for an apology, but I just want to know what your motivation was and, and why you did. You remember the first because, time? Because, JR, you were the only hope I had. I mean, you were the only outlet that I could take. I knew that you were sitting right there. You were my friend. You were the last chance I had. And I, I couldn't take it anymore. I mean, you can only beat a dog so much until finally he turns around and he bites you. But I didn't have a breakdown. You see, everybody thinks I had a breakdown. Everybody thinks that I was pushed over the edge. And I wasn't pushed over the edge. I just simply had an awakening. If you could walk into Mr. McMahon's office tomorrow morning. I said, tried that and the security stopped me. I heard that story. But if you, if you got clearance and you walked in and he sat down in this big palatial office sitting across from the owner of this company, what would you say to him? I wouldn't say anything because you know why? I would not honor him with the fact of me talking to him. I would do the same thing to him that he did to me. I mean, kind for kind. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. I don't even want to talk to him. What would you do, exchange notes? I mean, how are you going to communicate? They want to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. They want to talk to the owner. They feel that it's necessary to sit down with him and have it out with him and make him see their way. Who's in charge of you? You or them? Well, I am. Yes, I am. We have a bit of... Stop it. You don't push me. Not now. You promised. We'll continue the discussion in the car. But I am the one in control. I'm the one who runs the show. Anyway, on to the next question. I don't care how normal you try to make Al Snow sound, Jr. He is certifiably insane. Well, speaking of insane, there they are, the insane clown posse. They'll be out here with the oddities. Oh, this will be something next. Oh, of course, Violent J is wearing FUBU. Um, that was a hell of a segment. I mean, Al, I mean, Al Snow did a tremendous job as Al Snow there. Yeah. Well, here's what I really noticed with that. That character works if he is being himself with the off-kilter aspects mixed in. Once it becomes a gimmick, so to speak, is where it falters. 
Absolutely. And Ross was, was really, really good as a straight man and all that. And yeah, Al, I mean, Snow had a hell of a run at this time. The ECW run, he got over. He may have been in pay-per-view. I mean, he was. He, he comes to WF and they treat him like he's something here, and then all of a sudden it just goes down the toilet. Yeah, they, you know, they they tried to put their fingerprints on it. Uh, so I don't know if I told this story before, but Al actually worked a couple of shows for Music City Wrestling uh, during this summer. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was after they did the thing at the pay-per-view where uh, Lawler put the head and shoulders bottle onto the mannequin head and pinned it. Yeah. And then they took Al off TV for a little while. Al worked, uh, he worked in Nashville. And then a couple of weeks later, he came to Louisville. Uh, but when he came to Nashville, I actually picked him up at the airport. Uh, he flew in early that morning and we went to the movies. We went to see There's Something About Mary. And uh, this is absolutely 100% true. Al brought bought a extra ticket for head and sat it on the chair throughout the daytime matinee of a movie where there was maybe five other people in the theater besides us and may or may not have talked. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, and when we were walking through the mall, he was, he was, you know, Al Snow wrestler. Um, but yeah, just again, just in case there was that one person, uh, he did it, but again, just the way he mixes being, Al Snow, semi-normal person, but also every now and then throwing out the the most batshit crazy things, but saying them with a straight voice. That's what made it work. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, I think what happened is WWE tried to put their fingerprints on on everything and it went all to shit. Absolutely. Yes, that happens a lot. (laughs) That's happened a lot over the years. They take something that's organic and they try to do it their way and they fuck it up. Well. There's also the issue that even though this new persona is what was getting him over, it was a bit of a handicap as well, especially as the WWF main event scene was changing, that his work had suffered so much, though. Yeah, he wasn't the same worker, that's for sure. No, which, you know, say what you will about Al Snow, but just just you do kind of feel for someone who's probably spent way too many years on their bump card before they made money. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's your TV for the week. Ed Ferrara is a third man along Vincent Man and Vince Russo that are currently writing Raw. Ferrara from wrote for the short live USA Network show Duck Man. It is exactly like they got a writer who wrote Friends. Well, that was coming up later on, Dave. There's a much larger circle of about a dozen people who regularly submit ideas that are used on TV. <laughs> so. Well, okay, isn't well, isn't that person who shall remain nameless technically only credited as story by on that episode? Well, he still has a credit, so there is that. He still gets to put it on his resume that he wrote for fucking friends, man. Who cares? There you go. There you go. Let me just hey. see what the actual credit is real quick. I'm curious. <laughs> Because yes. I always forget it. Is, yes, it is. You already have enough heat with this guy. So we'll talk about that later. But anyway, Dan Severn apparently complained to Jim Ross about not being allowed to bring his NWA and UFC belts to the ring or be acknowledged as NWA champion, which is apparently a Vince Russo decision. And the observers told him that decision may be changed. Bro, bro, nobody cares. Nobody, <laughs> nobody cares about, about those. Those. <laughs> I can't even do it anymore. Fuck that guy. Um. By the way, how about Russo buying the Realm Network 
and then deciding he had to spend $20,000 on a new website for it. <laughs> and not telling his wife. He's Vince Russo. Dude, just set up a Patreon or something. Come on. Savio Vega, BC, a neurologist on September 18th, about all the problems in his neck. Miguel Perez Jr.'s back, and speaking of back, he shaved his, which Dave gets is his most heat-getting chance. <laughs> That's terrible. He had to shave his back. Goddamn, oh. pal, you need to look like a real wrestler. <laughs> That's, you know... When you got a guy that's got some type of distinct feature, yes. and then you have, and then you tell them that they need to get rid of that distinct feature, you're killing them. It's just killing them. Okay, I'm. I don't remember seeing him with the shaved back though. Do you? And what? I mean, he went around to very much longer. So, well, he, it grew back a day later. So you know. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm pulling a from one of the first episodes of Super Astros, and yeah, it's Miguel Perez with no body hair, which looks super weird. <laughs> yes, because he had that for his whole career. Yeah. Of a sweater. First time I met Bobby Fulton, he asked me to shave his back uh, before going out for a match. Oh, uh, that's a, an honor. Yeah, it was, uh, and a privilege. Yes, there you go. And, and this, but you, you know, here's the weird byproduct, of, unless he also just got some made some other physical changes. Uh, Miguelito Perez, without the body hair, does not look nearly as thickly built. Well, that hair stick, it was thick and luscious, of course. It was, it, like, it, was, it was like Andre's afro for him. Yes. And also, they're going to heavily push this coming weekend, and all, Austin, Ken Shamrock matches the September 14th for all main event from San Jose. When they go back head-to-head. God probably should be in San Jose, although he's probably several weeks away from wrestling. Well, a lot of injuries here. Dr. Steve Williams isn't expected back until November. Okay, real quick before we move on from that one. I saw some discussion recently. I don't remember where or what context. Oh, it was, I think it was, uh, I think someone tweeted the photo of the Doc Jacks figure and joking about how no one bought it, which is, you know, we all remember I seeing did. those lining the shelf. I bought it too, but you know what I mean. Yeah. We were the only ones. Um, between the figure that he's in the Attitude video game, etc., they clearly did have big plans for him, right? The dude has like three matches in the company, and he has all this licensing stuff. Yes. Oh, yeah, they're going to do something. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't get why some people kind of disbelieve it, but That's surely true. they were going to do something. Yeah, what all in particular, who knows? But, yeah, I mean, they had plans for him. Absolutely. All right. Um, Steven Regal, we brought back for September training camp to work on his physique and conditioning for a restart. They wanted to tighten up his upper body. Yeah, he kind of uh, got a little pudgy there. He had actually so. slimmed down from WCW, but that was not his biggest problem, of course. No, not at all. And speaking of Jerry Lawler, both Jerry Lawler and Les Russell will play themselves in the Man in the Moon movie about late Andy Kaufman, which is starring Jim Carrey, which means Lawler gets to pile drive Jim Carrey. Jimmy Hart, who managed and took care of Kaufman while he was doing his wrestling in Memphis in eighty two and eighty three, won't be in the movie due to the wrestling politics of WCW not wanting him involved in a movie that Lawler was in. So I take it that Jimmy Hart is not so nice that he can work for both promotions at the same time yet? Obviously not. Well, he wouldn't really be anyway, but still. Um, 
technically Lawler plays himself, Lance Russell plays ring announcer Lance Russell, while the role of play-by-play announcer Lance Russell is played by Jim Ross. Well, yes. <laughs> so, dang it, that movie wouldn't turn out to be anything, so there's that. <laughs> it was an Oscar bait movie that was not of that quality, but it was fine. All right, let's go to the land of the rising sun now in all Japan pro wrestling. We're in a big surprise. Mitsuharu Masawa announced that Yoshinara Gawa and not Monike Amas Man will become his new regular tag partner, including at the Real World Tag League, which explains Ogawa scoring two pinfalls in tag matches of late against Junakiyama. The news generally was given a negative reaction since Ogawa's been around forever and nobody takes him serious as a top guy. As compared with Moss Man, who's only 22 years old and is seen as a rising potential superstar. And, of course, this is also in response, in storyline, to Akiyama leaving Masawa to team up with Kabashi and join Burning. Yeah, which just seemed like that Moss Man was going to be the natural transition. Masawa takes the next young prospect and goes that direction, but no, he goes with Ogawa, and- who... Had been taken, who had not been treated, you know, like Dave said here, seriously. He was a junior heavyweight guy, and they did not push them high. So, had he even had a title run yet at this point? Junior title? Yeah. I think he won at this point in time. Because the, the big reign, I know he's championed by Giants here, New York Giants series. In yes, January. he was champion in 95. He, he beat Crawford and lost to Fuji in 96. He's had him more than once. In fact, Mossman beat him for the title. Okay, in, uh, yeah, I'm looking up. I completely forgot about that. The Mossman. He's a junior champion here. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's this through, through the, the split. end. Yeah. yeah, the split. And then the belt so, is did he, brought did back he to Hello, too. Good up. Did he hold the uh, tag titles, the, the secondary tag titles? All with, Asia? like Kikuchi or someone? All Asia, I, I think I he may have had a run with him too. Um, at this point in time, I, I could be wrong, but I, I'm trying. I think he was sort of at that level. But yeah, it, it's a weird, it's a weird choice of elevating him. Right, Let's I'm see gonna... here, Yoshinara Gawa. Uh, no, he had not been All Asian Tag Champion yeah. yet. That would be in '99 with Masawa, though, as All Asian Tag Champs. But they oh, immediately yeah. vacated it. So, so other, other wrestlers, wrestlers could hold the title. Oh, thanks, uh, Greg Gagne. Great booking <laughs> there. Uh, okay. Yeah. Ogawa did a good job reinventing himself. Like, was he like sleazy zebra gear Ogawa yet, or does that happen when yes. he teams up with? Okay, so he was already doing that, but he was reinventing himself, and it was going okay. But and it worked out okay in the end, but. Not only do I think Mossman probably would have been the better pick, this completely alters his career trajectory. Oh, absolutely. That's what I was about to say. I mean, this this really affects his career. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he 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 becomes a bigger deal when Mudo's in charge of all Japan, but that's four years after this. And even if he becomes Masao's regular tag partner, who's to say he doesn't go to Noah? That's an interesting one. So because you know, he was loyal to Baba because he was a guy who was Baba's last personal protege, got brought to him by King Curtis. So I don't know if it changes that. I think there's a decent chance that he still sticks with All Japan. But, you know, if he gets in that slot here, 
that's the other thing too. If he's in this slot here and he's now at, at least at the very least a world tag titles level wrestler and he doesn't jump, that gives all Japan a much stronger single scene, even just by adding the one guy at the time of the split than they had. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a you know, the guy was really talented, picked up stuff really well, and was seemingly on his way, and the split, yeah, he became a hell of a wrestler, he did fairly well, all things considered, in all Japan. We will never know what that guy's full potential would have looked like. No, not at all. Jin Station Saki came in for the September 3rd show in Tokushima, which is his hometown. Team with Jai Baba and Moss Band to beat Misawa, Omori, and Storo Sako. When Shizaki used his prey and power bomb on Osako, it is believed that Shizaki will, is going to work the entire October All Japan tour. See, with the team with Baba in his hometown. So Baba removed himself from the comedy match since he considered Baba as the god of pro wrestling. Well, the show drew 2300 fans. Shoshi Kikuchi over Katara Shiga ran 91 Super Dolphin over Namichimaru Fuji and Yoshinobu Kanemaru. Mitsuo Momoto and Rishikamura over Ruka Egan and Masafuchi. Juna Zamina and Timon Honda over Mark Reagan in 1998. And That's Hall- got to be a typo. Come no, on. No, that I'm is dope. Destroyer <laughs> called in a favor yeah. and Mar- after Mark Reagan tried to get back into wrestling or something. Yeah, absolutely. Masito Kokihara and Yoshiro Takayama over Johnny Ace and Johnny Smith. Bobby Duncan Jr. and Stan Hansen over Gary Albright and Kamala Too. Giant Baba in a semi-main event. And Shinzaki Mossman over Masawa Sakonomori. And then Akira Tawe, Toshiko Kawada, and Yoshidara Gawa defeated um, Junakuyama, Kenakabashi, and Masawa in a way. Okay, at least after 1990 and on Wrestling Data, this Summer Action Series 2, 98, is the only stuff listed for him. Mark Reagan. Yeah. So we've got him teaming with Wolf a few times against some of the young guys, uh, teaming with Kamala 2 against other foreigners, teaming with Kamala 2 against Hashi and Ogawa, against uh, Morishima and Honda, Bobby Duncombe Jr. and Stan Hansen over Johnny Smith and Mark Reagan, uh, Mossman over Mark Reagan in... Shimono Seki. And then let me see, as I skip move to September to see what the others are. Real quick, is it loads? Okay, anything else interesting here? You know, more mixing up the foreigners' tags. A lot of the same teaming with Hansen against Mossman and Honda. Uh, and I think that's about it. Oh, and this match that I'm sure we all knew and remembered happened Jado and Ghetto defeated Giant Kamala 2 and Mark Reagan. <laughs> well, we got one coming up on September the 6th. And that's on Moss- the Budokan show. Mossman lost his singles match to Kenta Kabashi in Kyoto on September 6th for a South 450 in Kabashi's hometown. They did get to beat Wolf Hartfield in this series, so there's that. All right, the on September 6th at the Daigo Green Dome in Kyoto from a 2450. We'll Grand 91 Super Dolphin over Mafuji and Kanamaru. Gato and Jado over Katoro Shiga and Satoru Sako. Takeshi Morishima and Yoshinarigawa over Kamala 2 and Mark Reagan. Baba, Mamoto, and Kimura over Egan, Fuchi, and Kikuchi. Ace and Hotfield over Akayama and Masao in a way. Trial match series number five of the uh, seven. Kobashi over Boss Man. 
Junazamina, Mitsurama Sao, Takao Mori over Gary Albright, Matsuda Kakihara, and Yoshihiro Takayama as our UWFI crew. And then Akira Tawe, Tomon Hon, and Toshiro Kawada over Bobby Duckle Jr., Johnny Smith, and Stan Hansen. Huh. Mark Reagan, I mean, we've been talking about Mark Reagan, but Mark Reagan was an interesting guy in 84, 85 because he worked in various territories. He did the Michael Jackson dancing gimmick. Um, he had a good look. I mean, he worked it. He worked in Mid South, and Mid South's probably where he got his best push. I would say Al in '85. Yeah. So same time as Brick, Bricks in Mid yeah. South too, doing the same almost same exact thing. Yeah. Uh, it, literally, this has to be what I said. It must be right that. Mark Reagan because well, for for those who don't know, Destroyer was Mark Reagan's mentor and trainer, and he must have just decided, "Hey, I want to get back into wrestling. Can you call Baba?" And Destroyer's Destroyer. So actually, wait, I thought of something else. Actually, the summer is when Dick Byer would take local Syracuse amateur, like school scholastic wrestlers. I guess it's a better way to put it to Japan, right? Is it possible he's Dick Byer's assistant coach or something? Oh, could be. And they were just like, hey, I'm bringing Mark Reagan with me. Yeah. Want to give him a payoff? <laughs> yeah, why not? All right, so Battle Arts. No New Japan this week. The Road Warriors will make their return to Japan after seven years away on the Battle Arts show at Sumo Hall November 23rd, facing Jin Seishizaki and Daisuke Ikeda. Warriors were huge draws to Japan during the 80s and early 90s. We just talked about Hawk and Animal having their health issues and other issues, and now they're going to be going to Japan for battle arts. Lord have mercy. Yeah, and that'll be for the B Cup as well. Not That's the B Cup. Course. The, B, the B Cup tournament, yes. Abu, Abu was with the B Cups earlier on Raw. <laughs> no comment. Um, but, you know, a few notable things about that. One is that Alexander Otsuka has his famous MMA upset win over Marco Huas in Pride in that time frame. And at the press conference, the you know legitimate sports reporters are asking him how he feels after this big upset win. And he's like, oh, it's fine. But honestly, I'm look much more looking forward to wrestling with the Road Warriors in the next week or so. Of course he was. <laughs> and the non-wrestling fans were very confused by this. Yes. Um, and wait, there was something else. Oh, now I remember the B cup also notable for featuring, okay. okay who were the other foreigners in weird names? Bob Backlund, right? Greg Valentine. Anyone else? Was it Rasta on that? Rasta worked several tours for them though. I think that was at, at the war zone. He worked that early before then. So, okay. Yeah. But anyway, it's, the re it's, it's a talent. Yes. And the reason I bring that up though, too, is. I believe that's the source of Greg Valentine works some indie show somewhere in, you know, the Pittsburgh, Ohio area. After the show, he's at the bar sitting next to Shirley Doe, Sam Panico. And just one moment out of the blue, he says, so what the fuck is this battle art shit all about? <laughs> <laughs> Not verbatim, but something like that. You would think that a younger Greg Valentine would have had a lot of fun in a Battle Arts style promotion. Yes. My God. Well, speaking oh, of... His his dad would have, like... 
his dad probably would have loved it a little too much. <laughs> Even the Carl Gotcha Battle Arts. What are you talking about? Well, technically, isn't Carl Gotcha <laughs> the Carl Gotcha Battle Arts? I guess so. If you ever think about it. All right, the Battle Arts Young Generation Tournament ended with that with afternoon evening shows at Tokyo FM Hall, a 300-seat gym in Tokyo, with Yuki Shikawa beating Victor Kruger in the finals and beating Minoru Tanaka in the semifinals. Carl Greco, Carl Malenko, was also in the Final Four, but apparently was injured, as Kruger beat him only in 48 seconds, and he forfeited third place to Tanaka. All right, Schwimm met Shizuoka on September 5th, drew 580, as Alexander Otsuka and Katsushika Takamura beat Ikoro Hidaka and Mamoru Okamoto. Then Young Generation Battle Tournament matches Minoru Tanaka over Muhammad Yone, Fritz Kruger over Takeshi Ono, Carl Greco over Kasumi Yasuda, Das Keikeda, going to a 30 minute draw with Masao Rihara, huh. and Yuki Shikawa over Ryuji Yamakawa, Big Japan in the main event. Then FM Hall in the sixth, Takamura over Okamoto, Yasuda over Ryuji Jakata, Takeshi Ono over Makjunji, Akeda and Yone over Hidaka and Otsuka. Then the semifinal matches, uh, Kruger over Greco, Ishikawa over Tanaka, and then, of course, the main event happened in the other show, which we don't have results for the other show for some reason. So there you go. Aikeda, uh, huh? Is that like Vampiro? Aikeda. You said Aikeda. If I did, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, to me, even though the earlier stuff's good, this period right here, I guess maybe even this tournament, is really where Battle Arts becomes Battle Arts. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like they have more of an identity on their own, as opposed to just being like, PWFG2. Well, they got a load of roster at this time, that's for sure. Yeah. And, okay, so Takamura at this time, what is he? Like, who, I forget, who trained him originally? He's Muga. So, okay, so Muga had a separate dojo? That's where he was at. I mean, well, where did he try? Like, so he's Muga based and. Mixed Fujinami, and Fujinami was his trainer. But was that a new I Japan mean, dojo or was that separate? I just know he was his trainer. I can't tell you where he. Tra- I mean, and that, it, all that stuff's gray area in this point. That's in what time. I'm saying. That's what but I'm saying. Nish- Nishimura was was his trainer too he was in the dojo I mean he was a dojo boy yeah okay yeah but he, worked, it, it but is the he new was a Muga dojo, yeah. but he was a Muga guy he wasn't a New Japan guy proper until, until like 2000 yeah for whatever reason um but yeah he was mainly floating around when you know because Muga wasn't running a lot of shows he'd work like your shoot style indies and stuff it was interesting I mean, he was calling Masakazu Fukuda in that way. Kind of, yeah. But anyway, yeah, Battle I Arts. I also was... just love, yeah, I also just love too how Battle Arts at this time, you know, always in this era, but especially at this time, it's also just, it's like the midpoint of the indies where anyone can wrestle anyone almost, too. You know what I mean? Yeah, all the major indies just kind of converge on Battle Arts, and it's a lot of fun. But yeah, look at look at that roster. Yeah, I mean they got a lot of great workers, and uh, I mean if you were a DVDR five hundred guy, I mean look at that list. There's a lot of top ranked guys on that on that list for sure. 
right, so let's go to Big Japan Pro Wrestling. And uh, they ran a show in Nagoya City Gym on September the 6th from 2,700 fans. We had Shimmy Masazaki over Jun Kasai in your opener. Marcelo over La Chola. Osamu Tachikari and Genosuke Kabayashi over Makoto Saito and Masayoshi Motegi. Takakuba Benke over Kishikawa Bada. No one could enter Barbara Board Death Match for the Death Match title. Shadow WX beat Ruji Makawa. Six man tag league round robin match. Isao Takagi, Tobuki Homa, and Ryu Ichigo defeated Jason the Terrible, GK, and Mass GK Jr. Yes. <laughs> Whoever they are. <laughs> and then you have a Street Fight Death match where Kung Fu Lee. Team with Shoujo Kanemaki and Mr. Masanaga, Mr. Danger, to beat the Great Pogo, Black Shadow, and Shadow Winger. Kung Fu Lee was Great Kajika doing his old one of his old gimmicks. Black Shadow was Ni Hao Bix. Oh wow! <laughs> and of course, Shadow Winger was Takashi Akano. So Winger, there's that. Yeah. Yes. And then their six-man tag league final, GK, Jason, and Mash GK Jr. defeated Satakagi, Tabukahoma, and Ryu Ichiga. Okay, so looking at this, I had completely forgotten that Arashi started wrestling under his real name again as a Satakagi. Yes. How long did that go? Uh, until he went back to all Japan. And back I like that he's also doing it in a promotion where he's not on the show, but where the other Arashi is working. Oh, no, he is on he the is, show, Bankhead. Yeah, he is on the show. Yeah. He beat Kawabata. Yeah, yeah. I, I missed it for a second, yeah. So you have both... I wonder I wonder if he's not Arashi, because he, he's on a show with Yeah, because that's probably why. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what else do we have here? Uh, any idea who La Chola is? Just Lucha. an indie luchadora, probably? Mm-hmm. She worked in Mexico for many years. Yes, and I guess the other thing to mention is, since we haven't did a long time on this one, for those who don't know, Makoto Saido equals all caps Makoto equals Darkness Dragon equals Kness. Yes. All right, FMW, in a familiar story. FMW's an angle where Asusha and Nita starting to quit the promotion at the next tour due to a difference of opinion with the rest of the wrestlers as to the direction the company is going. FMW is becoming more and more in the influence of Hiromichi Fuyuki, was more of an Americanized mind towards wrestling and storytelling and gimmicks as opposed to sport. And FMW is not calling itself Entertainment Pro Wrestling. Well, World Entertainment Wrestling. The original Mr. Pogo versus Great Pogo for Big Japan returned for an angle on September 3rd in Tomokamai. After Babuhito, Yukiro Kanamura, Koshinakagawa beat Onita, Pogo, and Yoshinura Sasaki. Well, excuse me, Onita and Mr. Pogo. The main event, Great Pogo, threw a fireball at Mr. Pogo. Pogo... Great Pogo, original Mr. Pogo, still working for Big Japan, hasn't done anything with FW since that show. Oh, it is so Dave to write that paragraph that way and not really just consider for the reader at all how it would read. Well, and our results, before we talk about Onita, 2,500 fans on September 3rd. Mr. Pogo, number two, over Nehuku Yamazaki. Hido and Takeshi Ono, over Flanky Chihara and Yukihide Ueno. Little Frankie, over Tomezo Sunakake, so the All Japan midgets are here. It's got to Oi and Super Leather over Tetsuya Kuroda and Dekiyasaka. Yuki got Jado and Gato defeated Hayabusa, Daisuke Akeda, and Riki Fuji. And then Barbara Street fight Nakagawa, Katamura, and Hito over Onita, Pogo 2, and Yoshinari Sasaki. 
And of course, Pogo number two is Kosaka. Um, Al, Asusha Nita threatening to quit, retire, and all this stuff. I cannot believe that he would do such a thing. Shocking. It must, it must, <laughs> must have been a day in the week that ended with why. <laughs> uh, it's amazing that we would do that. But this is interesting, interesting reasoning that FMW is becoming too Americanized. The guy who based FMW after Memphis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, You're not supposed to read too much into this. Obviously not. Oh. Obviously not. But without this entertainment but, uh, wrestling, we never would have gotten Biomonster DNA getting that touching letter from his mother. Yes. Mrs. DNA. Um, well, no. I mean, she t- explained to him, no, you're not a monster. So he took off his monster costume and was happy to be a normal person instead of a spider monster. But, you know, Onita does break off again from the group. You know about yeah. this. I mean, it's actually it's a thing. So, yeah, there it is. And now, of oh, course, I, what's the name of the new FMW revival? FMW Entertainment. Exactly. Right, IWA Japan. The Great Kabuki had his retirement ceremony on September seventh, Corken Hall. Kabuki, fifty years old, had a week long final tour for all Japan. IWA Japan, excuse me, culminating his retirement show on September seventh at Corken, which he wrestled three matches just one day before his fiftieth birthday. He wrestled the three matches for Sal 2150. He first he teamed with Shigeo Kimura to beat Zap and Masao Orihara. Then he was pinned with a small package by IWA's top native wrestler, KSK Yamada, in A14. Yamada was responsible for bringing Kabuki to the company. That was the winner of a tournament held earlier in the week to get the final singles match with him. And finally, made a mid Kabuki team with Terry Funk and Doug Gilbert. What a team. To beat Leatherface, Rick Patterson, Metalface, Eddie Watts, and Freddy Krueger. But Kabuki pin Freddie after a layer at 10.35. And I think Freddie hears Tracy Smothers. Uh, Kabuki cried in the rain during his time show money, directly ending a 35-year career. He will continue to work behind the scenes with IWA and booking. His plan to open up a restaurant. Among those in attendance at the show were Tenyukurichiro, Shiroko Shinaka, and Kunio Kobayashi. Theoretically, he's doing a lot of work there. Yes. He's back in less than a year and a half. <laughs> Full results here. Yoshia Yamashita and Yuji Kido, all caps, over two-door to turtle and Hiroki Aria. Yes. Emi Motokawa and Sachi Nishibori over Miho Watabe and Keiko Ono. Great Takeru over Hedotome Igawa. Akanori Sukioka and Katsumi Hirano over Takeshi Sado and Keizo Matsuda. Shigeo Kamura and Kabuki over Stephanie Hara. Keisuke Yamato over Kabuki. And then the six-man retirement match. It's amazing, Al, that... That guy who had been around for years, he got that gimmick, and his life and career was never the same. And people just don't understand. You do, I do, mixed up. How big that gimmick was in its early stages in Texas and Louisiana and Georgia. Uh, We'll talk about Kabuki here. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that most fans hadn't seen. I mean, certainly they had, you know, Japanese wrestlers, but but the whole presentation of Kabuki, and especially when he's with Gary Hart, it just it, it's just phenomenal. It's amazing. It's funny because we were talking earlier about Al Snow, who had uh, toiled around in obscurity slash relative of obscurity for 12 years before getting his break. And in many ways, Kabuki followed that same trajectory. He was just sort of bouncing around the territories, not really doing anything. He didn't have a great look. 
And, you know, just I, I was talking on, on my podcast recently about Jody Hamilton. And, you know, if you see Jody Hamilton without the mask, you know, he just looks like a, a mild mannered, normal guy. But when he puts on that mask, everything changes. And, and somehow, some way that this uh, th- this gimmick of the great Kabuki was just magic and it transformed him into something special and something different. And there were multiple attempts at copycats over the years and uh, with varying degrees of success, but he was the originator. And, uh, you know, Bo, Bo James has some great stories about Kabuki scaring the crap out of people, um, you know, in, in, in mid-Atlantic. Uh, it just, it, it had to be seen to believe and it had to be seen at the time it happened. Like if you watch, if you go back and watch the footage now, you don't get it. Just like the same thing goes when Sabu first came around in ECW it, you don't really get how off the wall and and how you know crazy it was and, and, unless you experienced it firsthand I absolutely so I was watching the other day I never really watched these before but I started watching the first few early world-class episodes that are on WWE Network you know the pre-continental productions ones and it really is something because, like, I wasn't even trying to watch it th- that way. But you do, you kind of see it that way because the gimmick's not fully formed yet in the paint and the colors and stuff. So he still looks kind of plain. But you realize, like, it's this presentation. And once they get all the, you know, Gary Hart gets all the different aspects of the gimmick right. And even little things like he really made those super kicks look good. Like, he didn't look like he was killing people with them either as far as a shoot, but, I mean, he he had a way of, like, the snappiness on the right moves, especially the quote-unquote martial arts moves, that really helped get that gimmick over, you know? Plus other stuff, like, I love the story about the way the gimmick was introduced in Dallas, where, I, forget, I think it's Bill Mercer says something about the great Kabuki coming in, this new wrestler. And then Mark Lewin, I guess this is on the, you know, KTVD show, wanders onto the interview set and he's like, says something like, did you just say that the great Kabuki is coming to to Dallas? And he's like, yes. And he said, if the great Kabuki's coming, then I'm leaving. And that's how Mark Lewin left the territory. <laughs> that this top oh, baby great. face was, who everyone knows has extensive experience in Asia was concerned that this wrestler was coming to the territory. Yeah, and then and then they put him over Brody. You know, that was one of the big moments of Kabuki was being put over Brody. Brody clean job to Kabuki. And of course Kabuki Kabuki got over in Mid South. He was nationwide on TBS at the same time. He was working all these territories at the same time, basically, in and out. So Well it was if you're a regular on KTVT and on Georgia Championship Wrestling, you can write your ticket. Pretty, <laughs> yeah, because he yeah. he was working mid south off of getting over off of KTVT because it went yeah. into so much of the territory. And he had a few with Dog, where I mean they they went around the horn a few times. Dog was the first one to do the goggles gimmick with the mist, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, he learned his lesson from his <laughs> yeah. From the year earlier with the birds. So, yeah, I'm not going to get blinded again. Also, uh, JYD did two different angles involving goggles kind of over Europe. Well, I guess not. I guess that was glasses breaking, but still, you get the idea. 
Let's move yeah. on. All right, September 4th, IWA ran Yokoma Bunker Gym and drew a report of 26-18 with Kabuki and Gran Hamada teaming up, beating great Sasuke and Terry Funk. When Kabuki pins Sasuke to build in the green mist in his eyes in 1920, I'm, sh- I'm sure Sasuke begged to do the job of that match, knowing him. Keisuke Yamada pinned Nakanura Sukioka, and Shigeko Mura uh, won the right to be the final singles opponent for Kabuki, which is wrong. Because Yamada beat Okamura for that title. Thanks, Dave. All right, so the results. Kasumi Arano and Hiroki Arya over Yoshia Yamashita and Yuchikino. Uh, Yamada over Sukioka. Okamura over Matsuda. Yamada over Okamura to win the Kabuki retirement match. Freddy Kruger over Tudor the Turtle. Amy Murakawa, Sachinishibori over Kyoko Hariyama and Kanaka Matoya. Hedutomo Egawa, Palomino, and Masawari Haru over Mikami. Yes, a very young Mikami. Great Takara and Takeshi Sato. IWA heavyweight title. Doug Gilbert retained over Leatherface. And then Kabuki and Amato over Terry fucking Gray Sasuke. What a show that is. Wow. There's a lot going on there. Yes. All right. War. They ran Nakamura Sports Center on September 3rd in Nagoya in front of 2,100 fans. War has fallen. Nihau over Takashi Okamura, President Okamura. Miho Watabe over Megumi Sato. So Mihiro Shii over Tanabasaku Toba. Ah, he's young too. Kokyodahara over Jun Kikuchi. And then there's this match. Shoichi Ichimiya, the master of the impersonation gimmicks, teamed with Terry Bam Bam Gordy to beat Kendo Nagasaki and Yuichi Tanaguchi. Well, that's it. I'm done. War International G Heavyweight title, Yuji Ashiroka retained over Masaki Mochizuki. Well, they're barely bringing in any foreigners, and all everyone else is gone, so doesn't a junior title match at this point pretty much have to be Yuji Ashiroka versus Masaki Mochizuki? How about Terry Gordy and Mochizuki in the same locker room? That's amazing. And Nintendo Gunichiro, Kengo Kimura, and Yoshikazu Taru defeated Nobukazu Araya and Nobutaka Araya and Tadao Yasuda. Well, wow. you know what promotion this is. <laughs> A lot of beef on that on that side there, but uh, what a show! Um, Nineteen ninety eight, Terry Gordy, and one of the very last war shows too, right? Gotta be, yeah. Interesting stuff here, and also something that kind of jumps out reading this in the IWA results. No, the DDT roster did not just form fully formed out of the forehead of Sanjiro Tagagi. No, you can see them coming up mainly on IWA and war shows. Yeah. All right, so we got the identities of GKs as I go down the notes here. Wrestle Dream Factory news here as Jason the Terrible teamed up with Wrestle Dream Factory's Kamikaze and GK Jr. Kamikaze was GK and GK Jr. was from North Vegeta to win that uh, Big Japan six-man tag title. And Kojika went by Kung Fu Lee, which, Al, you know about this. That was a renaming used in the Amarillo Territory in the 70s when he feuded with Terry Funk on the Western States title. Yep, yep. How about that revival of Kung Fu Lee <laughs> in 1998? <laughs> Amazing. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about that. You know, Kojika's a guy who everybody knows from, you know, Big Japan, being an all Japan guy, but he had a pretty good run in Amarillo, didn't he, as Kung Fu Lee? Yeah, he did. This was uh, 73, I think. He might have had multiple stints there, but uh, I remember 73 
in the fall. He came in. Man, the Amarillo territory is just loaded in the early 70s. Um, between Murdoch and Pac Song and Ciclone Negro and and the Funks and uh, just Killer Carl Cox, Killer Carl Krupp, Carl von Steiger. There's, uh, there's like, it's it's crazy. Boy, there are a lot of Nazis and KKK in. guys there. I, 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 shocking. And then you have you also have uh, in in '73 you have the rookie, the first ever pro matches of both Stan Hansen and uh, Jumbo Tsuruda are in Amarillo. Yeah. And think about that. You got these Nazis and Germans or whatever, and one of the top baby faces is Hank James. <laughs> <laughs> the money man, Hank money James. Man. Yes. I wish we could we had a lot more of him on video, but that's on another story. All right. Uh there was a poor dinner Kira Maeda would be in Nobika Takata's corner on the October eleventh at Tokyo Dome for his match against Hickson Gracie, which would be a great pro wrestling story. So they started out as brothers, became builder promotional rivals, and would make a good story for them to mend their fences as both men's careers are ending. Particularly Maeda, Coach, and Takada to become the first men to beat Gracie. But this isn't pro wrestling, and you can't write good stories all the way through if the finish isn't predetermined. Anyway, Dave's not sure if Maeda has ring shows in England and Grazuya, both on October 11th, or he has to go to both countries on that day to set up shows for next year. But since he'll be out of Japan, he can't be at Takada's corner. If rings expands to those countries, it'll be actually to become, with the exception of WF, as the most international of all wrestling promotions, since they run in Japan, Australia, Holland, Georgia, so your Republic Georgia. Already I was going to say. England, Grazilia, uh, as two more countries. No, in Grazilia, <laughs> yes. I just looked it up, is the Republic of Georgia. Well, I, thank, well thanks, Dave, for doing all that research. <laughs> Good Lord. But, uh, yeah, that doesn't happen. Maeda is on Takata's corner, but it's funny that we have a two weeks in a row of uh, Kira Maeda quasi reconciliation stories here with people that he he had heat with. So well, he is getting ready to retire and maybe realizing he needs to mellow out. Yes, although it is very funny that he mellowed out like two decades before Choshu did. <laughs> yeah. Take the right. TikTok grandpa, uh, Ricky Chosher. Yes, yes. All right, let's go to the Joshi section, which Big always looks forward to. All Japan women, Ozaki City, Oz- Oz- Okazaki City Gym, excuse me, on September 7th from 1120. Narika Toyota over Tomoko Isozaki. Zap T over Miyuki Fuji. Chicago Inoue over Momonaki Nishi Bix. Zap I over Nani Takahashi, and then Manami Toyota and Yumiko Hota over Kamiko Mikawa and Miho Wakazawa in your main event. Arsian, they ran September 6th in Yadai. Rie Tomato over Mika Akino, Mariko Yoshida over Jesse Bennett. Bionic J. Mario Apache and Fabio Apache over Mikiko Furugami and Lady Metal. Rie Tomato working double duty over Michiko Omakai. And Ansha Kong and Ayako Amada over Reggie Bennett and Yumi Fukawa. Gaia, on September 5th, ran the Honkobago Pepe Hall Atlas in Saitama, one of my favorite scum, indie scum venues in front of 1,500 fans. We had Chikaya Nagashima over Maiko Matsumoto. Bad Nurse Nakamura over Mako Satamura. That just sounds dirty to say that. Bad Nurse Nakamura <laughs> beat Mako Satamura. God almighty. Kaoru and Toshiyamatsu over Mayumi Ozaki and Chikaya Nagashima. Sugar Sato over Snoko Kato. And Chigusha Nagaya and Rina Ishii over Toshiya Yamada and Sakura Hirota in your main event. 
Now in JD, Chikaku Shiratori and Yuki Lee quit JD to become free agents. And Tomoko Kazumi quit JWP to become free agent. Oh, that may be a storyline to build up some angles, which leads to JWP as they ran a doubleheader at Cork and Hall. On September 6th, they drew 1650 for both shows, day and night. Daytime, Tomiko Sai over Erika Watanabe. Erika Watanabe over Kyoko Horiyama. Kamiko Mikawa and Rieko Amano over Hiromi Yagi and Kanaka Matoya. Dynamite Kansai and Yumi Kohoto over Tomo Masami and Tomoko Miyaguchi. And what a main event this is. Kyuji Suzuki, Hikari Fukuoka, Manami Toyota over Momo Nakanishi, Nani Takahashi, and Tomoko Kazumi. Which leads to our nighttime show. We have Keiko Hariyama over Tomiko Sai, Chicago Shiratori and Yuki Lee over Command Bolshoi and Erika Watanabe, Tomoko Kazumi over Kyuji Suzuki, Tomoko Miyaguchi over Tomo Masami, Dynamite Kansai over Rieko Amano, and Hikari Fukuoka over Kanaka Montoya. But of course, we close that with Neo in Vix's honor. And on September the 5th, they ran Hakatate Citizen Gym in front of 1823, where our opening match was Masai Genki over Tanny Mouse, Eskomita over Sayendo, Mima Shimoda over Yukushina, Kyoko Inoue and Masai Genki over Chaparito Sari and Yoshiko Tamura, and Sayendo over Masai Genki. So a triple shot of Masai Genki picks to close out our Joshi section on this one show. Because everyone knows when you have a limited roster because you're a terrible trainer. Um... <laughs> the way to handle that is to just have 60% of the show be Masai Genki matches. <laughs> oh, I, I can tell your mouth was just watering when you saw that result. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, the thing is, the thing is, though, and, and, and you know, there are a shitload of promotions and, and women's promotions in Japan at this time. So, you know, I mean... There, there obviously is a demand, I would and, think. Well, and they're all doing pretty okay at this time still. Yeah. I mean, some just okay, but, you know, All Japan Women has fallen a lot. But, you know, look at these crowds compared to what the women's promotions do most of the time now. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty impressive, Al, when you look at it. I mean, this shows you how how much women's wrestling in Japan, the uh, perception and the fans opinion of it was so far ahead of the time when it came to the U S yeah, really was. I mean, we're just, you know, we're now recording this uh, just a couple of days after the NWA's empower pay-per-view, but yeah, the the all women's empower. Okay. I was going to try and roll my ass. Empower. Eartha Kitt, which should, uh, well, too bad she's not with us anymore, but yeah, she'd been great for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's just amazing to see the success of, of, uh, these promotions in Japan and how it spawns so many other promotions, you know, based off the success of, of all Japan women. It's really shocking to see that now to, you know, now 23 years after to see how many, full-time women's promotions were were running in Japan uh, compared to what's still going on in the United States, let alone what was going on back then as it regards women wrestling. It's it's a definitely a different culture. Well, you know, we, we have, we had our own type of deal over here, you know, Shimmer. I mean, they praise Zach. I mean, Shimmer definitely, you know, was the trendsetter and showing how to, you know, run a successful women's wrestling promotion and influential and look at all the people that started promoting women's wrestling Jet after Fight, Shimmer, WSU yeah. 
Um, I'm forgetting a bunch all of a sudden. Well, yeah. But, yeah. but we still, you know, here in 98, you have how many of these? These are full-time promotions, correct? You have these, half a all dozen, yes, that we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, in the U.S., even the successful ones are running, what, a couple of shows every few months or maybe maybe more than that but still well, now definitely with covid but yeah, yeah before it was not a regular thing so to speak i guess shy may have been the most regular uh women's wrestling thing it probably was when it was running yeah um it, it had to be one especially once well there were a few reasons for that the first one is that shine initially the idea was you had this kind of shimmer adjacent promotion where oh wait a second lexi fife is bringing in a bunch of women to shoot customs their travel and their hotels already paid for why not do a regular wrestling show that you can sell tickets to and sell live reviews of yeah and they would usually piggyback off of the of all well that was later that was later towards the end it they started doing evolve double headers mainly in new york yeah, which was, which also included one of the weirdest sites I've ever seen, which was I'm trying to remember if this was me walking into the show late or me tucking out into the lobby for something. But oh no, it might have even been after the show. I think it was after the show. So while ev- I think it was after the show, while people are going to buy merch from everyone. All of the shine women are just sitting on a bench waiting to get paid. Mm. It was very weird. But anyway, back to this. Um, something that's nice, though, about looking at all these promotions, though, is you have a half dozen of varying quality. They all have very distinct identities. Which is always good. God damn. I mean, we had, we've had eras of, of U.S. independent wrestling where everybody's trying to be the same. I mean... It's great to have the variety in wrestling promotions. Absolutely. Everybody can't be Ring of Honor. Everybody can't be PWG. Everybody can't be, you know, whatever. And, you know, I mean, find your identity and work work to that strength. Don't try and be something you're not. And and Al, you, you know this well. There have been some independent groups in the South that haven't embraced that they're from the South and tried to be the super indie, and that did not work out for well for them at all. Are we talking about promoters whose names rhyme with Larry Gam? No, I'm not mentioning okay. anybody by name. <laughs> but but you know, but to their credit, I mean they. I'm not mentioning them, but they they've been successful. So oh, they've they, drawn and stuff. Yeah, you can't take that away from them. But I'm not mentioning nobody. But but I'm not mentioning by the name. But Al knows probably who I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just the idea is to figure out what is going to generate the most revenue. Uh, And uh, is it asses in seats or is it views on YouTube or various streaming services? And and the answer always is you're going to generate more revenue from someone physically buying a ticket to come to your show. Well, here's the thing, though. What led to this discussion just now? Women's wrestling. Where do you make the money in women's wrestling? Video. True. Well, point. That's the one. That's the different one. That's we're the, talking, I'm that's talking the right. No, I, I understand, but it's become pretty clear. You know, look at title match wrestling for crying out loud. That what makes money, for better or worse, for both wrestling based and other reasons, 
you if you're doing all women shows or all intergender shows or whatever, you know you can make good money on YouTube, on streaming deals with Pivot Chair and everything. You know, like you know you are going to get those views. Right. So you can budget differently because there is that higher ceiling because whether it's fans that are just starved for more women's wrestling, whether it's dudes or women who fetishize wrestling, whatever it is, whether it's people in countries that don't have porn who fetishize wrestling, you know, there's all this different stuff, which let's be realistic on the videos that end up with like 25 million views. Not all of it's probably wrestling, unfortunately, which I say, unfortunately, because if you're, you know, learning your craft, I'm sure you'd rather be appreciated for your wrestling. But still, it's it's what makes money. You know, that's that's the I, I don't know if the exception is the right way to call it this at this point. But, you know, it, well, look at early ROH, though, on the you know, on the other hand, where it quickly became apparent that their idea of running the live shows as at least mild loss leaders was not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting to look at look back at the Jochi scene in 98 and how all these promotions are doing good when, I mean, the problem is it's not too much longer after this where the bubble burst and we have a lot of problems in these promotions. So Why did yeah. the bubble burst for all of Japanese women's wrestling, though? That's what I don't get. C- wrestling's cyclical nature, Bix. It happens. Good lord. Yes, but for various reasons. For various reasons. I mean I mean it's just who knows? I guess people just got tired of it or you know, it's just the way it is. It's not like they were I don't, I don't think it's not like they were doing a whole lot of things differently than what they were doing, but it's time you know, it was time to, for some people to move on to the next thing and maybe they weren't attracting that next generation of girl fans you know and kind of like we're we... wrestling kind of like we're wrestling as it now with people under the age of 35 here well and also even in japan with the women like you know we're seeing promotions that have different identities and stuff but something something people need to understand is though even though stardom kind of had the biggest western name and is the one that bushy road bought stardom is at least before the sale was not necessarily the most successful women's promotion in japan I guess it would be Tokyo Joshi Pro, right? Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. And they have different audiences, too. You know, stardom is mostly a vaguely creepy dude's audience. Um, <laughs> and I say well, that, and, I, and I, don't, I don't even say that as a generality. I say that because, you know, the, the episode of The Wrestlers, you know, Damien Abraham show that went, you know, the we're talking to Chris Wolf and the other foreigners there and how it was frustrating. I mean, especially for someone like Chris Wolf, who's not attracted to men, it probably comes off even more off-putting than it would to the others. But, you know, just how it was kind of frustrating. But the a lot of the other promotions, you know, whether it's um, Gato Move or Tokyo Joshi Pro to a degree or Marvelous or Ice Ribbon especially, you know, they they target female fans, and especially younger female fans, a lot more than Stardom does. Yeah. All right, let's go to Lucha now, and we have Triple uh, A, Triple A at first here. Pentagon, Pentagon 2, has turned Rudo and Triple A on Duro y Directo. 
which was the TV show that uh, Triple R was uh, involved with at this time in many ways, as Doro E. Directo was actually working on Triple A shows, mass wrestlers and the gimmick and the like. And uh, he turned on them and Octagon on September 3rd in Toluca. Pentagon destroyed Octagon early in the show, but Octagon still came up for his main event, challenging Abismo Negro for the Mexican national middleweight title. Pentagon continued to help uh, Abismo, and Rudo referee Torrantes ignored it. But Blue Demon Jr. ran in and kicked uh, Abismo low, and Torrantes DQ'd Octagon for outside interference. Now, results here are Hijo de Moicano and Moicano number one over Arachnophobia and Bat Blue. Always love that name. Nino de la Cale, Oscar Sevilla, and Venom beat Cuerno de Chivo, Espantapajaros, which was the Scarecrow, and Jose Ramona about his qualification. Directo, Duro, and Pentagon 2 beat El Führer. Yes, El Führer, Vix. Heavy Dracula and Sheba. Is that's, that's not Shima with a typo, is it? No, it's Sheba. I forgot who Sheba is. One of the many gimmicks that, you know, would be in this era, Triple R. Um, I'm trying to remember who's in the gimmick. If it's even somebody, it could be a local. Uh, looking now, uh, Sheba is Sheba. Heavy Dracula will become Cuervo, and El Fure is El Fure. Okay. So there, there you go. Okay, and, and then Shiba we have is a Japanese wrestler though. Yeah, but it's just Shiba. Yes, that's all Shiba was. Um, Los Vipers, Cibernetico, Literal Shot, Manaco, and Psychosis Two, be uh, El Corbarde, El Sanguinario, Sangre Chicana, and the Panther by disqualification, and then Abismo Negro of Octagon by disqualification to retain his Mexican national middleweight title. Well, that's definitely a 1998 AAA taping. Yep, Duro E. Director. Then we have CMLL, and this is an interesting story. A story behind the attack of bossy lucha reporter Javier Munoz by CMLL referee Baby Richard apparently took place because Munoz wrote something on September the 4th criticizing Richard for not wearing regulation referee outfits. Munoz at the Rio Mexico offices later that day to interview a boxer. Then Baby Richard saw Munoz coming out of the elevator and then attacked him. They broke it up, although the magazine ripped on another similar referee for who was walking with Baby Richard and initially just watched Richard pound on the reporter until others came to break it up. The magazine is also claiming the fight that Richard destroyed a thousand dollars worth of photo equipment. However, Paco Alonso has now banned Munoz from covering any CMLL events, and Brazo de Oro, who is the president of the CMLL Wrestlers Union, is threatening to withdraw the 140 CMLL wrestlers under his office auspices from commission auspices. I'm trying to figure out what that last part is supposed to mean. <laughs> yeah, I was confused too. But, uh. It feels like mid paragraph Dave got b the magazine Boxy Lucha confused with the Boxy Lucha con Commission. Right? That's the only thing that makes sense, <laughs> I think. Who knows? But, um. Vix, uh, just be just be on the lookout whenever you go to a wrestling show, because hopefully uh, somebody won't be attacking you for anything you say about him. I'm just <laughs> glad I never said anything about whether or not Drake Wirtz's referee outfits were regulation or not. <laughs> well, they were always tied. I know that. But um, wow, taking a little too, taking that a little 
too much to heart, wasn't he, Bix? Baby Richard? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> wow. Oh, that's a crazy story. All right, the main event of uh, the Arena Mexico show on September the 4th. We have uh, Amida Torres Jr., Mascara Onyo Desmila, and Apollo Dantes. They got destroyed in a terrible beating from the Bariquas and their affiliates of Kevin Quinn, El Bariqua, and Ricky Santana. With the Puerto Rico team disqualified in two straight falls, leaving the Mexicans laying to set up this week's rematch. Supreme Final saw Io de Santo, Fuerza Guerrero, and Villano Tercero beat Negro Casas, Felino, and Shocker. Although for a second week in a row, they teased problems with the Santo Fuerza team as they feuded on and off for years. And they worked together in the ring so smoothly, they were almost born working against each other. The commissioners at the show, and also on September 6th, the ring heavily enforced the rules. And whenever wrestlers started brawling outside the ring, the commission ordered them to get back in the ring. Well, that may go with the Bronze de Oro thing, Bix. Hmm. Now, were they enforcing so now we, whether or not the referees were wearing regulation clothing, though? <laughs> I don't think so, but I mean, this sounds like what Dave was uh, alluding to earlier. In classic Maybe. Dave. He got the story, but he didn't have the context. Until he did this, he had the context. So he probably Maybe. talked about the two different instances. Who knows? But anyway, the results of this show, Brandon, not Loki, and Kid Guzman over Rico Latino and Rios Vios. With Kid Guzman being the future Tigre Blanco and Rico Latino being the future Averno. There you go. Mascara Magica and Super Kendo over Arcanjo de la Muerte and Hako Negro. Blue Blazer number two, Bix. Who Bill was? Lafon. That's right. La Piera and Mr. Aguila defeated Bupanter, Satanico, and Ultimo Guerrero. That's a match. Then Santo Fuerza and Vierante Cerro over Felino Negro Casas and Shocker. And Apollo Dante, Samila Chavez Jr., Mascara Negro Samila over El Perico, Kevin Quinn, and Ricky Santana by disqualification. Yeah, and you can definitely tell the roster is a whole lot better shape. Here in 98. Uh, uh, yes. From what it's been. And uh, yeah, Phil LaFont is Blue Blazer number two, folks. Interesting run for him. Wasn't he also Blue Blazer Jr.? Has a, has a few with Ultimo Guerrero in all this. So there you go. Such a weird, right. random thing. And Mr. There. Aguilar. Yeah. Trying to, no, see, yeah, yeah. trying to see if there are any pictures on Lucha Wiki. Yeah, there's okay. Is that a, yeah? There's one photo, one action photo. Where, yeah, he's dressed like the Blue Blazer, covering Blue Panther. Yeah, well, it's a natural feud there. Sure. Um, now September the sixth at Arena Coliseo, we had Ringo Mendoza, forty-eight years old, beat El Signo in a Caballero contra Caballero match. They were building a match as Mendoza's thirtieth anniversary turned pro and it drew a big house. We had no official attendance, but here's the results. Fugaz and Jeke, Heke, defeated Fletcher and Stranger. And Fletcher I'm and not Stranger. even going to ask which Fletcher that is. It's just Fletcher. Uh, Americo Rocco, Dr. Borman Jr., featured Dr. Equis, and Rico Latino over Alacrande, Durango, Maranegro Jr., and Olympus. Bestia Savaje, Black Warrior, and Scorpio Jr. over Angel Azteca, Blue Blazer number two, and Tigre Blanco. Dr. Bennett Jr. No, wait, then I got the Kid Guzman thing wrong then. Wait, who's Kid Guzman then? Or were there two Tigre Blancos? There are two Tigre Blancos. That's right, that's right, that's right. And then uh, we have Wanda, Barrico, and Satana over Emilio Chavez Jr., Shocker, and Tenebos Jr., and then Ringo and Resigno in the hair match. 
So there's that. Panico, Juan Manuel Mar, has replaced Jose Pinono Medina as the matchmaker for CMLL. And he's still in power. <laughs> Not necessarily the matchmaker, so to speak, or booker, but he's still in power in the promotion. Yep. I think to this day. So, But he's been on and off booker for years. Yes, so. and I don't think there's any video of him as a wrestler, but... Yeah, there is. Oh, there is. There is. Okay. But at least from later years, Lucha fans would know him best from TV, at least, as the boss of the Capos that they would meet with in skits and stuff. Yeah, and there's, there's stuff of him. He was, I mean, he was a mid-card type of guy. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't a star, so but yeah, there's there's matches of him that's on, that's out there for sure. All right, Dave said there's some talk that Phil LaFon and Mike Lazansky will be heading here as a Canadian tag team. Well, the problem is with the economy the way it is, how can they make any money working there? I guess oh, Dave Phil doesn't Lafon's know that Phil LaFon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess he doesn't know that he's for the Blue Blazer number two. <laughs> Good job, Dave. And then Super Lucha's really blasted by Mr. Aguilar and Vion before for appearing on America Television without their mask, without losing them in a mask match, and finally they met Skinner and tradition. They also congratulate Rey Mysterio Jr. and Pantera for standing up to the pressure of American promoters and not taking off their mask when asked. Okay. First of all, <laughs> there's clearly some politics going on here because the Viano thing was like two years ago. Whereas yeah. the Aguila thing just happened with him appearing as Poppy Chulo. Yes. So this feel this feels like Super Luch is feeling like they had to include the Viano thing to both sides of the situation. Well, I mean, this, there's always political stuff going on in these magazines, as you could tell from what we just what we've been talking about. Is Ernesto in charge of Super Luchas yet? Uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so no surprise there. <laughs> so, yeah. So, oh, Pantera, I guess, was asked by Bruce Pritchard or someone like that to unmask? I would guess, yeah. And Ray... Had anything happened yet at this point? No, we're, you know, early in that game. But they want him to unmask, though. Yes. Which... I mean, that's, I mean they, they wanted him to do it well before he did it. Can we just say for the millionth time... That deciding that all the luchadors should unmask, even if they ended up mostly avoiding it, is one of the most insane. And I mean, the WWF wanting to do it, too. It's just insane when you think about the merchandising and everything. And like I've said before, and I think you agreed, if WCW knows how to merchandise the luchadors, I'm not convinced that High Spots exists. I, I, I get the grand scheme of your point. You know, like... What did it, most of us of that era first know Mike Bikikio as? As a guy who sold lucha masks. And he was the first guy to really do it in any kind of volume online. And I will always be convinced that WCW letting, you know, that void open uh, gave him that opportunity. Yeah. It's very possible. Absolutely. Who knows? But my point being, though, there was such a void that, you know, High Spots becomes this big business and everything, too. So, just, but the idea is, like, you have all these colorful mask characters, and Ray and, you know, and Hoovy had people who were over. Although, Hoovy got more over after he lost the mask and probably was someone who was better off losing the mask. But, like, I don't get, 
I don't get how all these guys even like, oh, the whole, oh, you need to be able to see them emote. Like they have no way of doing that otherwise. Or, well, I mean, yeah, and well, I mean, and like there haven't been successful masked wrestlers in the U.S. anyway. They, well, I mean, it's like you're talking about. That's all you got to say. I mean, they, I don't think they wanted to go. I mean, they wanted to have. They wanted to have, you know, the Mexican fan base, but I don't think they really wanted the Mexican fan base. They wanted their mm. money and support, but they didn't. I don't know. It's it's a weird deal. But anyway, IWRG, December 6th, showed Nakapon had a Japan versus Mexico 12-man match for what was billed as the fourth annual High Power Cup or Copa High Power with Pantera, Shaka, Mr. Niebla, Starboy, Solar, and Miki Segura represent Mexico. Going up against, listen to this team, folks. Magnum Tokyo, Shima Nobunaga, Yoshiro Tajiri, Saito, Yoshushi Kanda, and Sumo Fuji representing Japan. Ending when the Ebla made Tokyo submit to a Boston Crab. Boy, would it be nice if we had some 1998 IWRT TV, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. That matches something else. The stuff that's out there pretty much starts with 99. So, Wow. Now, this would be actual Mr. Niebla or, or Mr. Mexico, Mr. Niebla? Um, I'm thinking this is probably Mr. Mexico, Mr. Niebla at this time. Okay. Huh. That is... Because they haven't done that. Match. That match has not happened yet. Right, right, right. right. Huh. So, wow. Yeah, that, that is loaded. Japanese team is something else. So is that a Cybernetico or is that a yeah, just a 12-man? It is a Cybernetic. Jeez. That's a heck of a lineup. No. Yeah, the only 98 yeah. stuff that's out there is the stuff that aired on uh, on Gaora in Japan, right? Mm-hmm. And the 98 stuff is actually IWRG and not Dragon Gym, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And we close out on Monterey in the September 6th show. We have Pantaro. Rafaga de Oro and Submuñeco over Diluvio Negro 2, Io de Diablo and La Mascara. Mascara de Namased, Pepeñada Escalada and Super Crazy over Antifaz de Norte, Silver Star and Super Parka. And then our main event, Los Headhunters. Teamed up with Perata Morgan to beat Brazo de Plata, La Parka and Mascara Sagrada in your main event. So, there you go. Yeah, I noticed that uh, Lucha DB has him as L.A. Park, I guess, to distinguish it them, even though he's yes. using the name for a few more years after this. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the reason why. Yes. But, well, there you go. Some of these names just are on every Arena Coliseo de Monterey show for like, years. Well, that's, there, there's a lot of locals, yes. I know, but, you know, Deluvio Negro. Oh, yeah, they're local. Antifa, I mean, Silver Star. Yeah. Any of the others? Well, so wait, is this the Hijo de Diablo from... Uh, same one. This is the one the, from Mexico City. It's okay. the famous It's the famous one, yeah. Okay. That's uh, what I was curious about. And, yeah. Um, is La Mascara the old Mexico no, City no, no, one? No, 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 no. No, I mean... I know it's the not the Alvarado, the... but I mean the previous Mexico City La Mascara. Uh, I mean, it's possible. Who knows? That's a common name. Yeah. But anyway, all right, well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime, so we'll play some great 1998 commercials to come back with a condensed halftime because, well, just come back for halftime. We'll explain it. And then after that, uh, we'll come back and Al rejoin us 
And then we'll talk about uh, all kinds of stuff involving ECW and uh, their tour in the Mid-South Territory and uh, Atlanta TV situation. And then Al's thoughts on his time in Mid-City Wrestling. And we'll talk about Burt Prentice. All that more after the break. Timeline, a Dateline special, is sponsored in part by Little Caesars, featuring our authentic 1959 recipe, Pizza, pizza. Well, well, look at you. You are one good-looking pizza. Me? No, my friend. You are a good-looking pizza. Please, don't be modest. Look at those toppings. Why, my toppings? Forget about it. Look at your toppings. Pepperoni, green pepper. Wait, wait, is that onion? Yeah, I got a little onion. Yeah, kill it. Well, look at you, Mr. Ham. Oh. Mr. Mushroom. Mr. Could you possibly fit any more pepperoni on me? Oh, stop. Get in the bag. Get two Little Caesars pizzas featuring our authentic 1959 recipe and three toppings for just $10.99. Pizza, pizza. I always tell my clients, start with a joke. And the squirrel said, I don't even like nuts. See, it's about comedy, not content. You know, people think that Kinko's will help them stand out because they can do anything in color. Give them the full color polish, whoopee. Color's not funny. Look, you are creating an indelible image in your prospect's mind. Kinko's, great news for small business, bad news for Maury. Lemmings. So they are lemmings. At $189 a month, why wouldn't you lease a sporty new Saturn coupe? who've bought homes through a Century 21 office tend to sleep better at night. Maybe it's because we're the number one real estate sales organization in the world. Or maybe it's because our agents have so much experience. Or it might just have something to do with the fact that when you buy a home through a Century 21 office, you can get an ADT security system installed free. Maybe that's why so many people are sold on the power of Century 21. Hi, sweetie. Hello. Got your new litter. It's not Fresh Step, but it was on sale. How lucky is that? Oh, you like it, huh? Cats know what they like in cat litter. Only Fresh Step combines borates and special absorbents for unbeatable ammonia control. Okay, you win. <laughs> Happy? Epic movie making, Newsweek. Spectacular and timeless, Rex Reed. Fantastic offer, Sprint. Switch to Sprint and Titanic on video cassette is yours. Titanic, a classic tale you're free to watch anytime you want. Switch to the best long distance and we'll give you a certificate for the best movie of the year. Call 1-800-PIN-DROP for details. The average workday lasts longer than a few hours, but the average pain reliever may work a few hours and quit. Aleve works all day with just two pills. It would take eight Tylenol to do that. Two pills, all day relief, works for me. 
Step one. Hey, what are you doing? I'm just watching some home movies. Oh, look at that little ball of dough. Is that you? You got a very good eye. That is uh, me. And look over there. That's you. I, uh, Remember this sauce made from vine ripened tomatoes? Sure. 100% real mozzarella. That's beautiful pepperoni. This just brings back a lot of memories. I'm flooded. You know, we grew up so. <laughs> crying? No, oh, it's the onion. Really? I can see you tearing up. No. Get two Little Caesars pizzas featuring our authentic 1959 recipe and three toppings for just $10.99. Pizza, pizza. Hey, Parquet, what's the word? Better. Better? Aren't you supposed to say butter? Better. Butter. Better. Look at how you melt. Just like butter. Mmm, you really do taste better. Butter. New Parquet. Now the flavor says butter. even better. As a fruit, this is what you live for. Ocean Spray Fruit Audition. Take one. How are you, partner? So you're from Georgia. That's right, y'all. I wish I came from the town of Con. Your driver's license says you're from Queens. Sure, there's rejection. We're looking for Georgia peaches. Give me a break, will you? Introducing new Ocean Spray Wellfleet Farms 100% Juice Blends. We only pick the best fruit. There's a lot of tears. I'm a Georgia peach. But you can't make a great juice without shedding a few tears. Where are you from, pal? Security. New 100% Juice Blends from Ocean Spray. We only pick the best fruit. Live next Sunday, the biggest Emmy show ever. 50 years of television in one night. Wow. The 50th annual Emmy Award. A celebration of television. We didn't expect to win this tonight. Including the top 10 TV moments of all time. And this year, Whoa. who will win and enter television history? And the Emmy, Emmy goes to... Emmy's 50th next Sunday on NBC at a special earlier time, 7, 6 Central. You can have it all. At least that's what this man claimed. Tens of thousands saw this infomercial and put millions in his hands. What did they get for their money? NBC Nightly News Tuesday. He coached her to victory. Then he betrayed her. He raped me. An NBC world premiere motion picture. Race Against Fear, Monday at 8, 7 Central. All right, so if you listen to the last segment our Lucha segment that we did. Uh, you may have heard me allude to we're not going to have a traditional halftime. Now, we had to record the Lucha because uh, we haven't done it yet, so that had to be done. But we're not doing a normal halftime this week because uh, Bex has had quite the interesting uh, past few days thanks to Hurricane Ida, as if people have not watched over the this past week or so. Hurricane Ida did major damage in the south and then trickled up north where it did a whole bunch of new damage with tornadoes and flooding and, and tropical it, storm i think technically it, it was a tropical storm when it touched down here yeah but bix being you know in in his area he's at in new york in brooklyn i mean they had a lot of uh flooding there and bix where he lives uh it was on the basement level and there was some flooding so bix has had quite the Interesting week, haven't you? Yes, yes. My roommate, my roommates are, are have stayed in the apartment because the upstairs was mostly fine. But uh, yeah, so th- thankfully, like mo- like the all the drains on the outside and stuff worked. So like, I'm better off than a, a lot of people who got flooding. But it, uh, we had some existing pipe issues that they had still been trying to fix, and then this kind of snuck up on everyone and water was pouring out of light fixtures and stuff and all that it appears to be the it appears to be an issue with the uh whatever the pipe that drains the water from the roof deck on that side of the building and gravity means that it causes worse issues the further down you get 
So like, for example, our main bathroom is right above where I've had my issues and it's during these last couple big storms has had its own leaks, but not as bad. Yeah, so luckily we got all pretty much everything done but Lucha before that happened. Yes, and most of my stuff's okay. It was only about an inch of water. I threw a series of events that included getting double-charged for moving bin rental and then not returning them because of that and the company going out of business. I still had moving bins from a couple moves ago that I've been using when I moved. And first out of laziness and... Well, also not wanting to pick out more furniture yet because I had more space now. I just left a lot of stuff in and on bins and all that was on the other side of the room, which was not having any issues with the ceiling opening or anything. So the vast majority of my stuff is okay. Like I did even check like my TV is okay and stuff. Haven't checked my PlayStation yet because there was some water that was leaking like, kind of over there. Not as much as the other areas, but uh, I'll need a new bed. I'll need a new chair or two, but that, that I mean, that's about it, thankfully. Yeah, that's that's good. That's there were good. a few records that were in a box that I forgot was on the floor. That some so Thankfully, the ones that were less salvageable were some cheap, like, not great condition ones that I had gotten when I first started buying stuff on Discogs. But most of all, that stuff's fine. All right. Well, that's good. That's good. I do want to talk about a couple of things, though, before uh, we get off this segment. Uh, one, if you heard us talk about uh, what we heard Bix talk about last week during halftime about the Steve Carino, Kobe Carino match. I finally watched that match and I thought it was tremendous. I thought the, the, the work was great. I thought the storytelling was fantastic. Uh, the stuff after the match was amazing. I thought that... Um, Stutzy and John Schuyler, and they did a tremendous job of the announcing, telling and, uh, with the, with uh, Jake Hammermeyer too. Yeah, and uh, just just great stuff. So IWTV, everybody go watch that. It's it's, it's a must see must see match for this year. Mm-hmm. So do that. And uh, we had another member of the wrestling uh, Twitter family pass away at a very young age uh, this weekend. Uh, Seth Hansen. Who, um, oh, God, I missed that with everything that was going on. Yeah, Seth Hansen, who uh, has posted a lot of stuff over the, the, the years on Twitter, wrestling, I think wrestling the way you remembered or something like that was his deal. So his tw- he deleted his Twitter as far as I, I see, because I don't think it was, I never saw his Twitter handle anymore. So he, re- he passed away due to uh, upper respiratory failure at the age of 37 years old. Uh, just too young. Too young, so uh, we definitely want to send our best wishes to his family and friends on that loss. Yeah, Seth did a lot of uh, great research. I mean, I go to newspapers.com and I would see stuff that he he had clipped and stuff like that. So he so he was newspapers like me and Al and Bix. He did that stuff too. So we had a lot in common. So yes. I hate to see somebody die so young like that. That's just sad. And we should, I don't know if we want to get, I don't think we want to get into the whole thing, but we should also mention, because even though we didn't know or, you know, we have a bunch of mutual friends, including, of course, our dear friend Dave Prezak. Uh, we probably should mention the unfortunate oh, of my uh, Shannon Spruill, better known as Daphne. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, 
That was tough Wednesday night. Um, I know you had your own thing going on Wednesday night, but the yeah, fact... Yeah, I saw the tweet, the, I saw the initial tweets about it, like, I want to say within, like, five minutes before everything got bad. Here. Yeah, I, um... I actually went, I mean, I went into the Instagram at the beginning to see what people were talking about, because I couldn't understand what was going on. And so I went to Instagram, and then I saw what she was talking about. So, oh my God, this this ain't good. So I immediately got off that video quick, because I mean, you just never know when people are like that what they might do. And sadly, she passed away the next day. And uh, just, just wow. I mean, that that's just so sad. And man, just to 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 go public like that and just wow i mean i felt really bad for all her friends in the business that were just pleading for her to help you know to get help and to you know just stay calm and then you know i don't even want to speculate what happened because we really don't know what happened i you know i guess we have our ideas but yeah that's just just terrible just terrible and like i said on twitter you know she she got over in WCW on her own organically and was one of the, you know, the hottest acts in the company. She was fantastic in her role, doing something that was a kind of a revolutionary gimmick at the time, you know, for women, and was definitely an inspiration to a lot of the, the younger girls that was watching wrestling in that time. And uh just everybody I've talked to talked about, you know, what a sweetheart she was. And she just had a, she's had a lot of problems. She's had a lot of things in her life that has really affected her. And, um, I know I saw somebody said that she had bipolar disorder and all that type of stuff. And it's just, I think it was April Hunter that mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, April Hunter was like, right. Like want to write a book or something, you know? I mean, it's just, uh, just sad. It's so sad. That somebody goes through that that much pain, so we definitely want to send our best out to her family and friends as well. Um, so tough loss, absolutely. So on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go back to the U.S. and hit the indie scene, and we begin with Extreme Championship Wrestling. As it turns out, ECW is on WATL TV in Atlanta in a 1 a.m. Saturday night slot being moved to 1 a.m. Friday on September 25th. Confusion with the programmers that ECW has paid programming on the station. I remember this. The the program guide on DirecTV at the time had it listed as paid programming. <laughs> Not ECW wrestling, but pay programming. Isn't that great? <laughs> but, I mean, here's ECW in Atlanta. ECW TV in Atlanta is is almost like ECW TV in New York. It's, it's bounced around from station to station. Um, it's on 69. It's on 36. It's on Sports South. It's on all these different stations. And by this point in time, I wouldn't depend on Atlanta you know, local to watch ECW since I had you know, a direct TV by this point, well over a year, almost two years by this point, And, um, I had ECW on multiple networks. I could watch it on. 
I can just pick which one. Well, but, uh, and on top of that, too, if you're just a random ECW fan, you have access to the others, especially if you're in some place like Atlanta where they're not running that often. You'd much rather watch the New York or Philly or Boston feed because you'll get more content. Yeah. But, Al, I mean, Wildside went through this, you know, as we talked about on the on the early Wildside shows where they were on 36 for a little bit and they bounced around from station to station. It's never good for for your for your product if you're moving around to station to station, slot to slot. I mean, it's just... It's it's not a help. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on what the goal of the television is. If it is to provide programming to sell ads, then I don't know, you know, uh, as opposed to trying to generate house show attendance, which Which they were. uh, ECW was. ECW was. ECW was, yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, but they're you know they're at the mercy of you know paying for time is it's it's just not a good, it's not a good game plan, <laughs> in any way shape or form and they just were trying to grow and get get their tentacles in everywhere that they took whatever they could and and as we saw in 1986 with Bill Watts that that's not a good idea expansion just for the sake of expansion, uh, without an actual plan, uh, often doesn't pay off. Yes, although Jim Ross claims, and I kind of trust him on this because he's still admitting fault, he says that it was not that they were buying time everywhere in the UWF and then the bill came due and they were screwed. He says it's that what happened is actually that they tried to do the thing like Vince did early on in some places where it would be against a percentage of in-market house shows, the problem came when a certain period passed and they never ran house shows in those markets. So the fact that he's still admitting fault in that version is what makes me inclined to believe him. But it's still, you know, still the same basic lesson. The other thing right. I find... It, kind it's, of, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, it's... Yeah, they just there. There, I really, truly think there are a number of reasons that that you know, a number of factors that led to the UWF uh, not succeeding, and and that is one of them, but not the only one. Um, but but yeah, just you know, expansion just for the sake of expansion. I mean, the, the thing that kills most businesses is growing too fast, too quickly, uh, and and in this case, uh, that that's part of the issue. And I think that happened a lot with ECW. They were trying to get, and, and in, in that time period, they needed to be big. You couldn't operate a successful regional wrestling company. So they felt they needed to get into these big cities and they were willing to do whatever it took, even if that meant taking bad deals or paying you know money now and hoping that uh, later on they would get money uh, somehow, some way. Yeah. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the TV listings well, you, okay, so while you and, 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 and they don't have they don't have one in the morning, but here's what they do have. I mean, it's interesting because WATL, which was the WB affiliate at this point in time, uh, this is what their Friday night lineup. Of course, WB doesn't have anything, but um, they had Seinfeld. This is from ten to, to one. Seinfeld, Friends, News Radio, The Simpsons, Married with Children, and Cheers. That's pretty stout. 
uh, block of shows. You know, I guess all you know repeats and stuff like but that. But of still, the syndicated a shows, block. yeah, of the shows you'd want to get syndicated reruns of in nineteen ninety eight. That's pretty much all of them. Yeah. yeah. Bang, 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 bang. So ECW, you know, they, they had some lead in there. That's for sure. But what, yeah. what were you going to say? I have always been confused as to what exactly was the distinction where if you were paying for programming, how do you get the name of the show in listings? Because, look, tons of wrestling companies were paying for time that weren't listed in listings as paid programming, including mm -hmm. ECW. So... I don't understand what the distinction is and in the other direction, too, because I feel like it's only the last maybe 10, 15 years that it's been widespread where you will see the actual name of an infomercial in listings. But yeah. I also think back to I tweeted this on, you know, a few weeks ago in a different context with the whole, you know, NFL preemption, SmackDown, adjusting for overnight ratings thing. But, you know, my dad worked for most of the 90s at Hearst Entertainment in their syndication division. And one of their shows was the futuristic adaptation of the Phantom comics, Phantom 2040, which with uh, which was animated by the, you know, the same people who did uh, Eon Flux. And one thing I remember him telling me about, I don't think this was during the original run. I think this is when it went back into syndication a few years later. So maybe even around the time we're covering here, that there were times where they had to manually go through aggregating the ratings because infomercials for the Phantom Vacuum Cleaner got mixed up in their ratings. Ah, <laughs> uh, hilarious. Yeah, anyway. All right, so let's talk about stuff going on inside the ring, and it's not good. A lot of injuries over the past week, but in and out of the ring. Bill Alfonso suffered a broken forearm, delivering a shot to either Sign Guy Deli or Joel Gertner in Calmet, Louisiana. And Chalmette. We're, Chalmette, excuse me. Chalmette. Uh, and we're Thibodeau on September the 6th with his arm in a sling. You know, you say Chalmette, Alan. I remember that on the Mid-South promos, some, they would say Calmette. So, I. It, I I've I've researched it. I all of those towns in Louisiana. I trust you. I trust yeah, you. I, 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 <laughs> I've had several people because I think I butchered it the first time I mentioned it on my podcast, and I got a few messages saying, "Nope, try again." Yeah, yeah. That's what I said. I heard it both ways. Like I said, uh, I heard it on Mid South broadcast, but good. I'm glad, I'm glad that you had the right way. So now I know. He worked Thibodeau on September sixth with a broken with his arm in a sling. He's supposed to have pins put in this week. I'm probably back working on the twelfth. Axelrod was in bad shape over the weekend with a liver inflammation and was hospitalized in Louisiana and had gallbladder surgery. He expected to return home by the end of the week and probably out for around the month. Shane Douglas' sinus exploded again ugh, and was hospitalized in Louisiana, but was fine by September the 8th. Paul Heyman suffered a scratched cornea in his sleep, apparently from scratching his eye due to allergies acting up, and had laser surgery. He was wearing a patch over his eye for a day or two. Bam Bam Bigelow had a broken wrist, apparently collapsed and landing badly while getting out of his car due to dizzy spells, which may have been complication from a recent concussion on the, uh, from the August 29th bench against Masato Tanaka from a brain-jarring chair shot. He said expected to be out about two weeks. Jesus! Two whole weeks, huh? The Bigelow thing is the scariest of them all, you know? 
And I actually had something similar happen uh, in early 99. I was in California working for Roland Alexander. And uh, my last night there, uh, they had a show and uh, we did a spot where I took a big bump and then they stretchered me out. We, you know, we quote unquote accidentally dropped the stretcher and I fell. Um, and then literally the next morning I drove back to North Carolina um, over the course of several days. But I'm pretty sure I suffered a concussion taking that bump because every time I got out of the car, the whole trip, which I think lasted three days, I was very, very dizzy. So I, I can understand, you know, reading that, if you haven't experienced a concussion or dizzy spells, you might be like, well, that sounds weird. Trust me, it uh, really, really can throw you for a loop. And and I think there, the, lately over the last several years, there's been a lot of uh, more research into the effects of concussions. But, you know, 20 plus years ago, uh, there wasn't as much info. And, and it's, it's almost impossible to diagnose a concussion unless you actually, you know, actively seek medical attention. Absolutely. The times have definitely changed for the better in that regard. Thank but, you, Chris Nowitzki. Yeah, he's, uh, he definitely has had an impact for sure. Uh, Bix, you think Pun Paul not intended. Heyman, you think uh, Paul Heyman scratched his cornea uh, not because of his allergies, because he was having a bad dream that, that the collectors were coming for him? <laughs> I mean, it's 1997, so they haven't changed the laws yet. 98. So quite po- well, excuse me, 98. Still, they haven't changed the laws yet, so that's quite possible. <laughs> and that Shane Douglas sinus thing, yes, that happened more than once. Oh, just the words sinuses exploded. That just sounds so. Horrible. I'm not even sure how that ha- what that means though. The sinus is the pocket of air in the space between the bones. Can your sinus explode? The problem occurs when bacteria or fungus grows around your sinus linings. A virus or allergen invades, or a physical irregularity exists. The sinuses become irritated, inflamed, and swollen, and the pressure causes your head to feel like it's going to explode from the inside out. <laughs> okay, so the, nothing actually exploded. It's that he's repeat. He's got chronic sinus infections, keeps getting on planes, and keeps getting in excruciating pain as a result. Almighty. Now, was it when he had the fractured palate a few months earlier? It can ru- your sinus can rupture. It's a rare occurrence, but it can rush, rupture. So, when he had the fractured palate, was that something that had to do with the sinus issues, or was that separate? Uh, I don't know. Um, they have. There's ways of of keeping that from happening. Um, like if you're flying. Uh, chew gum, yawn, suck on candy, and breathe with your mouth open. Avoid sleeping while the plane is landing. Make sure you're swallowing enough. Take a decongestant, build a nasal spray for the flight, and do not let a baby sleep during descent. So, as someone that, who's had sinus issues, when at, with the the advice I was given, I've never flown with a sinus infection. I can't, or at least an active one, because I've definitely gotten home after trips and realized I caught a sinus infection on one. But um, the advice I was always given, which has done me well, is use Afrin like two hours before the flight. There you go. Because and the thing is, though, is like, how do I say this? Pretty much nobody should ever use Afrin outside of that context or a doctor's office. It's yeah. not a good idea. 
It's atopical decongestant. The problem is if you use it at all remotely regularly, you're it's almost like the like steroid feedback loop where your body thinks it needs it and you get rebound congestion. So, yes, basically this is the only time you ever want to use Afrin of your own accord is if you're preparing to fly. There you go. Hey, Jessica Credible and Joel Gertner are both expected to be off this coming weekend since Credible's getting married and Gertner's in the wedding. There you go. Oh, that's nice. Mike Awesome actually suffered a broken ankle in Japan and will probably be back at least to do an angle to set the pay-per-view on October 10th ECW Arena show and just expect to work the pay-per-view. If he's not ready, there's a chance Terry Funk will be used in the spot plan for him. Is Terry Funk even in ECW? Uh, not as a regular, no. Is he st- even still in the WWF? <laughs> Um, we just had him working. Um, where was he working? That we IWH Japan or FNW? One of the two. IWH Japan, yeah. Okay. Team with Doug, Doug That's and right. Kabuki. That's right. Okay, so, so he's probably around. So probably not. Yeah, probably not. Now the pay per view uh, is the one that was in New Orleans. Where this pay per view may not be held at the downtime in this fall tour in New Orleans. Apparently, they didn't like the results of a site survey over the weekend. They attempted to move the show to the UNO Lakefront Arena, which is the 8,700-seat building that WF is running on September 19th. ECW sold 1,400 tickets for $50,000 on the first day they were put on sale in New Orleans. Wait, so they've put on... (laughs) So they never did a site survey, but they put tickets on sale? Yes. And which pay-per-view is this? This is, what, Anarchy Rules 98? Uh, No, it's the the October pay-per-view. What's the October 98 paper? Uh, it's not guilty as charged, is it? Uh, shit, hold on. It's um, November to Remember. The first one outside of Philadelphia. Uh, oh, no, no. No, no first one, one outside Monaco. of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Monaco was the 97, you're right. Yes. So, yeah, the first one, yeah, the, the first one outside of Pennsylvania, that's the one that they held at, at the Lakefront Arena. Yep, so they did move it. And uh, they drew 5,800. Well, they announced 5,800 fans. That also has to be the. That has to be the most, like, made. Well, well, they had just run Harrow Arena. So I, so that's that's got to be only pretty much the second time they've ever run any kind of, like, regular arena, right? Uh, yeah, it wasn't many they were running that big. Absolutely. Yes. And. Okay, yeah, the capacity is about 9,000. I was thinking for a second, wait a second, then why. Why did ROH draw less, but they had the stage and stuff? So I guess that. I didn't the thing really is, feel like it took a third of the arena, though. Yeah, the thing is, Al, I mean, you know this very well. Mid South hardly ever ran the Lakefront Arena. I mean, they mainly ran the Minnesota Auditorium because it was what? a. I mean, you could sell that building out or close to sell it out. Wasn't it more regularly at Lake- Lakefront Arena, though, after a certain point? Nope. They ran more shows. They ran more shows at Lakefront Arena in like '85, but um, they ran most of their shows downtown at the Municipal Auditorium. Uh, I I would imagine though that the Municipal Auditorium in nineteen in the late '90s wasn't uh, as, as well kept as Lakefront Arena. Yeah, uh, I think that might have been an issue. What's interesting is the seating difference is not that big because. Uh, Municipal Auditorium, I believe, in the 80s, uh, seated 7,800. So there's not that many more in Lakefront, which is interesting. 
um, because they had moved the, the the venue in Chalmette was was their weekly venue until they were drawing well enough in New Orleans to move to the municipal auditorium regularly. And uh, Chalmette building seated about 3,800. And the municipal auditorium was about twice that. And so it's only a thousand more seats. I would imagine, uh, since it's a fancier sounding venue, it's probably significantly more expensive, even just for that extra thousand seats. But they were, were probably concerned with the aesthetics and, and, and logistics of how the building was going to look on, on pay-per-view. The St. Bernard, Bernard Civic Auditorium. Yep. Chalmette, Louisiana. Still open to, and the, well, the Municipal Auditorium still open, I meant to say. Yeah. And it is in the uh, Tremaine neighborhood of HBO fame. All right, they did the Mid-South Loop here. Uh, four shows this past week were September 3rd in Alexandria. Drawn only 150 fans. Wow. Although the show was entertaining. Baton Rouge at the Centroplex drew about 850. Chalmette drew 1400 for the TV taping. And uh, the best ECW show since pay per view. And Thibodeau on the sixth drew 891. Uh, Wait was said to be a Masato Tanaka Balls Mahoney match in Chalmette and was said to be even better than their ECW arena match. The only newcomers in were Rod Price, a little somewhere between bad and average. Although Paul Heyman was high on him, and we brought him in for more dates. And the one-man gang, who put Spike Dudley over in 10-second matches the last two nights of the tour, to huge pops since they are positioning Spike as the ultimate giant killer. Gang was probably only in to put Dudley over. Well, where has where? George Gray lived for the last 40 years? Louisiana. Yeah. Yep. All right, our full results for the Centroplex on September 4th from 8.50. We had Balls and Axel beating the FBI, Tracy and Little Guido. Chris Chatty over Mike Lazansky. Spike Dudley over Big Sally Graziano. Jerry Lynn over Mikey Whipwreck. Masada Tanaka over John Cronus. Chris Candido over Lance Storm. Tommy Dreamer over Jack Victory. Just incredible over the Sandman. And your main event, Sabu and Van Damme retained over retained the tag titles over the Dudleys, Bubba Ray and Devon. So Al I'm, how are these houses? You uh, like give give everybody a uh, I guess the gist of what the Centroplex is like, and some of the you know some of the other places are. Uh, you know, I don't know how I don't know how many seats uh, Baton Rouge venue held. Obviously, Alexander is a very poor house. Uh, Chalmette, as I said, that building seated about thirty eight hundred, so it was half full. And we imagine if they're doing TV, they blocked off a portion of the seating, so that's not bad. Um, I do we know what their TV situation was in the market? And also, Chalmette is is basically it's not really a suburb of New Orleans, but it kind of is. And, and in fact, in some cases, uh, it's considered part of the city of New Orleans. Um, so it's basically the same market as New Orleans, but do we know what their TV was in New Orleans? Um, I don't remember, uh, what, what they would have had. Uh, um, I mean, eight, 800 in Baton Rouge and Thibodeau, obviously that's not ideal. And, and certainly in Baton Rouge, I'm going to guess the venue was significantly larger, but that's also not a disaster either. Um, unless the building was much larger and thus much more expensive. 
Uh, Thibodeau, I would imagine, would would be a smaller venue than Baton Rouge and probably also a less expensive market to run. So 891 is not horrible, um, you know, when you consider. So everyone's coming in. Uh, presumably, a lot of the crew is being flown in and being put up for several nights. So that, you know, that that's definitely a big chunk of change going out the door. Um, I don't, you know, also the merchandise. I uh, don't know had they been to this area before, and if oh, so, yeah. how long they, ago they, was they it? Take okay, t- so they take TV in June '98 at the Joe Brown Center in New Orleans. So you know, merch was merch was probably decent. Okay, so, I got I got the yeah. TV out. I got okay. the TV. All right, so they were on Channel 54 in New Orleans at 1 a.m. local time on Fridays on WUPL. They were on in Baton Rouge twice. They were on 12.30 Friday morning and 4 a.m. on Tuesday morning local time on WGMB, the Fox affiliate. My God, who is watching wrestling at 4 o'clock Tuesday morning? (laughs) Some people's VCRs, I guess. I guess so. So, I mean, you know, these... The numbers aren't great, but they're not terrible. Would be, I guess, my my feeling on it. You know, the best time slot they had, and I'm looking at this now. The best time slots they had were they were on 7 p.m. in Dayton on Saturday nights on Channel 51. They were on 7 p.m. in Hampton, Virginia on Saturday nights on WPN, and Albany, Georgia, 9 8 9 p.m. Saturday nights on WRKL. And Saturday nights on WPXA, Channel 14 in Atlanta in May 1998. (laughs) That Albany clearance came out of nowhere. Yeah, so they were on Channel 14 in May of 1998 before they moved to 36. Actually, they've been on 69. So I forgot about Channel 14 being part of the whole ECW Atlanta uh, trajectory. I'm also just thinking about how it's kind of surprising that the uh, Pontchartrain Civic Center wasn't in consideration for them for the pay-per-view, too. Who knows? I think think they probably just wanted to run New Orleans proper. Probably. Plus, also, it seems like they thought they could draw... Seems like they also thought they could draw a bigger crowd, because I got to think that even with the full setup, you probably can't get much more than 3,000 in the Civic Center. Yeah. All right, TV during our week was taped on the 29P Sibby Arena. Uh, they had Chris Candida versus Lance Storm. Wrestling was great. Brawl was bad. They lost it whenever they went with the brawling. Oh, all wait, the stuff Lance the... had a bad brawling match? I'm shocked. <laughs> all the stuff with the women worked. Since the former Dom Marie, now Tammy Lynn Bitch, has good facials. And Tammy Sitch is really over. They built up tons of underwear shots, including the new girl in her bra and panties, and Storm picking Sitch up for a suitcase, and the combination of gravity and short dresses gave the requisite panty shot. Unfortunately, we had to see Candido in his leopard thong briefs in front of a crowd, about 1,500 picks in East Arena, almost exclusively guys. 1,500, huh? <laughs> Sally Graziano got incredible heat for gets incredible heat for someone who has been in the ring for only a few weeks. He squashed Cronus, who was still around but just jobbing in 39 seconds. Then lost to Spike in a marathon of 13 seconds. Also, just thought of something real quick. Like, what kind of wrestling fan are you if you don't enjoy seeing Chris Candido's ass? The number of ass reveal comedy spots that man. Has. I'm straight, Bix. I'm straight. I don't want to see a man's ass. I'm straight. 
You get me? I'm straight. That's that. That's the fan. Why am I suddenly having flashbacks to the climax of Borat? Uh, not Borat. Uh, Bruno. <laughs> Tracy Smothers beat Tommy Rogers in a good short match. Rogers has the ref for being a good worker, but it's been so long since most people have forgotten just how good he is. And Smothers is one of the most underrated performers in the country. Well, I can attest to to this. Tommy Rogers was still damn good in 1998. Yeah, he was. Finally, Sandman beat. Jason and just incredible. Crowd was hot early. Credible barely worked except for quick double team spots. Jason didn't look that bad, but Sandman more than made up for it. It was kept the five minutes, so it was too bad. TV's generally been a step improved over the past several weeks. Well, that's kind of damning with fate praise, I think, at this point in time. <laughs> um, me and Bix have talked about ECW television in this era a lot. Al, um, I don't know how you mean close- how it's terrible. Yeah, I don't know how closely you were following ECW at this time, considering you were, you know, doing your own thing. But uh, boy, '98 is uh, maybe the worst year in the history of ECW as far as quality. Al, what are your opinions on that? Uh, from from what I recall, I wasn't watching it regularly, but occasionally. And yeah, uh, you're right. Um, and I, I, yeah, I just, and I don't, I can't quite put my finger on why. Cause you look at the crew and they've got a lot of talented wrestlers, but, and they've also got a lot of the three ring circus. They've got a little bit of everything. Uh, I just, you know, I wonder if things got too repetitive, uh, if something worked well, they just kept going back to it. Um, they also, some of their top guys had been there for a really, for the whole run of national TV at this point. Uh, and so perhaps just things were getting stale and they were running out of fresh ideas to do with them. Um, but God, I remember, you know, just a couple of years earlier, it was the most revolutionary, you know, amazing thing for a guy in his, you know, early to mid twenties at that time. It was just, it spoke to me in a way that the other wrestling television shows didn't. Yeah. I mean, they, they had a very devoted fan base. And they were, you know, they were defending it hard. And, you know, I went to ECW shows in 1998, and it was extremely fun to be there live. Absolutely. I mean, I wasn't thinking about the quality of it being, of being live. It was the experience. So, but you watch on TV and like, Ugh. but back then, hey, back then, it, it aged, it's aged a lot differently now. Let's put it that way. It really has. Which most of the True. wrestling in the late 90s has aged bad. I'm sorry, it has. <laughs> but it was the hottest it had ever been, too. So, you know, it's one of those things where you have to, as we've as we talked about, you have to watch the, when you watch this stuff, you, you have to consider time and place. Yes, although a lot of it wasn't that good in its time and place either. No, but, it, but, but, back then, a lot of people didn't, still enjoyed it, though, you know? So... Yeah, it was uh, it's quite the year, 1998 for ECW. Yeah. I think one thing we should stress, though, too, is things had already taken a bad turn, you know, as we talked about last week in late summer into the rest of 97. But the whole Snow Douglas thing, I think, caused a lot of damage. Well, I was there live for that, so I can tell you firsthand. Yes, it did. <laughs> um, on top of that pay-per-view being so bad, too, but that... Okay. 
everyone knows that your champion is legit badly injured to the point that at a minimum he needs to take months and months off to heal his myriad of injuries and ailments. You have someone who's gotten over big that you're putting against him in a title match at a pay-per-view before everyone knows that the champion has to go, and you make it pretty clear that you know that everyone expects that to be a title change, even though you also know it can't be a title change because the babyface challenger is under contract to WWF who wants it back. They could have done the title change, though. They should have you know, just they... done the title change and had him drop it at the arena. Yeah, you don't think WWF would have cared if Al Snow, you know, did that? No, they wouldn't. Well, he still, he worked, the, he worked at least the next arena show, too. Yeah. That was not his last date in ECW. No, it was not. I, I don't know who you switch it back to, because they, I mean, you know what you probably do? Because Douglas ends up being a babyface in, uh, no, wait a second, that was 97, the Bigelow thing. Yeah, wait a second, what is the next title program, Taz? Um, well, they're doing the, um, oh, God. After Douglas comes back, what is the next title program? I think it's Taz, right? I'm checking to make sure. I think it's Taz, it's Taz in the, in, at, the, at the end of the year. That's what I mean. Like, so, what you really do, I mean, but then the problem, well, Taz is a babyface by this point. I guess you just have Taz do a babyface match with Snow. I don't know, it's just... Not putting the belt on snow even just for a week or two. All right. Um, at the uh, at the pay per view, it's uh, Sabu, Van Dam, and Taz against d- the Triple Threat. That's the main event of November to remember. Right, and that's used to set up the title program. Yeah. So basically, I mean, you look at who Douglas, but mainly Douglas is. Uh, he's in. He's in the uh, multi men matches. Where with Candido and Bigelow against uh, Sabu Van and Masada Tanaka, he's defending a lot against Lance Storm, Sabu. Um, he doesn't so, yeah, really Doug- have a program like, and this is after they had Douglas. Does it? I mean, Douglas's first match back as a singles. You mean or period? As as a singles is September the twelfth, ninety eight against um, Storm in Pittsburgh. So he went from June the sixth. Reworked as a tag with Candido against Seven and Van Dam, and then um, I forgot that Douglas worked after the pay per view. And fucking Al Snow job the Axel rotten on that show, by the way. And then um, didn't he also curse out the fans after for doing a use sold out? Yeah, and then he didn't. He doesn't wrestle again until Pittsburgh on the September twelfth. So he's out for uh, three months. So there's that whole thing. He's on the belt is dormant. Just the whole thing is. They could have just. So so if you look at who they could have put the belt on, um, you know, if 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 they're doing a hot shot with snow, um, put it on Candido. Either if you put it on a heel, you put it on Candido. Yes. Yeah. Wait a second. You have another member of the Triple Threat who's a great personality, a great worker. And whose girlfriend is probably about to be working with you and be very popular, and is part of the office. Why didn't he just do that? And it been a, a great feel good moment for Candida, and the fans would have loved that. And, and K- then Shane could have worked as a babyface face. and feud with him. Yeah, 
you could work that whole story. You know, there's like there's there's definitely a lot of ways they could have worked it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it. If they wanted to turn Snow heel, you know, with the title to heal them up and put over Bayface, they could put it put it on Lance. They have Lance be a short term champion and and job it back. He's a natural person to be with Shane. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot they could have done. I mean, the degree to which Paul is just wrecked as a booker. How about we book these, we we put we, we put the ECW main event scene for the next six months in in just five minutes, and it's way with multiple better. scenarios. Than, it's way better than what they did. That tells you about 1990 ECW. Jesus. All right. Let's go back. Masato Tanaka missed this weekend shows the plan trip back home to Japan, but return for the following weekend. The idea of doing an explosive match with Asushi Onita seems to be postponed until the spring. Nothing is definite, but the original plan for September obviously isn't going to happen. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm thinking back to, uh, you know, 40 years ago when we're all in Chattanooga and just sitting there at the city cafe as I'm watching on the Onita match with Tremont on my phone and amazed that he actually finally had a match in the States. Yeah. Um, ECW has talked with, been talked with by FMW about bringing a crew in from December 10th to the 12th for three dates at Cork and Hall, one of which will be a Japanese pay-per-view show. Um, I don't think they did that in 98. I'm checking now as I look down. Um, I know they did it before. Yeah, they did. 12th, 13th, 12th or 13th, they did Corkin. And in fact, Douglas uh, had the TV title, he defended the world title on TV against Gato. <laughs> and then uh, Van Damme and Sabu defended the tag titles against the Dudleys. Okay. Yeah, so there you go. They did do that in 98. I couldn't remember. The, I know they did it before, but I couldn't remember 98, but there it is. And the ECW CD is scheduled for release on October 27th. Is that the actual release date? Yeah, it was Yeah, it was around that time. I remember buying it in Media Play. <laughs> and, Blast yeah, that's fast. what Wikipedia says. Um, so, you know, on the Patreon shows, and I think we may have talked about it on a main show that coincided with some of that, too. We talk about how the second volume ends up being delayed and delayed to the point that it's released after ECW has ceased running shows, which is something. But this, it sold pretty well. There was critical acclaim. The cover of Ender Sandman, which is technically Lemmy featuring Zebrahead, but has been misattributed to Motorhead, got a... Uh, Grammy nomination? Like, when you really think about it, this should have meant more. And now my question is, when it comes to the wrestling theme uh, soundtracks, where does uh, where does this rank, in your opinion, the ECW album? That was really good. Um, I, I think uh, one of the WWF ones that came out around this time was was really good, too. Um, but no, uh, look, I'm looking at the... Which one are you thinking of? The rap one? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. It's the um, one It's the one that has the um, the Rock Nation theme on there. Oh, you're just thinking of the regular I, theme okay. ones. So, yeah, the regular. Yeah. 
either full metal, so probably WWF Music Volume Two or Three. Volume Three, I think. Three is the one is. that would have come out. Volume recently. Three. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that I remember buying, and I, that might be the only one I've ever bought, aside from when Jimmy Valiant pretty much forced me to buy his uh, forty-five uh, single <laughs> at an indie show before, right before I got in the business. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did. Uh, but no, I'm looking at the track listing now. There's, you know, there's a there's a lot of good songs. Obviously, they're covers, uh, or the overwhelming majority of them are covers. Um, but the, from what I recall, they were pretty decent uh, covers. And of course, you have you know Harry Slash and the Slash Tones. Mm-hmm. How can you go wrong? Yeah, my pick for best song. sound too. My my pick for best song on there, uh, uh, just incredible steam song. The cover the of uh, "Snap Your Finger, Snap Your Neck." Snap your fingers, snap your neck. Yeah, I think yeah. I actually like that cover better than the original. Yeah, I think that was the best song on that whole thing. But that's just me. The cover of "Walk" is also very good. It is, but I'm it's a Pantera. Pantera. Uh, well, pa- I'm a Pantera it. guy, <laughs> so I'm partial to that one. That's that I I, I can't. Well, go yeah, especially when it's a, such a faithful cover. Yeah, that it's like if you're not hearing the signature Pantera sound, why are you listening to it? Exactly. All right, let's go to the south and we'll go to a promotion named the UWA. They ran Harrogate, Tennessee, on September the fourth. We have Doctor Dan over the Working Man. Oh, wait a second! Wait a second! Wait a second! So it turns out we've all been lied to about Doctor Daniel C. Rockingham just being prematurely balding. Because <laughs> here he yes. is, Doctor Dan. I guess the working man. Does he know the family man? I don't know, but yeah, I'm sure this is not actually Doctor Dan of AIW. But no, there's a there was a Doctor Dan that worked indies around that time. I remember he was he was a really funny guy. Uh, I believe, and I believe he was a legitimate doctor. Wow. Well, they didn't have to they didn't have to worry about having a doctor for the show. He's already there booked. All right, and Eddie. the working the working man sounds like it was the actual nickname of some indie wrestler. I I I can't put my finger on who it was, but I seem to recall there was a guy that worked with this crew that was the working man, first name last name, and for whatever reason he just I'm, built his working man here. I'm I'm sure Bo will uh, probably have the uh, lowdown on that one. Uh, Eddie Golden over Stan Lee, not from Marvel. Uh, Bob Armstrong over an assassin. The assassin, but assassin. Tim Horner over Killer Kyle. And Jeff Anderson team with a dirty white boy to be Dr. Tom Pritchard and Scott Armstrong in your main event. Two doctors on this show. Yes. Exactly. So uh, quite the interesting crew here in Harrogate, Tennessee. Yeah. And it's also good to see that Jeff Anderson was able to focus and win after he had to listen to Dante telling him he wasn't even supposed to be here today all day. <laughs> <laughs> Now we got Mayhem Championship Wrestling at Coleman, Alabama on September the 4th, promoted by Tim Hood uh, at the Civic Center for 155 fans. We have Eric Justice over went to a double countout with Cody Brooks. I didn't know that Cody Rhodes and TM Punk had a baby. Austin Kane, C-A-N-E, over Crowbar, K-R-O-W-B-A-R. Well, I think we found the most indie match in wrestling history. <laughs> Mike Mason over the Islander. Rex King over Ruckus, R-U-K-K-U-S. That's probably the same one on Wildside, wouldn't you think, Al? 
It very well could have been. In a dog collar match, Recon and Bunkhouse Buck defeated Jack Lord, book him, Dano, and champ, MCW champion Buddy Landell. These were originally going to be singles matches, but Landell was working with a broken arm and also had the flu. I am going to guess that Buddy was not wearing knee pads on this evening. <laughs> and then the Demon Master beat the Ranger Bull Manny Fernandez by DQ. Return dates October 24th with Buck against Landell. Wait, do we know it's the Bull, or is it possible it's Florida Manny Fernandez? Um, I'm thinking... I'm- I think it's the bull. Yeah, at that time, it it very well could have, uh, yeah, could have been the bull. He was in he was in South Carolina at the time. And Landale's here. You yeah. know, they probably may have rode together. Which, boy, imagine that ride. <laughs> but yeah, there we go. Coleman, Alabama. Interesting little lineup here of people. And then we go to Idaho Mid South. Louisville, Tennessee, the Total Eclipse Teen Club. Louisville, Tennessee. <laughs> Did I say Louisville, Tennessee? Louisville, Kentucky. Sorry. Sorry. I just had Tennessee in my mind. <laughs> Suicide Kid over Mike Sensation. GQ Mash is the third of American Kickboxer. Rolling Hard over Me Mitch Page. Cashflow and Ian Rock went to no contest. Bull peen and bull peen, bull pain and war machine number one, bull peen hammer <laughs> defeated Ots Harley and Madman Pondo. Wasn't Robert Fuller's nickname Bull Peen? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, if you're gonna have bull peen hammered, then his tag partner's gonna be Benoit Balls. And then we got uh, Corporal Robinson over Alcatraz in a Texas death match. Not to Lutador. And then our main event, IWM itself, heavyweight title. Harry Palmer retained over Chip Fairway. I'm, I could, I'm picturing like a young Nick Manawa at this show. <laughs> Very young Nick Manawa. Loving him some Harry Palmer. So a lot of interesting names on this show. A lot of your IWA originals here. And uh, Was the Total Eclipse Teen Club their regular venue? Yes. He was one of yep. them, yes. It, it was their main venue after they stopped running the Kmart building, I believe. I hope to God, and I, 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 I hope somebody will say this actually happened. Somebody had to come out to Bonnie Tyler at least once on that show. <laughs> Turn well, around, bright eyes. <laughs> well, they certainly had a regular later on who came out to a Bonnie Tyler song, but I don't think he... Uh... I don't think he ever wrestled a Total Eclipse Teen Club hero, dude. There you go. Oh, wait a second. So I looked up Total Eclipse Teen Club on Google. There's an article on a website, Louisville Punk Hardcore History. Oh, it's, there's not much to it. Um, a shoddily painted warehouse turned teen club on the Dixie Highway in Louisville for a span of nearly a year before the owner surely went under. A great number of shows took place here in the main room. Hmm. Including well, concerts go. by Faceplant. Okay. I've never heard of them. I just like the name. Music City Wrestling. Hey. Music City's first anniversary show will be October 3rd in Nashville with the Rock and Roll Express and Al Snow appearing. Burt Perennis is telling people he's be getting completely out of the wrestling business once the company totally transfers to Bill Barron's over the next few months. Excuse me? <laughs> now, before we... Uh, uh, now, I'm going to read the results and then we'll get into this. All right, so the Music City Wrestling Show of the Week was held in Lebanon, Tennessee on September the 7th at the airport armory. We had Wolfie D over Chris Michaels by reverse decision. 
Shane Eden over the Atomic Dog. Dog. Corey Williams, Master Decay Bomb over Chris Michaels by Reverse Decision. Brickhouse Brown over Flash Flanagan. North American Heavyweight Champion, the Colorado Kid, retained over Stephen Dunn by disqualification. And then we have the news about the anniversary show here from The Torch. And this information was sent in by one Alan Barry Al Getz. All right, Al. You and me just see it this time. Yeah. So let's talk about the this Burt Prentice, Bill Barron situation. What's the deal here? I I have no fucking idea. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, <laughs> uh, but well, you know what I'll say. Uh, Bill actually was the one who made the connection uh, with with myself and Bert and got me the tryout with Music City Wrestling, which led to my first full time job in the professional wrestling business as the office assistant for Music City Wrestling. Uh, and at some point over the summer was when Bill started showing up to the TV tapings. Uh, there's that clip that's on YouTube where he, uh, uh, introduces Shannon Moore when Shannon worked Jeff, uh, Jeff was working as Willow the Wisp. That's during uh, the NWA Georgia Music City feud. Right. Yeah. So I, I think they started heating that up and then, uh, Bill also worked at least one show at the fairgrounds where he came in as, as the, as the heel presence, um, representing NWA Georgia. I, you know, I really truly don't know if Bert truly thought he was going to be getting out and Bill would be taking over. I don't know whether Bill truly thought he would be taking over and getting out or whether both men were working each other or working themselves or working nobody. I really, truly have no idea. I will say that Burt Prentice, uh, who claimed to be completely getting out of wrestling until uh, in, in 1998, stayed with it uh, a good while longer. Uh, yes. <laughs> pretty much until the day, uh, no, you know, literally. until his last day with yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And this is, of all the things Burt did in wrestling, this is probably his biggest success. I mean, the city wrestling, would you agree with that? Uh, you know, at one point he had a, you know, he had the a pretty darn close thing to an a territory. He was running, as I mentioned earlier, he was running a small show on Monday nights in downtown Nashville. Uh, Tuesdays was Louisville Gardens, although while I was there, it switched to Sundays. Wednesdays was TV. Thursdays was usually an off day with perhaps a spot show occasionally. Friday was Lebanon and Saturday was the fairgrounds. So, you know, he's running shows most nights is not running. He doesn't not running enough to have a large crew. He's got a pretty small crew and it's hard. It, it's almost impossible to get people to relocate. I know at one point, Chris Hamrick was offered a job, uh, but just could not move to Nashville full time. Uh, I don't think the, the money was right. I don't think the timing was right. I don't think Chris's personal life was right. So it was, it was really hard to get people to relocate there other than a poor 27 year old schmuck who was desperate to do anything to make a living in pro wrestling, who was willing to move uh, on three days notice from Asheville, North Carolina to Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he had things going. He had a couple of sponsors. He was drawing decently at the fairgrounds 
and Louisville was decent drawing as well. And Lebanon was a smaller building, obviously, because it's armory, but it was generally uh, a, a consistently good crowd uh, that was what that was into things. And Lebanon is not far from Nashville. So, uh, yeah, it, it's sometimes hard to run a suburb of a big city and draw well. But he was doing that weekly. What would you say Bert's impact was on Nashville Actually, area real rest? quick, I think I figured out what this might be referring to. Huh? The the new the observer item. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Over the next few months, once the company totally transfers to Bill Barron's, what happens in the next few months? What ha- and at least what I've pinned down to at least from TV listings. By the end of 98, the last week of 98, the promotion in the TV is renamed NWA Worldwide Wrestling. Yeah. I'm wondering if this is just some confusion over something to do with that. Could be. It's possible, but let's get back to my question. Uh, Burt's impact on Nashville area wrestling and that whole area, what, what, what would you say he, what kind of impact he had, Al? I, you know, I mean, he kept, he kept, you know, regional wrestling alive in a market, uh, you know, in one of the last bastions of that. Um, and, you know, probably by him keeping it afloat is what, you know, is what was the impetus for uh, TNA to select Nashville uh, as their home base. Obviously, there are other reasons why Nashville was the perfect spot for TNA, but, but perhaps if Nashville had died, uh, before that time, uh, that could have altered things drastically. It, may, it might have changed, you know, the decision-making process of where to uh, originally ha- have the uh, TNA shows. That's a good point. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and Burton was up with TNA for many years as well. Uh, helped, you know, do some promoting and stuff. And what was it like working for Burt? What, what was he like as a boss? <sighs> You know all the stories you hear. I I really truly didn't experience any anything like what people must think uh, when they have heard all the stories they've heard about Bert. Um, I so his office was at his home. So pretty much uh, five days a week during the week, I would drive to his home and basically work on putting together programs, uh, answering phone calls, uh, helping format the TV and 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 plot plan for post-production of the TV, which was done the day after it was taped. It was taped on Wednesdays and we went to the studio on Thursday afternoons to do to do the post-production and running a lot of errands uh, that I did. Uh, Bert, I mean, he, he literally welcomed me into his home five days a week. Uh, he gave me a full-time job in professional wrestling. Um, uh, and you'd be surprised at not only the number of people who I saw exiting his, his uh, place of residence early in the morning, but the gender of them might, might surprise a lot of people. Uh, I'll say, don't believe everything you hear or that there's perhaps more to people than you might think. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> um, um, yeah. And, and Bert, Bert is a, is a guy who on television, he definitely, he has a presence you know, um, Music City is not as nearly as heavy on Burt as Ozark Mountain was on Burt, where basically you watch Ozark Mountain Wrestling Television, it's basically Burt and maybe a few wrestling matches sprinkled in. Well, Chris, you need to remember, though, 
a lot of the music city we have does not have the Nashville commercials featuring Bert all over them. True. The, the, the house show promos is all him. And I will tell you one, one week. Oh, I, I don't just do mean them. the house he show was... promos. I mean the, oh, heck. the Korean barbecue commercials oh, and everything right. too. Yeah. That's a good point. But I will tell you those house show promos. I had heard Bert do them, you know, week after week for a couple of months. And then uh, one week he actually couldn't make the post production on the TV and I filled in and, and I thought, you know, how hard, how hard can this be? I've heard him do it every damn week. And it took me seven takes to get uh, the really shitty version that actually ended up airing on the TV that Bert hated and let me know about it <laughs> after it aired on Saturday. Well, speaking of television, this isn't during our week. This is after our week. But we do have a clip we're going to watch of a young Al Getz with Burt Prentice in the studio from the September oh, 14th, yeah. 1998 episode of MCW. Bix, let's go to the clip. The program today. Ladies and gentlemen, the most asked question here at MCW Wrestling, how do you get the Colorado Kid t-shirt? How do you get the Wolfie D t-shirt? How do you get the Style and Shane t-shirt? The Style and Shane video, buttons, photo buttons, pictures, souvenirs, anything. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the address is there on the screen. P.O. Box 17855, Nashville, Tennessee, 37217. You mark that on your envelope. Put in $2 to cover the cost of the catalog and shipping, and we will send you a catalog of MCW merchandise. And I mean everything from the photo buttons to the pictures to the caps, the mugs, the T-shirts of your favorite wrestling stars. Order a catalog today for just $2, and that will cover the shipping and the cost of the catalog, and that will tell you everything you need to know. Over 200 videos are listed in there. Anything you want pertaining to MCW wrestling, this is where you get it. Right today. All right. I remember my... Uh, what, uh, two things about that clip. Al, your hair is amazing there, of course. I know. <laughs> and Burt Prentice, the one thing that Burt could do better than anybody else is he could sell you shit. <laughs> well, <laughs> better than anybody pitch. else at that time, and <laughs> whose name did not rhyme with uh, Ron Mest. Yes, Bert could sell you on so much shit, and he he was all, he was one of the rest promoters who always would. You listen to all the stuff that he's selling there. I mean, he's always trying to find a way to make some money. What means it's not just shirts. I mean, we're selling cups, we're selling mugs, we're selling caps, we're selling all kinds of stuff. You know, Bert was a grinder, man. He was he would get out there and he would sell, 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 and. He was trying to find a way to make some money. What a promoter does. He's a true wrestling promoter. Absolutely. Yes. And we should know, too, when we're talking about Music City Wrestling being his biggest success, we are not just talking about when it was named Music City Wrestling. We are talking about Burt's Nashville promotion from, let's say, 97 to 2001. Yeah, because when it transitioned to USA Championship Wrestling, I mean, he had a hell of a run there, too. In 2001 and into early 2002, before TNA. Yeah. I mean, they they did some, some really good business with a lot of big names. So. Yeah. And Burt recently passed away, sadly, you know, with his health issues. And uh, we definitely want to talk about Burt because, you know, we, we kid and joke and, you know, talk, talk about the Burt stories. But, I mean, Burt was a guy who definitely had 
a lot of impact on the wrestling business, especially in Tennessee, you know, for many, many years. Well, so, also, uh, I mean, think about it this way, too. I don't know if pre-TNA you have this vibrant local scene with, like, five, four or five promotions running at least weekly, if not for everything Burke did. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So there you go. Burt Prentice and Muta City Wrestling and a young Al Gatz. <laughs> yeah, how would you describe it? It's like it's kind of a mullet, but not exactly. It, it wasn't a mullet. I know a lot of people today say, oh, they look at those old pictures and say, oh, you had a mullet. It wasn't considered a mullet at the time, but I yeah, had a, a good amount of hair in the back and I was uh, I had a receding hairline up top. I will say, I, I mean, in many ways, I look younger now you than do. I did back then. You do. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's remarkable. I think and I think the weight has a lot to do with it. The um, hair has a lot to do with it too. And the hair and, and, too. And, and a lot of hair. and a lot of guys, you know, and you know, God knows I've fought, I, I had that battle as well. You know, when you have that receding hairline when you're young. I mean, I went ahead and shaved my head at a very young age because I was like, shit, you know. I know, I know what's coming. It's in my family. Let me go ahead and, t- and take it off, and that way I'm, I'm already there. But so, there's some guys, and I'm, I got good friends that are like this. They, they fight that battle as long as they can. Yeah. And uh, I mean, but, but again, once you shave your head, it, it, make, it does make you look younger. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And the thing, the thing with the shaved head is, you never know how you're going to look with it until you do it, and that's always scary. So what I did, this was, I believe, it was 2012 when I first shaved my head. I waited till I was going out of town. I was going to Atlantic City. And so I shaved my head the night before, figuring if it looks ridiculous, I'll be in a, you know, in a different city. No one will know me. I won't care. And I could grow it out over the span of five, six days. Uh, and by the time I got back to Atlanta, it would be close, you know, it would be on its way to what it used to look like. And I was pleasantly surprised by how well it looked. And I've uh, kept it that way ever since. <laughs> yeah. All right, now let's go to Power Pro Wrestling as we go uh, West Tennessee, further west to Memphis. This week's Memphis TV saw a Jerry Lawler-Billy Travis match where if Lawler won, Randy Hales would have to get in a small cage for the rest of the show. But if Travis won, Stacy would have to get in the cage. Lawler won by DQ when referee Aubrey Wayne found the chain Hales had given Travis to get the pin. In reverse decision, so Hales spent the rest of the show in the cage. All right, so now we're going to have the uh, finish of this match, and then Randy Hales having entered a cage, which is a, a treat. So let's go to the clips. Yeah, he just dumped him in the ring. Travis having a little trouble uh, getting his equilibrium back. Staggers over. Lawler. A stunner. He saw the uh, pin about to be made. He just, he just tossed Travis a chain. Yeah, look out, Jared. He popped Lawler with that thing. Oh, my goodness. Two count. He got three. it. One, two, three. Well, that's, yeah, uh, that means Stacy's going to be in the cage today for the rest of the hour. Yeah. Stacy's going in the cage. She's going to make life where she deserves. She's going to make life where she deserves 
Well, Randy, of course, we all saw what happened. We saw how the pin occurred. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, there you go. Hey, and the referee saw what was happening, too. He's got the chain. He's got the chain. He holds it up. He reverses it. He, he reverses it. How about them apples, huh? Hey, the owner, the founder, and the president of Power Pro Wrestling is about to spend the rest of this hour in, in a jail cell, it looks like. Billy, we saw the chain. Planted a chain. Stacy did. It was Billy Travis that gave you the chain back. We saw what happened. Hey, we got cheated. I'm not going no case. I'm not going no case. Randy, we saw where the cheating was occurring. I'm leaving. I'm going. I'm not going. There goes Randy Ailes. He's refusing to get in the case. Yeah. He's running out of here. He's running out of here. They. Oh, somebody's got him back there. They were about to put him in the cage, but then remembered, oh, we're about to go to commercial. All right, so they go to commercial, and then we come back and pick up where we left off at, as Randy Hales has now been back with Dave. The guys have, have left him with Dave. So here we go. We're going to get all this over again. Oh, That's the way it was. You're supposed to be in the cage. Hey! Give me some help back here. Hey, get the great team down here. Great team, get out of here. Some help. Hold on. Look out. Oh, look out. Here comes the bodyguards. And... Helping out. They're escorting Randy over to the cage. They had to put him in there. Lawler, while we were away in the break, Lawler pointed out correctly, you're the one who signed this match, so yeah, you're going to spend the rest of the show in the cage over here. Yeah, he's in there. He's locked in. They got a big old padlock on the gate there, so he is in. We got a lot more coming up. Robert Gibson is going to be involved in a match here in just a couple of minutes. And we will get that underway very, very shortly. Uh, right now. Here, uh, shut up. Here's Stacy with uh, with Lawler. Well, Dave, Corey. They're trying to keep him quiet over there, Jerry. Somehow Randy Ailes just looks natural inside a jail cell, doesn't he? I'm telling you, ever since his mind went, he should be locked up. Maybe not in a jail cell, but in a nut house somewhere. Well, he's, he's not happy about being there, that's for sure. He, uh, you know, he comes out of these big plans every week trying to get rid of me. And what he thought he was going to do, he thought he was going to have to have Stacy locked inside that jail cell the entire show. 
and mess with her. Well, it didn't happen. Now you're in there, Randy, and that's just where you belong. You sure we want that match? Now get one of your stooges out here. Let's get this match going. Yeah, we got Robert Gibson uh, set to go uh, in the uh, in this match. While Randy is just he he can shake the door all he wants, but I don't think he's going to get out of there. That's a pretty sturdy lock they've got on it. Oh yeah. Get me out of here. <laughs> he is in there for the duration. He is. He is definitely locked in there, no doubt about it. All right. Now, all of a sudden... <laughs> oh, Randy. Why Randy's bus cut there, though? It's very, it was very becoming on him there. So at least he had that going for him. And at least Lola didn't make any cracks about his haircut. So that's good, too. <laughs> Oh, All God, right, now, he could have been like, you look like Jill now, too. <laughs> Ashley Hudson, I know, lost a loosely town match or was suspended for 30 days, so he showed up under their mask as the Australian sensation. There's that. Brandon Baxter came out towards the end of the show. He did an interview about Stacy, and uh, he said that uh, Stacy is looking for some new meat. So uh, let's go to that. And Stacy, not too happy with, with old Brandon. Let's go to the clip. How is Brandon going to be a baby face within a few weeks of this? Because <laughs> it's Memphis. Yeah. Here comes uh, Brandon Baxter headed this way. Now we've got, uh, we've got a big 10-man anything goes tag team match coming up. Yeah. Brandon, Brandon uh, Baxter. Not, not one of the crowd favorites here today, apparently, huh? Well, he's completely bald. Yes, yeah, I say he shaved his head too. <laughs> well, you know the backstory to that, right? Yeah, yeah, but still. For those who don't know, the bleaching just destroyed his hair. Yes, that that is why going back to '98 or thereabouts, Brandon has always been completely bald. And it looks like young, young, it looks like young Matt Griffin here. Something, though, that I'm kind of curious to watch this promo because as good of a heel manager as Brandon was, I do think he lost something not having that blonde hair. Well, it added the heat because, I mean, he he's like a douchebag with that hair and the... the and the, the Jason uh, suit. And... The blazer with no shirt, yeah. Dave, uh, I apologize for coming out here and interrupting. I hope I don't get you too over on time, okay? But I have some money to say, and... Uh, Stacy, I know you're back there, you're watching the monitor. What I'm doing is talking directly to you, not to any of these people. We all know, you and I know, that we're together. And now the whole wrestling world knows that we're together. And it's not befitting of you to come out here and lie and say that you're happy with Jerry Lawler and that you don't want to be with me. It's just not befitting of her. You see, Dave, I was raised right. My mother and my grandparents told me never to mess with another man's woman. And frankly, I never thought I would. But you've seen Stacy, right? You know how she is, and she'd come into the dressing rooms and she'd rub up on me and, and she'd call me at home. And, and I mean, she's just hard to resist. She's hard, to, and I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist temptation. Stacy, do me a favor. Let's stop the lies. There's no need to lie. We can't live like this anymore. Let's admit that we're together, and let's go ahead. You can dump Jerry Lawler, and we can live the rest of our lives happily together. We just can't live like this anymore. We can't live like it, Dave. Well, 
I, I'm, I'm real uncomfortable even discussing this whole thing on television. I'm not at all convinced. By the way, for the record, this guy is so this good, and he's like 21 years old here. And been in the business for <laughs> like uh, seven six, years. Seven years, yeah. Yes. Of your story, either. She looks nice, doesn't she? She looks nice, right? Yeah, well, yeah, here's Stacy. I bought her this shirt last week in Florida. She looks nice. First of all, let me start off by saying Jerry Lawler wanted to come out here himself and beat your brains in, but I told him I could handle this myself. All you're doing is spreading lies. I don't know why you're trying to do this. Why don't you just come out and admit it, Stacy? Just admit it. We've already talked about it. You weren't with me in Florida. I was all by myself, and you know that, Brandon. I don't know. You and Randy are just trying to ruin Jerry Lawler, and he hasn't been able to do it so far. Now he's trying to do it through his personal life and trying to do it through me. I wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole. Okay, she's out here. Now you're going to come out and you're going to lie to the whole world again. Well, Stacey, I'll tell you this. I have proof that I was in Florida. The proof I have is right here. You didn't know I did this. But while, we, while you were laying back out in the sun, I had a little tape recorder. And what I did was I recorded our whole weekend together. Part of our weekend is on this tape, and I have the proof. That's right. I have the proof. Well, I think there's a strong statement from Stacy right there, Brandon. Let's just take a break. Let's, we shouldn't even be talking about this. Let's just, let's just take a break. We'll come back. We'll get this 10-man match going here very soon. It's an anything-goes match. Don't go away. Something I just noticed that never really hit me before that differentiates Power Pro from the other WMC shows. Yeah. The crowd is right next to the announcers. Mm-hmm. Different atmosphere. Well, uh, the whole different atmosphere. Uh, Dave notes that it appears Dave Brown is legitimately upset with direction of modern wrestling, and it doesn't seem comfortable broadcasting these type of angles. Gee, Al, you think that didn't come across by Dave in that segment there? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty clear. <laughs> and meanwhile, in Music City, we've got commercials like this. My first time... I'll never forget it, because I was so nervous, but so excited, too. I mean, I heard a lot about it and how great it was. All my friends were doing it, and I wanted to do it, too. <laughs> it was even better than I thought. And now, I do it almost every night. I remember my first time. I was... Oh, it's the star of Royal Pains. <laughs> no, literally, that's him. It's uh, Mark Fuerstein. Yeah. I was so excited that, well, you can guess what happened. Now that I'm experienced at it, I go on for hours at a time. Welcome to the Night Exchange, where hundreds of people in your area are on the line right now. It's simply the area's hottest new way for adults to safely connect with other adults by exchanging voice messages or talking live one-on-one. Take it further only if you feel comfortable. It's 24-hour-a-day fun, flirtation, or anything you want it to be. And it's as easy as picking up your phone. To wake up your senses, call the Night Exchange now. Call one of the numbers on your screen and enter code 600. Should I see if the night exchange is... We're back on? with more M... I'm doubt, I doubt it, but uh, I thought they were talking about anal sex, but that's a whole other story. All right. Uh, oh, as late... far as taking things further? 
<laughs> the first time, unless she enjoyed it. <laughs> um, late in Power Pro, Lawler put the cage Hales was in on the dolly. We don't have this. And kept spinning around, making Hales dizzy. Somehow the cage door opened, and it wound up with Baxter and Stacy in the cage, and Baxter was groping all over her. Gee, I wonder who booked that angle. Uh, Memphis ran three free shows at the Sundome, Liberty Land Sundome, not Tampa Sundome, as part of a Labor Day special from September 5th through 7th, drawing between 1,500 and 2,500 each night. Well, let's go through the results. September 5th, 1,500, free show. Uh, Lance Jade beat Bulldog Reigns. The Yellow Jacket, Kevin Lawler, beat Jason Gibson, Robert's nephew. Hmm. Derek King over Tony Fault by disqualification. Robert Gibson over Kid Wicked, Tony Williams. Streak, Spellbinder, looking like a fake barbarian, over Ashley Hudson. Well, fake barbarian with Sputnik Monroe's hair. Yes. And Lawler over Billy Travis. Now, after Derek King's match, two fans were yelling at Hales about the sheets. Hales responded by saying he likes the sheets and called the two fans Marks. That sounds like Randy. Well, we're not done with this story yet. September 6, 1900 fans at the show. Jason Gibson over Tony Falk. Yellow Jacket over Blade. Ashley Hudson over Lance Jade. Streak over Heinrich Franz Keller. Kid Wicked over Derek King with Downtown Bruno as a referee. Lawler and Robert Gibson over Bulldog Reigns and Billy Travis. Now, before the show, Hales verbally attacked the two fans from the show the previous night. Mentioned the torch and called them marks. <laughs> so it went for two nights. And now September 7th, the third straight day, the bodyguard over Derek King. Lance J went to a 15-man draw with Kid Wicked. Robert and Jason Gibson over Bulldog Rays in a yellow jacket. Bill and Neil over Ashley Hudson. Brian Christopher over the street by DQ. And Lawler and Stacey over Billy Travis and Randy Hales when Lawler pin Hales. This is not Bo as the bodyguard, is it? I don't know. It could be. Bo, let us know if it's him. Um, okay, so what else do we have here? So, Lance Jade, the only known graduate of Ultimate University. Yes. Uh, what else? Anything uh, else? Bulldog, Bulldog Rain, so I managed uh, in Wildside. That's right, yes. yes. And, you know. So worked with Heinrich uh, when he was Trey Keller uh, quite a bit. Oh, that's Tennessee. who that is. Okay. Yes. Uh, when I uh, so I mentioned earlier uh, that Sundays was an off day for Music City Wrestling uh, for uh, about five six weeks. I worked uh, Paducah, Kentucky, for Tony Falk on Sundays. He was oh, running okay. uh, shows there, and so he brought me in as the manager. Uh, I was Big Al Getz uh, in Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> How was uh, managing Paducah, Kentucky as Big Al Getz in the late nineties? Uh, they, they didn't like the Jewish man from New York very I'm much. I'm sure they did Kentucky. not. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I'm sure and those were not. nice because Bo, because Bo was usually booked on those shows. And so, you know, obviously Bo and I worked a lot together, but then he went to, uh, West Tennessee and I went to central Tennessee, but, uh, we sort of were able to rendezvous, uh, on Sundays in Paducah. Yeah. Uh, I can only imagine what the heat was like for you, Al, and some of those <laughs> places. Oh my they God. Were, they were not fond of me. <laughs> the words Christ killer never were uttered, were they? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, I knew that. that you I, weren't the Duke of New York at least. Uh, the, the worst I ever got as far as that goes was actually, uh, uh, shows in Raleigh, North Carolina, when count grog used to run his, his shows at bars, 
I uh, got a lot of uh, insensitive comments aimed at my heritage uh, there from college punks more than more than anywhere else, more huh. more than your traditional venues in the South. I think they were more focused on the New York aspect uh, than necessarily the, the heritage. Independent wrestling, something else, folks, especially in the South. Mm. All right, let's go to the Midwest. What's Alice, Wisconsin? Mid-American wrestling, Carmine Despirito on September 4th. We have, at the Knights of Columbus, we have Skull Crusher, Rashke Brown, over Farmer Vic, The Mauler, over Death Valley Driver's Own Reverend Actual Future, Barfly Mike, over Danny Dominion, of Steel Domain Wrestling, Derek St. Holmes, not t- the singer for Ted Nugent, with Quentin, over A. Steel. And shouldn't it be Derek and not Derek? Uh, yes. A. Steel, also of Steel Domain Wrestling. Scrap Iron Adam Pierce of World Wrestling Entertainment over Billy Joe Eaton to win the Mid-America title. You mean so, you should have also said a, uh, a steal of World Wrestling Entertainment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's an MAW show. Yes. Pro Wrestling oh, America. Real quick, did you see the thing I, uh, I tweeted a couple weeks ago when I was looking at the Google Trends coming out of uh, Punk's Return? The two individual cities or towns that had the most Google interest in Punk's return were Berwyn, Illinois, and West Allis, Wisconsin. Uh, shocking. Shocking that those two towns were, were the ones. Shocking. Pearls in America, Eddie Sharkey, ran September 6th in Thief River Falls, Minnesota, which, for those of us wrestling magazine connoisseurs, that was always in the magazines in the 83-84 range, just being the home of one Crusher Darso. And Crusher Khrushchev. I'm sure Rob Naylor will probably remember the exact weight that was listed for uh, one Crusher Khrushchev. Uh, They're in the River Road Casino on September 6th as Randy Gusto beat Dick Blood. And somebody doing the Dick Blood, Richard Blood deal. Beautiful Bobby, not eaten, over Kato, which was was Paul Diamond. Bobby Dean, which Kato was Paul Diamond. No, so Kato would be, uh, no, that's uh, Chris Dube. It is? At this point? If it's a midget match with, I, I don't mean to use the term. Oh, 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 okay. I got you. I got you. I got you. I, what are you thinking about like that? Okay. Well, there so you it's go. Probably, it's, it's Bobby Dean versus a little Kato then. So okay. it's, it's Bobby, Bobby Dean versus his half brother, Chris Dube, who at this point, I don't know if they knew yet that they were half brothers, did they? <laughs> well, it doesn't list it was a, a midget match, so. But, but, that, but beautiful Bobby would be beautiful Bobby Dean. And if he's wrestling a Kato. It would be Karate Kid Chris Dube. Now, this is a Minnesota match as hell. Buck, zoom off over the hater. And it would turn out that the hater was a much better human being. <laughs> Thunder Nation over Darren Davis in prime time. And Charlie Norris of Wild Bill in your main event. And then we go to the Empire Wrestling Federation on September 6th in Rialto, California at El Patio Nightclub. For 140 fans. We have the heartthrob Johnny Love over Billy D. Big Q over Crazy KC. The Corner over The Mercenary. Iceman John Bly. That's a blast of the past. Over The Suicide Kid, the California version by DQ, retained the EWF title. And Bobby Bradley Jr. and Rico Costantino beat the Fallen Angel, Christopher Daniels, and Chris Lazansky. Wait, is that Mike Lazansky's brother? Could be some type of kin there, possibly. But, uh... uh what a man. So here's... Per- Early Rico, early Chris Daniels, yes. 
and Bobby Bradley in the mix, and also uh, Suicide Kid would be Mikey Anderson, I think, right? Yeah, sounds about right. So we've got some future notable SoCal names here. I forgot that Rico had existing wrestling training, too, before WWF. So this would be this would be Jesse Hernandez and Bill Anderson's promotion, right? Yes. Al, you never worked any of the SoCal stuff while you were in California, did you? Uh, no. No, I was just there uh, for Roland, who was much further up north. I mean, the Southern California scene wasn't, you know, wasn't anything, you know, pre-PWG. I mean, you know, there were shows there, but they just, they didn't really have that the buzz. And you'll, you know, you look at the, you look at the wrestlers here, and there's obviously a lot of really good wrestlers. Um, it wasn't they, buzz, buzzing until Bassman got going with UPW, and then Rep you know, Pro, Rep Pro, and, Pro, Epic. And even then, and even then, they weren't drawing major houses. Well, Rep Pro wasn't. So no, Millennium Pro did pretty well for what it was. Yeah, and, and Epic did the, too. But the Lucha, show, well, that's later. But the Lucha shows, uh, right? And the Lucha shows, of course, forgot about those. Yeah. But no, you didn't really have much buzz for your Daniels and the like until later. Yeah, Daniels worked for Roland while I was there. Uh, so that was the first time I met him. That would have been uh, late late 98 or very early 99. Um, but uh, Roland had run a show. He had, I had a, a, a double shot weekend. And I think, I think Chris worked both nights, but he might have only worked one. And really, he picked up his buzz, I feel like, from the WWF TV matches. Well, he was he was a cut above the other guys that were working Taka and Shotgun, and it was very noticeable. Yeah. And then he did a weekend with ECW, and that was it. (laughs) Yeah. What was it that he? I wasn't necessarily that anyone asked him to, but he didn't offer to help set up the chairs in the ring, something like that. Oh, big mistake! That's how I got my job with Burt Prentice. So I uh, then this is I believe this is very true. I didn't realize when I was driving from North Carolina to Nashville uh, for my tryout for Bert, I didn't realize it was in a different time zone. And I got to the building super, super early. And uh, just so I grabbed some chairs and helped Colorado kids set up. And I I really think that more than anything else was what uh, was what got me the job. Hey, hard work. All right, let's close out with everyone's favorite world championship wrestling. The situation of Ric Flair is that he will debut on the September 14th Nitro in Greenville, South Carolina, unless the decision is made to bring him out surprised on the pay-per-view from Winston-Salem. At press time, Flair has not dropped his loss against WCW, trying out his contract, nor has WCW dropped their lawsuit against Flair. Theoretically, Flair could work for WCW, get a ruling in his favor, and immediately leave his free agent and go to WWF. Or they believe that is more theoretical legally than a possibility of something that's going to happen. WF sources claim the company was very interested in him, but due to the question of tampering, particularly with his own lawsuit out against WCW, the idea is specifically playing out scenarios and offering contracts to wrestlers on the contract to the opposition wasn't done. While they were not the deciding factor, said that comments by The Undertaker and to, to a much lesser extent Hunter Hearst Humsley regarding him being too old to play a part in Flair's decision. Isn't that funny? It's been reported that WCW was a fan flare while this case has been going on. But that's technically incorrect, as a failure to send the payment would have resulted in a contract breach, and then he would have been a free agent. 
Eric Bischoff talked about Flair on September 5th on Baltimore Wrestling Talk Show. Some of this has to be taken as working an angle. So there's no doubt Flair and Bischoff will be doing an angle upon his return. But this is what he said regarding the lawsuit. He, Mike Mooneyham of the Charleston Post Courier and Wrestling Observer Hotline, in response to an article about the situation favorable to Flair, doesn't know the whole story. He doesn't know the fact that Ric Flair has agreed that anytime Ric Flair had ever wanted any time off, that request would come in writing. So we have the opportunity to schedule his time off accordingly. His agents are being deposed next week, and we'll testify to that. Ric Flair took time off that he never asked for, that he wasn't scheduled for. We put WCW in a bind. I had to make a decision. I had to draw a line and say, okay, am I going to let Ric Flair get away with this so that 130 people I have on the contract realize anytime they don't want to show up for a show, they can just basically stick it to WCW and no show or do. I draw a line and make people realize that there's policies, there's procedures, there's agreements, and this is a business. We have to act professionally and responsibly. And I drew the line on Ric Flair because Ric Flair, in my opinion, according to his agreement and the agreement we had with his agents, acted unprofessionally and irresponsibly. And I had to draw the line. And it's a fortunate because Rick is, was, is a big-name talent. And he's a guy that could continue to contribute. But unfortunately, we're just not seeing an eye-to-eye with regard to that subject. Now, the torch comes in. It says, WCW contract dispute calls for Flair to be paid $725,000 for 1998 and 1999 with a maximum of 200 days on the road and 500000 in 2000. But a maximum of 130 days on the road. That falls within the range of what WF is paying their main eventers, with some making considerably more, but a number of days Flair would be asked to work would likely be more. All this talk could lead to WF making a last-second offer to Flair. WF may have stayed away from Flair until now due to the fear they could end up part of the ongoing lawsuits. And real quick, however everything ends up getting resolved, he is paid basically his full contract for 98. He makes over 742000 in payroll for the year. Strangely, he has nothing on the books for payroll in 99. I don't know what I make of that. That's odd. So we should yes. anything get paid in 1999? Because he has payroll again in 2000. You know, the, the, this debt is taken from part of the way in 2000. So, um, you know, it's not complete for that year, but it's very... Strange. Um, uh, obviously, though. Obviously. There was some sort of agreement in place. Well, yeah, him it to had be been for at least TV. several weeks, too. Yeah, to be on TV, because there's no way they would have done what they did on September 14th if 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 he's not available. Yes. Now, no. the... For, interestingly, though, his new contract, in when it's renegotiated in February 2000, is under a different structure. $500,000 a year base, plus 4000 per house show, 5000 per TV, 12500 per pay-per-view. And specific performance bonuses and fees for PR appearances that are in his contract. Al, what do you make of the whole Ric Flair saga here with, re- regarding Bischoff and his return and all that stuff? You know, it's, it's, I'm trying to remember you know, the, the exact details when they happened. It just seems like Bischoff is trying to make a point, even though he knows he's eventually going to have to capitulate and bring Flair back. So he's, he's it, it's weird, you know, from a, from a, chess playing standpoint 
you know what the end result is going to be. So, and, and so it's weird to still try and be on the offensive, even though you know you're going to end up bringing him back. I, I don't think there was any other real possible outcome, despite what's said here that perhaps, you know, he could go to WWF. No, I don't think he was ever leaving. I think it was just a matter of both of them, you know, proverbially swinging their dicks until the, one of them flinched. And I think all along, Bischoff was the only one that could flinch. But man, yes. I remember I remember that pop when he came back. That was magical. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's a, uh, it, it, it's a very interesting thing. And it all worked out, you know, for that one night at Nitro, for sure. And then they screwed it up not too long after that because... WCW, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Bischoff oh, had to God. poison him. Yes. And, then and to I got to sell some happened. t-shirts out of the deal. I actually printed up some shirts that said free Ric Flair. Oh, that was good. <laughs> and all summer. Placed a couple of ads in newspapers uh, in uh, Charlotte and I think a couple of other places in North Carolina and uh, made a little profit. <laughs> That's amazing. That's the, see, the Burt Prentice in you came out there. <laughs> Find a way. Find a way to to get that to get that uh, that profit. <laughs> All right, so let's go to... the lawsuit is not dismissed till January formally. Yeah, that's just a formality. I think so. Yes, because they did they did get on the first a stay uh, pending the final resolution of a separate pending case. Uh, well, excuse me, the WCW initiated lawsuit in Fulton County Superior Court in Georgia, whereas the Mecklenburg County, North Carolina lawsuit with Flair suing them had been moved to federal court. Yeah. Thunder on September 3rd drew a 3.54 rating and a 6.18 share, which is neither good nor bad based on recent averages. That'd be explosive today. Uh, so corrections and clarifications on last re- week's report. Marty Shinani actually beat Rick Fuller and not the other way around as we had reported. Because God forbid we got to have that right. There's <laughs> um, some interesting uh, Jason Powell remarks on this match. Says, Somebody told Janetti that Bill Dundee called him once his haircut back. <laughs> this is new haircut, Janetti, right? Yes. Uh, Cassie actually beat Lenny Lane and it was the best WCBT match in a while. High voltage beat disorderly conduct, where Jason Powell noted, Jim Cornette is 90s cool compared to these four guys. I thought high voltage was outdated as he can get, but Tough Tom and me, Mike, of disorderly conduct ranks right up there. <laughs> 90s cool Jim Cornette. Um, Raph beat Barry Horowitz, which uh, Jason noted that Tony said uh, hello to the people of Florida and Alabama who've been suffering through Hurricane Earl. But mention they Nitro be coming to Pensacola on Monday night. <laughs> yeah, you got that hurricane, but hey, Nitro's coming to town. Oh, by the way, and, for the record, uh, two million three hundred seventy-five thousand households watching the show. <laughs> so, um, well, probably well over four million viewers here. And Jason noted that the announcers marveled at Raph's new physique. He was definitely polished in this era. Yeah, more than he had been previously in World Championship Wrestling, yes. Raven and Ming wound up with Raven never touching Ming. Ming destroyed Shark Boy Horace at Riggs, so Raven told Lodi to tell Saturn to fight him. He called him Shark Boy. <laughs> Shark Boy, Sit Boy, excuse me. 
Um, Saturn tried fighting him until his canyon clocked Saturn and Ming destroyed him. This left Canyon against the weakest Saturn for what turned into a damn good match. Just as Saturn had turned things around, Lodi told Saturn that he had t- to take the flatliner, which he did, and got pinned. And this was a Ravens Rules handicap match that uh, led up to Canyon and Saturn. So, yeah, Saturn is uh, Lodi's flunky at this point in time. Because, uh, whatever stipulation yep. match. And, and Lodi told him on the mic, he said, you're not supposed to win this match. You have to do what I say. And I want to see the flatliner. So Saturn, being a man of integrity, took the flatliner and did the job. And I think this also eventually sends up the loser wears a dress and all that, right? Yeah. Um, Hoovy kept the Cruiserweight title beating Nick Densmore. About that. And then uh, Dean Malenko beat Brian Adams by disqualification when Kurt Henning interfered, and he did a number of Malenko went out in the stretcher. Uh, by the way, the Hoovy Nick Dinsmore match did not air on television. Hmm. Time constraints? I guess. Um, Smiley beat, Norma Smiley beat uh, Riggs. Disco in front of us, right? Beat the Armstrongs, which did air on television. Uh, in the main event, DDP and Conan beat the Giant and Stevie Ray by DQ. The NWO interfered. Goldberg made the save. Wound up with Goldberg giving the Giant the jackhammer, but probably after the show went off the air. Too bad the U.S. mail wasn't faster as Davis saved everyone two hours of their lives by not watching this. And the yeah, Jason said that, that Goldberg, Jack Hammer, Vincent had stared down on a giant as the show went off the air. So no Jack Hammer on the giant on TV. Not an inspiring episode of Thunder, I'd say. Fix. Were any of them? Uh, well, we at least have the Thunder moments. You didn't have a Thunder moment here, so no, it that. doesn't seem like we do, unfortunately. But we have on Nitro, though. Nitro on September 7th, Pensacola. Drusella, 6,379 p.m., 126,265. The brains behind the riding of Nitro at this point appear to be mainly Eric Bischoff, former child actor Jason Hervey, Bischoff's friend, as Hervey is backing up Bischoff's claim to have ideas for TV shows and production years ago, was larger while Bill Shaw hired an elite head WCW. As Shaw was looking for a TV person to run the company at the wrestling people have been proven inept and in running a modern business. Well, um, according to legend, uh, I think Mike Shields and others may have some stories about other ways that Bischoff got the job. And Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash. So your writers are Eric Bischoff, Jason Hervey, Hulk Hogan, and Kevin Nash. How much do you think those booking meetings consist of Hogan and Nash making short jokes about Hervey? <laughs> how much of the Tampa pipeline was involved in that in those meetings too good god uh, what did Heyman tell the you sh- that what if it was the Indian <laughs> the Hulk Hogan that's a big star in India now he actually uh, Hogan paid the fake Hogan to sit in on these meetings <laughs> maybe also well, Na- so Nash is not I guess is not formally booking but here we have this, you know, months and months before he's actually officially booking. And Pensacola ain't that far from Tampa, so it's easy to get the stuff up there. Uh, the show remains amazingly disorganized to the point where the show changes well, frequently. is Pensacola allegedly where he earned the nickname the Tampa Pipeline? Yes. The show changes frequently while it's on the air. Anyway, the show opened with Warriors graffiti in Hogan's locker room, and Scott Norton and Brian Adams supposedly laid out and being taken to the hospital in an ambulance. 
which most of them haven't been driving them to Narita Airport in Japan since they were connected since February 23rd. <laughs> wow, they got they got an escorted uh, trip to the airport <laughs> from my ambulance. Hey, that's an old school territory way of explaining somebody to get uh, on the Japanese tour, Al. You, you heard them. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, Hogan said that the disciple of the giant will lay out the warrior before the end of the show and challenge him to show up. Hogan then said that uh, Bret Hart would be replaced by the giant war games. However, later in the show, J.J. Dillon said it was Bret Hart's name on the contract, so it would be Bret Hart in the war games. Conan beat Bull Payne. Yes, Bull Payne working on every stuff and Nitro. And 249 with Tequila Sunrise. Conan's rap got a big reaction. DDP came out and brought the Wolfpack, joined the Wolfpack, and basically acted like he wouldn't. Sting, Linger, and Nash all came out. Page said he didn't think Sting could trust Nash. Fans reacted to Page as the heel when he was confronting the Wolfpack. Sting shot Page to a tag match later in the show, and the pit Roddy Piper's his partner. Page asked for Nash to be Sting's partner, and when Page cut a promo on Nash, he was booed again. The original plan at this point was for Sting and Nash to be a team in the main event. But as the show went on, the angle was changed where Nash interfered in the finish, but Luger would do the match. Amazing. Piper's interview reminiscent of someone babbling on, but totally out of touch. He said he didn't like me put in that position, but he agreed to team with Paige on the show, but said War Games wasn't about teams. It's every man for himself to get a shot at Goldberg. Wait a minute. It's War Aren't Games you? 98, Chris. That's right, yes. Right. Which still technically has teams. Yes, It's exactly. very confusing. WCW, everybody. Yeah. WCW, everybody, yes. Um, the Wolfpack was so over his baby face at this point in time that putting Paige in this position, you're asking for him to get booed. You're just asking for it. So maybe that was their intent. I don't know. Raph beat Lenny Lane with a meltdown in 227. Raph has an amazingly small waist for someone so huge. That is true. Raph was gifted in that way. Yes, having a small waist, one of his and Lex's. Allocates. Yes. All right, so next we we go back to the locker room. Oh, no. So let's go to the locker room, and Vincent is trying to get Hogan and Bischoff's attention because he found something that was disturbing to him. Let's go to the clip. Wait, hold a second. I've been. T- Get here! Our camera's in the back of the van. Hang upside down! God, what's going on? Who's all Get him down! Get him down! Get him out here! He's hanging upside down! He's out! Get a doctor! She's a still baby! Come on, man! It's a disciple! It's a disciple! Look at Vince! Stay right with us! Warrior! Warrior! Come out and play. <laughs> Mendoza. So they found Warrior, oh, excuse me, Ed Leslie in the locker room hung upside down asleep from the scene like he was Grandpa Monster sleeping. Hey, Dave knows it's outdated, but he doesn't know anyone else who sleeps like that. <laughs> oh, my God. Brad R came out with no music and little fanfare, but mostly booze. He was surrounded by Vincent, Kern Henning, and Stevie Ray. Sting came out, and the NWO guys left. Brett went to high-five Sting, and Sting wouldn't do it. He then gave Brett the bat and turned his back. Brett then hit him and threw down the bat. Fans still didn't cheer him. The whole Brett thing is so fucking convoluted. 
Oh, you mean this. how he turns like 35 oh. times in 1998? It's, it's again, another slam dunk out of anything <laughs> that you could have had at this point in time with Bret Hart, and they totally fuck it up. WCW, everybody. Absolutely. That's one of the all-timers. The, the way they have three million dollars a year. Jesus. There, Neil Pruitt, special interview package, Rick Steiner, which was the best interview Rick Steiner's ever done. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Is Neil Pruitt on camera or speaking in this segment, or is this just a very obvious sign that Dave is talking to Neil Pruitt at this time? Well, as Dave knows that Neil Pruitt produced this package, yes. Okay. Well, still, it's not something he said a lot, so I'm kind of curious. And and uh, Jason Powell noted uh, that it's amazing to see just how much Scott Steiner's appearance has changed in the last few months, which leads to Scott Steiner, who took no bumps and did no moves, destroyed Evan Courageous, new spelling, same green wrestler, and 145 with a Steiner recliner. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Were there only two spellings of Courageous or were there three? Oh, there were multiples. Because there was Courageous spelled the normal way, Courageous spelled the normal way, but with a K instead of a C. The f- famous spelling, right? So there's at least three, Yeah, I think. Yeah, there may have been a fourth one, but yeah. Also, there was gra- a pay-per-view where he and Noble were billed on the graphic as Evan Noble and Jamie Courageous. That'd be sad, everybody. Who into Greta retained the cruiserweight title being Hetta Gaza at 6.49 with the movie driver. Movie looked great. Gaza looked hesitant in his first U.S. match back from reconstructed knee surgery. Actually, Gaza is supposed to be out for another two months. But that said, we found out he's already worked a few matches in Mexico and ordered him in. Still, it was far and away the best match of the show. Oh, my goodness. Do you think Hector tried to use a doctor's note claiming that he was a doctor like he told people he was a doctor for years, even though he was very obviously not a medical doctor? Maybe it was signed by Dr. Wagner. Seriously, that that's a thing everyone forgets. And I'm pretty sure it came from Hector Garza. Hector Garza, like, tried to snow people for years into thinking he had a medical license, if I'm remembering it right. Because wasn't there some whole thing? Well, he, was, the he, was carrying, well, he was carrying around a pharmacy. That's one thing, but didn't it also come up when he had the customs issue that he's like, oh, I can have this, I'm a doctor. Well, yeah, he's like Dr. Death. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, Hector didn't have Baba to keep him from being deported from countries, now. No. Ernest Miller beat Kenny Chaos with a high kick in 307. Miller took another interview and challenged anyone in the company to come out. Fans chanted for Goldberg. Nobody came out. Chaos nearly killed himself trying to stream, springboard Lariat. Boring. This is where the cat is coming into his character here at this point in time. So it takes him a little bit, but he gets it. Stevie Ray beat Gentleman Chris Adams with the slapjack at 353. Stevie's got to drop that new white NWO outfit. It makes him look, look like he's six months pregnant. Unless, of course, he is. In which case, he should be a maternity leave anyway. <laughs> it's always fun when you can tell when a promotion is testing Dave's sanity. <laughs> <laughs> that white outfit was not flattering at all. Oh, Stevie. God bless him. It was not. Oh, man. Perry Saturn beat Scotty Riggs in 428 with the Death Valley Driver. 
Raven told Lodi to tell Saturn to break Riggs' fingers. He refused to do so. So Raven said either he breaks Riggs' fingers or Raven gets to break his fingers. So he let Raven break his fingers. And then Saturn nearly attacked the trainer, Bix, who was. At this point would be Danny Young. Yes. Trying to attend to him, which makes perfect sense. Dave knows if he just got his fingers broken, the first thing he'd do was attack every doctor in sight that wants to help fix him up. <laughs> oh, WCW. Mm. And the hints keep, keep on coming. Chris Jericho beat Jim the Anvil Neinhardt in a TV title defense in 442. Dave can't even begin to explain what happened here. Neinhardt tapped off in the lion tame, and, ref, and the ref didn't see it. Neinhardt was hurting from being stretched, which is why he, the hole looked so bad, and Jericho broke it. Ref then called for a finish. So it fell apart from there, and Jericho went back to the Lion Tamer. Neinhardt didn't want to tap again, and Jericho told the ref to ring the bell. The ref said he didn't tap. Jericho said it was a work. Ring the bell. <laughs> this wasn't a finish booked on crack, but it sure looked like one. <laughs> All right, let's enjoy this, shall we? Let me see if I can get the network working. Though. Okay, yeah, I have to take a second to queue it up because the network was doing its little... Uh thing, but this is one of pe people have probably seen a good bit between uh, the botchamanias of the world and the like, right? Probably, but still. It's Hold a moment. On. Give me a second. Yeah, I completely lost my place, because uh, WWE Network, everybody. Well, the old version. WWE Network, yes, I'm not talking about uh, Comcast's award-winning Peacock service. Yes. Okay, give me one second. All right. So let's double back a little bit here. Find a good timestamp. Come on. Okay. I'm just going to play it from here. I don't want to futz with the thing anymore. So if we get more of this awful match than we'd like, well, too bad. Okay. <laughs> Black and white will attest this evening. Yeah. You know, it's like a storm. Sometimes you go outside and you can't see it in the sky, but you feel it in the air. That's what it's like tonight in the building here. You know the Warriors here. You feel his presence, but you just don't know what he's going to do. Into the uh, neutral corner that time. Uh, Neidhart will send Jericho. Neidhart feels very confident right now. Certainly Neidhart has the ability to win this television belt right now. We have seen some upsets as far as the TV title is concerned on this program that we didn't expect. So you never know what's going to happen. Of course, uh, being the TV champ and being on Nitro, you have that, that short time limit advantage. Up on top, Jericho is caught in midair. Went for the Pescado. Slingshot into a crossbody block. Neidhart caught him in midair and now just draping him around that steel ring post back first. Once again, going right at the power of Neidhart, which is a mistake. And he's paid for it. Almost got a double count out there as they both go back into the ring at the feet of referee Billy Silverman. This spectacular crowd on hand for our third birthday, beginning our fourth year of Monday Nitro. Moving out of the way in a, a program that was born on Labor Day 1995. And still going strong, stronger than ever. Watch out, trying to get him over. Look at Neidhart fight it. That's a big line to tame, too. Trying to get the Lion Tamer over, and he is fighting for all he's worth here. Neidhart's got to roll that right shoulder up. That's what he has to do. That way he won't be able to turn him. Look at the wide base by Jericho here. He's going to turn uh, him, though. Extra added leverage. And Neidhart, look, look at Neidhart, those strong legs just trying to get him over. Neidhart just still trying to fight him. He powered his way out of that. It's what he did. turn him. Not now. Couldn't get him over. He's uh -huh. going to try it again. So I think Neidhart may be out. 
It's like a guy trying to move a wheelbarrow. That pain is just so intense oh, from boy. that move. And Billy Silverman saying, ring the bell. <laughs> the match is over. Even though we've not heard the bell, it is over. Chris, there you go. Chris Jericho gets the win. Nightmare must have given up. Apparently tapped right out. As Jericho gets a win. He's to get his belt and take off. Now oh, there he raised his hand on the outside. Boy, I tell you, he took the big powerful man and forced him over that time. Did uh, one Chris Jericho. And he is your winner here on... Nightheart claims he never uh, gave up. He I never see him out. tap out. I thought it for a moment there he was out cold. Nevertheless, Jericho will retain the World Television Championship. If he didn't tap out, maybe he said, okay, I quit. Maybe he gave it up. Uh, that's one that we'll have to grill uh, Billy Silverman about. What the hell was that? <laughs> you, Nightheart was tapping on camera. I saw it. Yeah. In front of Billy Silverman. Weird. That was everybody. Well, Nightheart may have other issues on his mind, as we'll talk about later on in the sh- in the notes. All right. Um, so next, at, we're just going to continuously go here. After that, it comes Eddie Guerrero walking out. Uh, of course, he's doing his little thing at this time, where he's uh, on the verge of creating the LWO, and uh, he's shooting on shooting on Eric Bischoff. So let's continue this uh, shooting brigade that he is doing on Bischoff. So let's go to the clip as Eddie comes up with no music. Uh, we're about ready to. I thought go to a break. Uncle Eric? There's nothing that I enjoy more than coming out and wrestling here in WCW since you won't let me go wrestle anywhere else. But you see, there's a bit of a problem. See, last week, I hurt my back wrestling Brian Adams. And my doctor, he advised me not to do any wrestling until I have an MRI. You know, in my contract, Uncle Eric, it states that you're responsible for me if I get hurt in the ring. And see, that's when we'd have to deal with lawyers and lawsuits and stuff like that that we really don't want to go into. So since I like working here in WCW so much and since I really admire and respect you Uncle Eric cause you know you are the man with the power and the pencil I'm just gonna do us both a favor and give myself the night off Boy, he's made this personal, hasn't he? We'll be back with our cage match. Stay with us. Okay. Eddie had a shirt on, which had a pencil crossed out on it. He had a pencil in his hand. Why are we doing this? This is so inside. I mean, it seems like they're trying to do a Brian Pillman type angle here, Mm. but it's not Brian Pillman. It's not Kevin Sullivan. 
I mean, Bischoff's not even really doing anything with Eddie. Dave thinks it's a spoof on Scott Hall, the Scott Hall situation because so many wrestlers are actually claiming injuries, some which probably aren't hurt as bad as they claim. Wow. It's just too inside, Al. I mean, no, it's noted that the no, what Jason Powell noted, the fans couldn't care, could have cared less. And you heard in the reaction. Why? Why are you doing this? Yeah, again, they're taking, you know, they're, they're trying to f- do things they've done previously and put them on a new wrestler as opposed to trying to take that wrestler's unique characteristics and personalities and develop something different from him. They're just taking old things and trying to slap it on the new on on a different guy. And Eddie, you know, Eddie is in many ways different from Brian Pillman uh, in in presentation and just can't, you know, is going to do this is uh, it's just horrible. This stuff. God, I, I remember watching it back at the time. I knew it was bad, but seeing it now, it's even worse. Well, my thing I, is, 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 the, is the pencil and the Uncle Eric, that's all shtick that was used in ECW by, the, by guys like Cactus and Pillman. That's an ECW thing. Yes. And also when they did the throwing coffee on himself thing, wasn't that before the coffee throwing story even hit the newsletters? Yes. That's insane. Dave Malenko beat Kurt Henning by DQ in a cage match at 12-17. After a wrap-up, Malenko got a club leaf on and Bischoff ran down and locked the door, allowing Rick Rude and Stevie Ray to run in and destroy Malenko. They're about to slam the door on Malenko's head when Arn Anderson did a run-in clock above Henning and Rune and stared down Stevie Ray. The Arn run-in was easily the biggest pop and the best thing on the show. The scarier part, Dave's afraid that means he'll probably wrestle again. When we understand he's approved to the point he can do things physically and badly wants to wrestle again, the problem is that even though he'd be a bigger star initially now than he ever was in his prime, for reasons that are hard to explain, but true nonetheless, there's something about a guy who got over by being a great worker, reduced to being a limited performer physically that others have to carry. Cage match itself was boring, all the Malenko's comebacks got heat, but Henning didn't build heat with his offense. Arn never comes back as far as a you know active in-ring guy. I mean, he does some things later on, but it's funny we're talking about this a year at you know, after we did the whole retirement thing on last week's show. Yes, although now he's taking occasional bumps in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> now. So is Ted DiBiase. Yeah, that one surprised me more. So, yeah, but, yeah, fans want to see it. Arn and Arn, you know, Arn has the Pensacola thing. That's where he got his first big push, so there's that. So, yeah, it is what it is. All right, Goldberg beats Scott Pusky with a jackhammer in 52 seconds. More matches like that, and the anti-Goldberg backlash will pile up a lot more momentum. What do you think Dave means by that, Fix? Uh, hmm. I don't know. I think, the, I think that it was billed as a world title match. Well, there, yes, well, yeah, it was. It was a world heavyweight title. I think um, that's the issue, that he has not had any real challengers yet. Well, Jason Powell noted that was the first time Goldberg's name had been mentioned all night long in the a quarter hour number 11. Yeah, we never talk about it anymore, but they completely botched like the first half of his title reign. <laughs> of course they did! It's WCW, everybody! <laughs> 98, we talk about ECW 98. WCW 98, which was their biggest year ever business-wise, was well, a total creator it was at that 1998 WCW was the biggest money year for any wrestling promotion in history up to that point. But it was a creative disaster. 
what do we always what have we been saying about wrestling the wrestling business and the money and the success when wrestling is pretty much at its worst in many ways that's when they're doing the best money it's crazy and then we get uh ddp and roddy piper against sting and luger TV and, Pay, uh, and Piper won by DQ, 419, when Nash and Fear posted Piper and Jet and I Page. No reaction at all to Piper coming out. Page got reaction coming through the crowd, but again was booed once the match was on. Crowd didn't boo Piper, but didn't cheer him either. Really didn't react much until the run-in. Sloppy brawl. And Hogan the Giant had our finish here. Main event angle. Hogan the Man of the Warrior faced the Giant in the cage, which they lowered. And that's where we'll pick it up. So let's go to the cage lowering and the steam. Give me steam, as Peter Gabriel once saying. Oh. Well, right after. I don't want to have to dig around too much. So, or should I? Do you want me to queue up a little earlier? What do you think? Well, just keep, we'll do it now. Whatever you want to do. All right, here we go. Perfect. I won't zone off by a few seconds. Be Goldberg within an inch of his life, and when I get my belt back, Warrior. You shall be history. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The NWOites in Hollywood they trust. So come on down, warrior. Come on down and meet your maker. The Giants going to put you in your place. Come on down. around the ring. The ring fills with smoke. And the warrior, the warrior's here. In the cage. In the cage. On a chair. They've been looking for the warrior all night. Look no further. Just turn around, Hogan. (laughs) The giant is flat out. In In a flash, the giant Laid out completely. I guess the warrior just proved himself, didn't he? And look at this now. Nowhere to go. The and the man he's been hiding behind the giant is of no help to Hollywood Hogan. He's caged himself is what he's done. That cage door, as he said, would be wide open. So I'm sure it's unlocked. Bischoff. The key in the chain again. He looks desperate. Hogan has caged himself. It's what he's done. And now you can better believe there's a lot of backtracking. And the warrior, oh, look at this. Oh, is he in shape? Oh, my goodness. Look at the body on that guy. He's ready for war this Sunday. Bishop now locking the door. He has the key at the padlock, and the warrior has been. 
Kevin Luck in the steel cage with the Giants. Six days out of war games. The Giant isn't moving. No, he's been knocked out here. And ladies and gentlemen, the Warrior came into the cage. The Warrior answered the call. The Warrior in one night dominated Nitro again. What will happen in Winston-Salem with two cages? What will happen on Thunder Thursday? With two rings. Where's he at? The Giant is still out. Where did he go? Only the Giant remains. He has vanished. And the door's locked. The door is still padlocked shut with that chain. What acting by Terry Bollea and Eric Bischoff there? Also, They're quite a the little actresses, aren't they? How about them turning down the Hogan sucks chant? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell was that? All right. Dave noted that at least we have to watch the Warrior wrestle hear him talk. If he's just doing last year's Sting gimmick. Which, you know, I never really thought about that. <laughs> You mean Warriors like, basically doing Sting for 1997 in a lot of ways. He hangs out in the rafters at times. He has special effects. He... Yeah. Well, Dave said he got the impression the fans live are groaning at his finish because he knew nobody would touch the Giant. I didn't get that. No. Granted, wrestling is a word, but this stuff is really fake. The ultimate truth for today's wrestling is whatever draws ratings is good, which we have this. Nitro Unopposed did a 5.46 rating. 4.96 first hour, 5.56 second hour, 5.85 third hour, and an 8.4 share. The peak was 6.2 for Malenko and Henning's cage match. And the deal involving Arn. Piper Page, Sting, and Luger did a 6.0. Goldberg and Pusky did a 5.5. The weak spot was Chris Adams and Stevie Ray did a 5.2. Monday Night Football was head-to-head and did a 14.8, which explains why the rating fell from the previous week, even though it was a better show. And Saturday Night did a 2.3 on uh, September the 5th. So. And real quick, uh, from, I believe, the LA Times, which was actually running viewership data as well. Uh, let's see. Let me make sure I'm looking at these right. Hour 1 in 3.69 million homes with 5.34 million viewers. Hour 2 in 4.137 million homes with 6.23 million viewers. Hour 3, 4.357 million homes with 6.68 million viewers. Yeah. Al, what are your thoughts on the Warrior in this WCW run here? Uh, It was so bad. I actually, I, I was surprised the crowd was as positive about that as as they were. I, I recall, I, I, you know, my memory was that it died a horrible death with the live crowds, particularly in the South, uh, just because, again, you know, if Hogan and Piper and, you know, all these guys are seen as WWF guys coming in, Warrior was sort of the ultimate version of that, pun intended. Um, 
but it's like you know I, I get the idea of bringing warrior in makes sense in many ways but they didn't have any idea on what to do with it other than well warrior you know let's bring warrior in next for hogan's foil it just the the execution was horrible in every way, shape, or form. I don't know who had input. I'm gonna guess Warrior had a lot of input on it, which is probably the root of the problem. But God, this is horrible. And I, you know, they it could have been so much bigger. You know, Hogan and the Warrior was such a monster match, not that long. You know, several years earlier. And, Although one and that I the WWF outdrawn by that year's SummerSlam. True. Yeah. But I, it could have been so much more if they focused on the basics, which is that Hogan wants his win back. Instead, they have to add this supernatural horse shit to it. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't need it. Also, it watching that segment and in light of the stuff we talked about a few weeks ago when we did the 91 show... It also looks like Warrior is deathly afraid of exerting himself or taking bumps when he doesn't have to. Yeah. I'll blame you. No. If you can get away with it, why not? Yeah. Now, someone can get away with something, though, this week. Yeah. Jim Neidhart was arrested on August oh, September 7th. Jim Neidhart, 43, was arrested after Nitro Pensacola and charged with writing a bad check. For 174.20 at Publix submarket in 1996. Hey, remember when you could pay with checks in stores? Still do. Still do it here. Oh, you can. Well, I, I never see it anymore, but I, I trust you. I just. I actually, someone in, someone in front of me the other day at Publix paid by check. Oh yeah, they still do. Why are Absolutely. these people not just using their debit cards though? Because they don't want to. Okay. Change is bad. Nineheart was questioned about 4 a.m. when he was in his car, and when the officer ran a computer check, it showed he was wanted in Lutz, Florida, if, near his former home of Tampa, for writing a bad check. He was released the next morning. I said he had stuff on his mind. <laughs> and also, the, well, look. Well, he didn't have it on, on his mind during Nitro, but... The guy had a serious drug addiction problem going back to college at the latest. Yeah. So... It is what it is. Yeah. You've seen that Washington Post article about the perils of drug use in college athletes from, like, the late 70s, where he's featured as a cautionary tale, right? Yeah, it was a sad case. Yeah, he had issues for many, many years. And it was well-known enough, too, that there were, like, hypnotism places and stuff that did weight loss and quitting smoking and stuff that used him as a spokesperson. Yeah. And he was just like local track star Jim Neidhart. Yeah. All right. The careers of two major wrestling stars of the past two decades have either come to a close or are seriously threatened to be coming to a close over the week. As both Jim Duggan and Ultimo Dragon have their careers in jeopardy due to illness and injury, respectively. I saw Jim Duggan, 45, was diagnosed with cancer this past week and will have one of his kidneys removed in operation scheduled for September the 4th. There have been athletes in other sports that performed at the major league level with one kidney, and people who have excelled after recovering from cancer. Although one would think, uh, between Duggan's age, recuperation time, and inherent risk of performing in pro wrestling, that this certainly threatens to finish his career. They also talk of having Duggan on TV this week doing an interview about his legit condition, but it was nixed by the higher ups. Apparently, not wanting anything to overshadow the angles on the show. And in fairness to Bischoff and everyone else, nixed means delayed. He ends up giving the, the promo a few weeks later. Yeah. Well, yeah. After Which, the paper. 
I don't think that's that bad. I don't think it, as long as you're giving him the time, and they gave him plenty of time to talk at a point where he's not being pushed or anything. I I don't think it's yeah. I mean, I mean, it's understandable that you you kind of you kind of have your you're in your you know hype mode for your pay per view, but it isn't like they aren't changing the show during while the show's on the air too. Well, there's that too. Um, and you know one of. One of the side effects of this, I think, ends up being, especially that he comes back and everything, is the kind of weird hardcore fan distaste for Duggan that had been going the past decade or so after he went to WWF and changed his style and everything. That's gone. You don't really hear a bad word about Jim Duggan ever again after this. It seemed like it just kind of shocked some people into coming into their senses. And it's like, what, what are we doing? By all accounts, he's a nice guy. You rarely ever hear a bad word about him. And, you know, ever since, pretty much, he's been almost a universally beloved figure in pro wrestling. Absolutely. And, Al, you've done the research on, on this uh, territory. I mean, he was as big a star in that territory as anybody else ever was. Yeah, he was. Uh, and And... I can understand from a fan standpoint after seeing his stuff in Mid-South and then seeing what he became in WWF, you know, wanting to dislike him. But I think, you know, basically this humanized him to the the wrestling fans. This, you know, uh, and, and well, he was seen know, as this, realize, yeah. he was seen as like a relic, you know, and, 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 and then it's after this is that like Duggan becomes like. One of these guys where it's kind of he's kind of a I wouldn't say untouchable, but you kind of would feel bad for booing him or something like that, you well, know? He beat kidney cancer. I know, so I'm saying, yeah. but I mean, Duggan was one of those guys where people are like, "Oh, there's Duggan. Look at him." You know, I mean, he's still wrestling. Probably, probably in part because people did see him as a cartoon too. Well, and and he didn't change his look. Yeah. Right. And, um. You know, also with him becoming that cartoon, I think something we need to keep in mind, too, is that was probably more Vince than Duggan. Well, it gave him longevity. Yes. If he didn't become that cartoon, cartoon, he wouldn't have been around as long as he was. Oh, no, he wouldn't have. But also, you know, when we did that week where he does that first big WWF angle with Sheik and Volkoff, he's Mid-South Duggan there. He's not WWF Duggan He's Mid-South Duggan until he gets fired. Pretty much, yeah. The, the, The... Tough guy, oh, Duggan is once he comes back. Yeah. Ultimate Dragon, 31, has suffered an infection and several complications come up. His recent elbow surgery was given an opinion this past week from a doctor in Japan that he may not be able to ever return to the ring and that at a minimum, he'll be out of action for another six months. The surgery is believed to be somewhat routine and only require about one month of downtime. So I am reading that as people are kayfabing the full story because they know he is going to sue WCW. Yes, and of course, Ultimate's out of action for the next five years. Yes. Um. Okay, so the way we understand the story is, I believe, bone chips in the elbow, needed to get it cleaned up, WCW referred him to a specific doctor, that doctor accidentally snipped major nerves in his elbow, and... That was basically his career until he was able to take five years to be able to form some kind of grip with the bad arm. Yeah. And even then, 
I think you remember this too. When they first started shooting the angles for the comeback in Torimon, his arm was not all the way where it was going to be yet. Like, I remember the first time they showed him hitting a quebrada in whatever angle that was. And he's very obviously not even trying to grip the rope with the bad arm when he goes up for the springboard. Yeah. So, you know, Finley gets credit too. And, I'm, you know, leg and arm are different. But still, Ultimo deserves as much credit as Finley does for coming back the way he did. And it eventually got to the point where... Unless you were looking really hard, you would have no idea that he had such a compromised arm. No. Now, he was never the same. He was not the wrestler he was when he had retired. But he's been able to perform at a more than competent level for almost 20 years again now. Yeah. You know, and now, fin Finley's just a freak. Finley couldn't feel his damn leg below the knee and came back as good as he'd ever been in his career at 47 or whatever it was. Uh, he's Finley. Yeah. <laughs> so. But Ultimo does sue them. He sues them locally in Fulton County, actually. But I'm not sure what the full disposition of that was, but uh, not good. Not good. But, you know, at least, at least he was able to get something back. Yeah. Scott Steiner has five compressed discs in his back, and there's a lot of questions as to how full of recovery he'll be able to make. It was clear from TV he's nowhere close to being ready to work a singles match, so expect his match with Rick to be kept short. I'm guessing this is the beginning of what would also cause the drop foot and other, like, spinal issues. He got too damn big. That's the problem. And I don't know if that's all of it, but I'm sure it didn't it help. helped. No. It helped. <laughs> all right, well, hey. ECW was in uh, Mid-South Territory, so was WCW. But also a little Memphis mixed in, too. They were in Tupelo on September 4th, Drew 72-43, 200 side of a sellout, 124-235 gate. Jackson, Mississippi, Culkin Territory, Drew 8,707, paying 194-115. In Biloxi on September 6th, Drew 8709, paying 167-545. But I was wondering what exactly these figures mean. It means the total profit margin on these shows, taking into account expenses for the week, was in the $370,000 range. Dave knows we sometimes get reaction people both in and out of the industry, thinking WCW and WWS Big Gates are a result of overspending on advertising and thinking the grosses for WCW are a result of spending so much on advertising that the shows don't make money, when in fact the shows are tremendously profitable on their own and on shows that gross a total of six, six, $612,160 for the week, and total advertising was 55000 <laughs> Oh, gee, I wonder who gave him all those numbers, by the way. Merchandise for the week was 206.419 or 6.65 ahead. What's amazing about this is he shows Drew so well with such poor lineups on paper and even poor lineups delivered. There's one huge difference between WFWCW and that's the attitude of talent itself regarding house shows. Since virtually every named wrestling WF roster works a full schedule of house shows. Undertaker and Austin are given time off, but they make up for it and do promotional work. It's considered a given. Most of things WCW don't want to work house shows, which is why this weekend's lineups include the likes of High Voltage, Chris Adams, Brad Armstrong, Barry Darso, etc. And the main events, which were scheduled to be Sting and Scott Hall, wound up as Conan and Sting versus Brian Adams and Scott Norton both nights. We did hear that Jericho and Hoovy tore the house down most nights, and that Conan was doing a lot of DX mannerisms, including, I've got two words for you, 
and everyone screams, suck it. Oh, <laughs> and this regular Nitro stick. God. He just uh, trying to invite a lawsuit on his own, isn't he? Well, that's right, not good. even the only time it happened. Remember how Sting started doing it? Yes. And then I one know. time he did it during a break and did not re- well, he thought he was doing it during a break and he was actually on TV. Yes. Ah, WCW, everybody. Now in Tupelo, according to the torch, Chris Adams pinned Terry Taylor in a rematch of their Mid-South UWF feud in that region in the late 80s. At one point, Mark Ref, Mark Ref, referee Mark Curtis body slammed Taylor, which popped the crowd. <laughs> but Tupelo wouldn't have been a Mid-South town. It would not have been. It was no. a Jerry town. So they're running other towns than Mid-South run, and they do that, that angle in the one town that wasn't a Mid-South town. <laughs> Debbie Chevy, everybody. <laughs> but and, yeah, Jack. Well, also, the person who probably made that call was probably road agent Terry Taylor, who would know that because he worked extensively in both territories. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's pretty impressive houses, Al, in uh, the old Culkin territory. A well, big difference, Canada, especially, especially when you. Yeah, especially when you compare them to what. Uh, ECW did, you know, one state over. Um, but Biloxi, Biloxi, I guess, was the Mississippi Coast Coliseum still. Yes. So that's that's I that's if that's not a sellout, that is awfully close to a yeah. sellout. And in, in Biloxi, and Jackson would probably still be the fairgrounds, I would think. I don't know. Um, unless they had, they... Uh, unless they went to a had like a newer building. Let me see. Right. Well, and yeah, Tupelo would sure. be whatever venue they had been running for the unsaid. Yeah, censored. Yeah, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, was the no name, no building named. <laughs> Tupelo was the Coliseum. Now, for the, for the house show, I don't, I didn't put full house show results here, but just to give people the gist, uh, September the sixth in Biloxi. Chris Adams over Brad Armstrong, Disco over Barry Darso, Alice Wright over Kenny Chaos, Jericho over Hoovy, DDP over the Disciple, and Sting and Conan over Scott Norton and Brian Adams. Yeah. Here's what a huge problem they have that they really needed to solve, though, was even when there's no shows and stuff, they have plenty of main event baby faces on the house shows. It's the heels. Yes. It's the heels, absolutely. Because the NWO. NWO doesn't want to work. That's right. Yeah, you can't, you can't right. get Hall and Ash to work house shows just by telling them they can use the Fuji's as entrance music anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah. Robbie Rage of High Voltage suffered a torn bicep in Jackson, spitting on to go surgery, so he'll be out for at least a month. Paul missed the shows due to neck and hand injuries from the weight falling on him, which almost nobody believes. But Dave's been told in good authority this one's legit. Paul was actually... May have been ready to wrestle in that September 7th Nitro, but the feeling was since he wasn't built on the pay-per-view, they gave him another week off. They also talking about might be added to the pay-per-view, but it doesn't look that way. Although a press time that's official, that's been announced as far as an undercard. Line list here last week, and that's gone around the official ever since. There's only tentative plan as a press time last week. We don't know anything different other than Conan or Jericho were ever told they were wrestling each other. And then Hoobie's on the impression he's defending the title against Silver King. Which that should be a great match there, given time. Spoiler, they won't be. And speaking of Hoobie, he also missed Nitro. And suspicion was it was due to avoid the drug testing. His official story was he was dealing with visa problems. Hoobie and his friends are also upset that his finisher is being taken away from him so Vampiro can be the exclusive user of the Hoobie driver. And that doesn't happen because Vampiro 
doesn't appear again until months and months later. Well, Vampiro officially signed his contract this week, according to Dave. <laughs> and then he spends like what eight months just sitting at home. So fucking weird. Yes. Benoit was at Nitro and was very unhappy since he was flying in for the show and then told he wasn't going to be part of the show. He's about four weeks from being ready to wrestle again. When he has to sign, the odds are that the Horseman doesn't, deal doesn't flop. He's going to sign because of the guaranteed money. And he does. So we all know how that close is. to two years left on his deal, I'm guessing, when everything went down. Yeah, we all know how all that ends up. Yes, which, by the way, I don't remember if we talked about this on the show before. I feel like if we did, it might have been during like a uh, a halftime or something. When we did that show about the weekend, everything went down in January 2000. The big thing you and I couldn't get over was, wait a second. Why do they think Kevin Sullivan is going to screw them? And it, that that was the whole thing. Like, And then also, why are they not willing to accept these compromises where the booker's actually Terry Taylor or whatever? And it just didn't seem to make sense. Like, we weren't sure if they were acting entirely in good faith. After the Benoit Dark Side of the Ring last year, though, I think it makes a lot more sense that, you know, it turned out that Benoit and his friends and their wives had all been dealing with Kevin's drug-addled abuse of Nancy, and as a result of that, probably weren't going to be remotely trusting of him. No. But anyway... There were reports the entire Mexican crew was going to sign through your contracts at Nitro this week, but it didn't happen. Well, this expected to happen next month or so. No word on the status of La Parca. Hmm. When the Cardinals featured Mark McGuire, the hottest acting sports were playing the Braves on TBS last week. It drew the Braves' highest rating this season, which was a 2.6. Compare that with Average Thunder, or even some of the WCW Saturday Night ratings. Yeah. And, and Nitro was on Labor Day, which was the day that Mark McGuire hit his 61st home run. So, yeah, that's during all that stuff. Yeah, and all th- in fairness, though, it's a Mark McGuire game. It's a Cardinals game in September 1998. Of course it's going to draw a big rating. Yeah, but Dave's saying it's compared to WCW's yeah. ratings. Yeah, I think the point is that that big rating was uh, you know, less oh, than okay, Thunder yeah, and yeah, yeah. equivalent. And I was, for some reason, I was reading it the other way. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, Thunder will start there on TNT Europe in England on October 3rd, every Saturday night, or on a two-day delay from his U.S. broadcast. Nitro airs on Fridays in England. Debbie Stemmerman had dealt with Sky Box Office during their preview shows in England, but it fell through since it would be a Turner company doing business with a Rupert Murdoch company, and the bigwigs had to nix the negotiations over that problem. <laughs> all, all this over two rich assholes who got into an argument over a yacht race once. And then, well, then you have Vince, and his issues with both these guys, too. So it's just hilarious. And also, who's Vince starting to do business with in September 1998? Well, excuse me. No, it was a year earlier. Scott Ock's office. Yeah. The production company that Jason Hervey's mother is an integral part of is developing a movie for Sting. Oh, Jesus. Why is it that wrestlers can't even act within the contents of pro wrestling? Sting, Scott Steiner, are getting acting gigs. Well, some of the tremendous actors in wrestling don't. <laughs> I take it this is when Scott Steiner on Charmed is shot? Yes. Okay. Well, just look at it. I mean... He's a genetic freak! Yes. They were talking about bringing Steve Richards back. The one pushing for it was Terry Taylor. 
But since he's been demoted, that could hurt his chances. What about Kamona, Dave? <laughs> it did hurt his chances. With Taylor and Sullivan losing some of their influence, the main push will probably die down, as they always thought more highly of him than others. That's true. Uh, the Torch said there's talk of the four horsemen consisting, consisting of Ric Flair, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, and a fourth member. Perhaps Eddie Guerrero, who would bond with Flair over his beef Flair at Bischoff. Well, that has some logic. Or Barry Windham, simply because he was part of the best horseman foursome. A rumor spread widely by Mark Madden on the WCW 900 line. Hey, what about Terry Taylor? He wore tile shows this week. With his booking duties reduced, he has time. Well, <laughs> I guess we see which newsletter he was talking to all the time. <laughs> now that Dave has been explicit that he had, he was not talking to Terry Taylor in this era. <laughs> that is so obvious right there. Good God. Also, hey, Chris Cruz should become the new lead announcer on Nitro. <laughs> God, these newsletters. Oh my god. Also, though the Eddie thing makes a certain kind of storyline sense, Mongo's there. He's never been out of the horseman. It's no. very obviously going to be Flair, Malenko, Benoit, and Mongo managed by Arn. Yes. I, I, why are you even running this? Because Mongo's not good. We don't like Mongo. He's not a good wrestler. That's why. We gotta have a good wrestler in there. Like Terry Taylor. Yes. All right, this is yes, the weight is not going to be carried by Ric Flair, Dean Malenko, and Chris Benoit. Yes. Well, let's talk about something interesting to uh, two of the members of this call. Dave never considered this, but the fact that Bill Goldberg is Jewish has become a tremendous PR coup for WCW. There are many important media power brokers that are Jewish, and for that reason, the idea of a Jewish runaway champion is one they're willing to do stories on. Goldberg has been getting several stories a week around the country and major newspapers with more to come. And his past week was even in New Yorker with a story on a rabbi and his daughter watching wrestling every Monday night to see him. Miami Harrell just did a story on his parents, Jed and Ethel, which the torch has the thing on the New Yorker story. Said Rabbi Irwin Kula was the centerpiece of the article, and he talked about how he and his six-year-old daughter watched Goldberg every Monday night on Nitro. Kula argued that Goldberg, by beating Hulk Hogan, unwillingly opened a new chapter in Jewish-American history. He said everybody I talked to knows Goldberg, professionals, executives, you name it. They all watch. Kula said before Goldberg came around, Jews only wrestled with their identity. They wrestled with God. What this says is, look at us. We're not over-verbalized. We're not weak or wimpy. We're the heavyweight champion. This is also unstabilizing. It's scary because we know what it means to be Jewish when we're the victim, when everybody hates us. But what does it mean to be Jewish when everybody loves you? What does it mean to be Jewish when you're the heavyweight champion? Also, in the article, Goldberg's father, Jed Goldberg, a Harvard-educated doctor and classic musician says, Billy never wanted to be a doctor anyway. All right. So, but if you guys are Jewish, so what are your, what are your thoughts on this? And uh, Al, I'll go to you first. Uh, Goldberg and his, you know, his, his, his um, image to the Jewish community this time. And it's interesting because it's not like that was something that was pushed on television, obviously no. the name is is you know the name is clearly a giveaway. He's William uh, but, you know, Goldberg. Been, yes, yeah, there had been, there had been Jewish wrestlers before, but this one it just sort of hit differently. I, I think it's it just because of the fact you know because how how high he rose and how 
physically imposing he looks, it it really struck a chord with a lot of people. You know, there's a phrase that uh, has made the rounds the last few years, uh, you know, representation matters. And it, it's something I will admit that for a long time I didn't quite get, but in recent years I've, I've come to understand what it means. And, and yes, uh, for a Jewish person watching a, you know, a, a Jewish athlete stand above everyone else, it means something. And, and it, uh, particularly with younger viewers, it can resonate with them and make them believe that whatever they want to be in life, they can be. And, and, and it's something that, you know, a lot of people don't understand if you're not part of a minority, but it, it really rings, you know, rings true with a lot of people in, in ways that, that, a lot of people don't understand. And uh, at this point I was, you know, already in wrestling and was in my mid twenties. So it didn't hit the same with me, but there's probably a lot of people that thought they might never be able to pursue athletics just because of the stereotype. And, and perhaps to see Goldberg doing this, at least, you know, encourage them to give it a try. And there's probably some people that ended up, you know, being successful at it that might not have because of this. Vix, I mean, uh, why do you think WCW didn't try to push that that part of the story further on TV? Because they're scared that they wouldn't get backlash from people that didn't want to hear about that? I think technically the answer is because WCW was an intensely and institutionally racist company, but yes. Well, I mean, that, that of course, that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's something that sports has grappled with for years. You know, when you have a major Jewish athlete, um, Hank Greenberg was like the, you know, the first major Jewish American sports star in a major sport. I'm not got boxing, but I mean, he was a huge star for the, the Toro Tigers in, in the 30s and 40s, and he was proudly Jewish, you know, I mean, he would not shorten his name, you know, and that was a big deal. And I mean, you were, there were other Jewish, you know, athletes that's come along the way in many years later, but you know, to have somebody, and we had, and God knows we've had Jewish wrestlers over the years, but to have someone with a name with that in prominent type of name, Goldberg, you know, being the number one wrestler in the world, basically at this point in time, that'd be huge. Like I was saying, it had to be huge for a, a, a younger generation of, of Jewish kids to see somebody like this, that this is someone we can look up to. You know? That's very important. And it's not that WCW didn't push that further. Yeah. It really does. Think about the era we're into. Bleh, two, as in also. Um, we're only a few years removed from it being such a big deal that Rugrats had the Passover and Hanukkah specials. Yeah. You know? You know, just to go to what Al said, too. Like, there's really... Like, you know, you have... You know, Seinfeld just ended. You have Jewish characters on major TV shows. You have the Gellers on Friends. You have, you know, whoever. But... It's not the same. That it was this wrestling character with this image... Entertainment. It, 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 there's, there's all kinds of, 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 of Jewish characters and stuff. Entertainment. Sports, like I said, is a totally different beast, you know? Yes, and that he's this unstoppable machine of a tough guy and everything. Like, I don't know how much you necessarily lean into it, but WCW definitely could have done more. 
Yeah, absolutely. Especially with it running in the north, running in northeastern towns. You know, good lord. And uh, for the record, to the article, which ends up not being just about Goldberg, runs in the December first issue of Spin, which we haven't mentioned that yet. Spin magazine's working on a Goldberg piece. Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly are working on pro wrestling pieces as well. Whoops! Yes, I did. I forgot we hadn't read that at this point. Yes. But it, a lot of it's about oh it's a, it's mainly about it's about Goldberg and Austin as I'm skimming it through it now and about well most the, of uh, them were yeah at this point in time yeah oh and for the record they think that Val Venus's uh, self-ascribed nickname is the Big Ball Bowski well not surprprised by that no uh, uh, I uh, the torch has uh, this about Goldberg those who have been around Goldberg behind the scenes and are familiar with his practice and improving his interviews say. He's not a surefire great interview just waiting to break out. As articulate as Goldberg is, he isn't as outspoken or talkative as some of the more natural interviewers in this business. In, in, instead, his interviews may go more the route of Bret Hart than Steve Austin. The key to find Goldberg's niche interview style in a, is in a way that is consistent with the image the fans have of him. What? That's the thing, Al. I mean, if you got a guy that's doing promos, wouldn't you want him to be the image of the of the what the fans think of him? That's what you want, but if he's not good at that type of promo, that's the issue. Uh, you can't force someone to do, you know, to uh, change their interview style. And I always thought he came off better when he was, you know, not braggadocious, uh, you know, or the or, or when he wasn't putting wrestling promos. Right. Right. Uh, but the fans, especially the way Goldberg is portrayed, again, we said he's this unstoppable you know, monster king of the hill that doesn't lend itself well to a humble voice, at least in the eyes of pro wrestling fans. So that's sort of the the trick was they had to find the, the balance. Yeah, yeah, because even back then, like if you put him in a media setting or whatever, he was an excellent public speaker. He just yeah. wasn't going to be a good, quote-unquote, pro-wrestling promo. But, you know, when they let him just be himself as, you know, Dad Goldberg in WWE in the last several years, he's been a very effective promo. Absolutely. But yeah. I don't think he could have cut those promos in 1998, even if he wanted to. It wouldn't he was, fit. I like I liked, I liked some of the promos he cut later on in WCW. I mean, he started showing more personality. In this era, no. I mean, he did show more personality as time went on. Oh, absolutely, yes. The movie on Bret Hart and Survivor Series main event from last year called Wrestling with Shadows is almost completed. The movie we're on TV in the United States around December, and we released the video much sooner. When the movie's completed, which should be within days, we'll have a rundown on it. They sent a copy of the movie before the final edits were completed, and we will say it's the most honest movie about wrestling industry has ever done. Uh, Yes, they did have a much bigger look on that, and we covered that on... The show we did covering that week. So, yeah, Wrestling Shadows is quite the film. Absolutely. Yes. I just found an interesting note in that spin article. Hold on. Let me go back to the browser where I was reading it. It was about... Okay. It says that stemming from Bischoff's leadership efforts, it says revenues for WCW have grown tenfold since 1994, and the cost of a spot on Nitro has risen 70% in two years, and that together both WCW and WWF attracted $55.3 in advertising last year. 
That's good. And an ad exec says, it's just a case of the ratings getting high enough that people can rationalize what they're buying. Yeah. Uh, the guys who purchase commercial time for their clients are where the... And this is the spin writer saying this. Uh, are where the 10 million people watch wrestling each week, but most haven't watched the shows... Okay, I have to go down another page because that was all pictures. Wait, no, even further. Uh, come on. Oh, there we go. Themselves to see why, and most don't know there's a difference between the two leading products. They don't know about Steve Austin. So. Yeah. Even then, though, it's also a talking point that the boom is upping advertising rates and the like. Yeah. All right, Brad also has a role in the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids TV show that's coming up. Oh, that was memorable. Oh my god, I just found the best Dave Meltzer quote ever. And then we'll just get away from this. I hope so. People generally know that Vince is an asshole. That's why he plays one on TV. <laughs> yeah, true to life. I say your best gimmicks are when you're playing yourself. So there you go. Yeah. I, from the, the Torch in the Get Over Yourself department, the following comes from Bret Hart's Wrestling Column in the September 6th Calgary Sun. I'm headed to the Vancouver Molson Indy this weekend. I hope the guy who announces me this time at least gets my name right. At Toronto Molson Indy, I was introduced as Brett the Hitman Hit. You can't imagine how many fans, both racing and wrestling, told me how sorry they were that he'd done that. Not only because it was disrespectful to me, but also brought down the hype of the star of the race. <laughs> why, is that, why is that a get over yourself? I guess it's because he said that it brought down the the race that this guy mentioned. Said his, yes. Uh, it's Brett. It's Brett. So, also, i got other news stories here. For, and Jackson, Mississippi, the Clarion Ledger. Me and Al know that newspaper real well. They were in a series of stories leading up to the Weekend House show. There was a story on DDP. He made him wrestle with the show, but still couldn't he really hated Savage and wanted to hurt him when they wrestled. One thing Dave wanted to note about DP, while he's not a great worker and it's almost a joke how pushed he's been due to his connections, the fact he, that he has not only been smart but has worked very hard to make himself a celebrity in this field by doing the interviews that others blow off and doing the charity appearances while others get drunk in their hotel rooms. He's had the opportunity for Miss Bush to become one, but he's also not dropped the ball when it comes to working with that push. But as you can see by the ratings, even with his push and his work, he's not someone that people tune in specifically to see. In this industry, making yourself a celebrity to the media, which filters to the mainstream, ends up being a lot more important than being a good technical worker or even the immediate fan reaction to you over the short haul. And those stories saying WCW event was quickest sell they've had with the accession of Carl Brooks when he came to town and noted how different it is today than 12 years ago when Hulk Hogan came to town and the local promoter lost $14,000, which Dave sure made Hogan thrilled. He noted wrestling was strong in the city in the mid-80s, mid-south, and then it died when WCW took over, and they didn't think it would ever come back. Although stores were WCW-oriented, there was a fan who said he didn't attend the show because he couldn't get good seats. For WCW, it ain't worth going to if you can't sit up close. But if it was WWF, I probably would go. All their matches are entertaining. And Torch had more on that uh, thing. It, it, the, the quotes from the director of the fairgrounds, which I guess is where they ran out. Yeah. Uh, other than Garth Brooks' concert, it's probably the quickest sell we've ever had. I had no idea it would sell like this. You see arenas on TV with huge crowds. Most of those are New York, Los Angeles. Market's ten times our size. But I can promise you this. It won't be the last wrestling event we're going to have. I think they'll come back in December. My saying is you run a good doll till it tires. And this looks like a good one. One 15 year old wrestling fan was quoting the article saying, it's a soap opera. Men wonder why women watch soap operas, and women wonder why men watch wrestling. 
The truth is they're watching both the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so that was at the fairgrounds. And I think on the on the fairgrounds complex, there might be more than one venue capable of holding a wrestling show and and that at times perhaps McGurk or Culkin ran the smaller building. But the fairgrounds is literally a block away from the Mississippi uh, Department of Archives and History, where I've been a few times doing research. Yeah, Al is, uh, he's, he's beat all those bushes in that area for research, basically. But Bix, what do you think about the DDP thing that Dave's saying here? I mean, one thing we can always say about Dimeo's page, he is extremely smart at how to play the game. Yes. You know? He's kind of like... He's what the Miz is. The he Miz is, is a the new Miz, person. Of he's the Miz, but more orga- much more organically over. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But still, but he's you know. over, and he works hard, and he's real. I really don't think he's overpushed at this time. I think I think there's that resentment that comes up because of his his, his connection with Bischoff. That's the main thing in all this. Yeah, you know. That's the main thing. All right, and we have this. Frank DeFore did a commentary on September 2nd about pro wrestling on National Public Radio. He said it amuses him how people can be bothered by athletes doing pro wrestling gigs. He called the Malone Rodman match a harmless gig and said how TV critics went crazy when Jay Leno did a charity appearance because critics claimed it was beneath his dignity. And he said people claiming Tyson and disgraced boxing by doing wrestling had the most nerve of all since Tyson had long disgraced boxing by boxing. He called the Wrestling Observer a publication as is authoritative about wrestling as the New England Journal of Medicine is about disease. He basically said that was revived by Bischoff has become a cult sensation on college campuses and WF has roared back, taking the low road, featured Steve Austin, who appeals to everyone's worst instincts. Although he meant that somewhat as a compliment. New England Journal of Medicine, eh? <laughs> so I guess it's not the New York Times of professional wrestling anymore. It's the... <laughs> New England Journal of Medicine of Professional Wrestling. Absolutely. Well, Does that make Torch friend. the Lancet of Professional Wrestling? The Fred DeFore was a hell of a writer, so there. Yes, and his, those NPR commentaries were always good. And, you know, always when stuff like this came up, he always defended pro wrestling. Oh, yeah. Always. Well, he needed to deal. You know, like, like, everyone knows what it is. It's fun. Just, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, like what What are people getting worked up about? And you know, times have changed now, at least, thankfully. Yeah, even when they had him, you know, when they had him on Nightline after the WWF regulatory wrestling is not on the level stuff. You know, he played the same role there. You know, he's well, always, you know, he's always talked up and defended Dave and all that. Yeah. Oh, good for Frank. Well, let's, let's close out with a tremendous line. <laughs> From the New York Daily News, the Torch noted that in the article they wrote about Nitro, the reporter described the atmosphere backstage in Nitro as being reminiscent of a gay disco as viewed with the age of hallucinogen- hallucinogens. <laughs> Okay, I need to give you the full context of this. I pulled this up on newspapers.com. This is a Goldberg profile in the sports section. This is not a, this is not about Nitro. Goldberg played four years of professional football. He has also partied with Jimmy Buffett, raced sailboats in Key West, and piloted the Goodyear blimp. 
His favorite writer is Hunter S. Thompson. But nothing on Goldberg's resume suggests a fate quite so preposterous as the pageant now underway at the Civic Center. Backstage is the badass burlesque. The beat is relentless. The air stale with cigarette smoke, which cigarette is somehow misspelled. Uh, there are gumdrop girls made of silicon and spandex and musclemen in makeup with sunlamped hands. This could be a gay disco, as viewed with the aid of hallucinogens. But it's not. Rather, this very epicenter of American popular culture, this is World Championship Wrestling. Yes. It's rare, Mr. Gay Disco. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that's the perfect way to close the show. What a description of Nitro. <laughs> All right. That's it for us this week, Al. It's plug time for you, my friend. I know you got some things to uh, the plug. Plug time for me. I I love plug time. Uh, oh, you can yes. find me on you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. You can also check out my blog, which is chartingtheterritories.com, which is a database look at uh, wrestling in the territorial era, featuring some wonderful color-coded spreadsheets that I spend way too much time putting together that uh, evaluate wrestlers' roles in the territorial era. We mostly focus on the Leroy McGurk slash Bill Watts territory. You can also hear me each and every month on the Charting the Territories podcast, along with my wonderful co-host, John Boucher. On the most recent episode, I answered the question, hey, I wonder if Roughhouse Fargo ever teamed up with the Iron Sheik. So check that out if you want to find out the answer, which I'll spoil it for you is yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> okay, I yes. have to ask you something. I've never asked John this. How do you ask, does he have room for all this stuff living in Astoria? <laughs> that is one of life's great mysteries. I don't know. Okay. He's got, yeah, he has, uh, he has a ginormous uh, collection of physical, you know, of actual, not just digital, uh, but of actual, you know, professional wrestling memorabilia and whatnot. Yeah, he's got a, I mean, I, you know, I'll say, hey, I wonder if, you know, anyone has this, you know, program from 1972 in this town and day later, he'll say, boom, here it is. God bless him. Yeah, that's all. That's great. I wish I had more room for stuff. And so. If people have ever wondered why he's thanked in basically every episode of Dark Side of the Ring, he's kind of their secret weapon for stuff like that. Yeah, he's very, very resourceful in yes. many ways. And real quick, before we get to the plug for next week, I'm not going to play the clip, but I was trying to find the, the quote I liked from Frank DeFord when he was on that Nightline episode. So this is him talking about True Believer wrestling fans nine years earlier, in 89. I wish I were one of them. Because I think that there would be nothing better in this world than to believe in a world that's all black and white and all heroes and villains. I think it's wonderful. I'm very jealous of them. That's a great outlook to have. It is. Well, next week on Between the Sheets, the way it's looking right now is going to be me and Bix. I'm not decided on asking anybody to be a guest or not because it's a pretty big show. So I think we're just going to do this solo. 1995, as we go back, and the very first Monday Night War, as Raw and Nitro go head-to-head for the very first time. So we'll talk about that and all the stuff going on there. And there is some bad blood on both sides regarding this and regarding all the stuff going on. So we're going to have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. We have the 
news on Big Van Vader and his situation at WCW. We got stuff on Luger, of course, since he's wrestled Hogan. We got all kinds of stuff, including an interesting WCW ECW story. So we'll have that. Uh, Mr. Amasawa defending Triple Crown against Akira Tawe at Budokan. We got that. We got the buildup heating up for the Tokyo Dome show with New Japan UWFI. So we got that to talk about. We got other big shows in uh, the indie scene, including uh, uh, some Bob Barrigale results picks, as always. Always fun Wait, to talk so about Bob. Wait, we're not having O'Connor on? No. Uh, we got news on uh, talent jumps in Mexico. It's that time of the year. Well, that well that year, that, that era, basically. So we'll have that. We got uh, all kinds of indie stuff. We got Catch Jack cutting one of his great TV promos. We got news on the NWA convention to talk about. We got uh, Bill Dundee and Bill Dundee stabbing Wolfie D. <laughs> we'll talk about that. He didn't stab uh, him. He pulled a knife on him. Well, whatever. We got uh, news on Dallas being revitalized. We got uh, the news on the Napolitano. Nap- Why can't I talk tonight? Napolitano magazines. We got Jesse Ventura's verdict being affirmed by the uh, U.S. District Court, Minnesota, and other WF legal news, including uh, news on Jeff Jarrett and his future in the company, as, as well as uh, TV. And Shawn Michaels doing interviews around the horn. So we got that. But and the, probably the biggest section of the entire show. Oh, I, I can't wait to talk about this. Ultimate Fighting Championships in Buffalo featuring the King of the Streets, Marco Huas. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. And yes, that is the Super Fight with Ken Shamrock and Oleg Tartarov. I love this show, so I cannot wait to talk about this show. So next week on Between the Sheets, and that is a big section because Dave Meltzer was there live. Yes, the full rundown of that. So, should be quite the show next week. What was his first live UFC six or was it this? Um, I think it was the one before because he was at the cast for Wyoming show. Yes, that was six. Yeah, with Oleg and Tank in the finals. Yes, I think was Wade at that too. Uh, he doesn't have a, like, any type of live reporter. Cause if I re- okay, because if I remember right, UFC 6 also came in the middle of the whole Dave and Wade go to Mexico and L.A. and that whole swing with Bash at the Beach and the Triple Mania shows and all that. Well, anyway. Yes. I don't know. All right, so that's next week on Between the Sheets. Al, we thank you, as always, for uh, being with us, and we're definitely going to have you back on in the future. So appreciate that, my friend. Bix, thank you as always for the rock of the show. This is Chris says so long from the peach state of Georgia.
Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition, episode number 59. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And basically, we're going to talk about a topic that we touched on here and there on the Between the Sheets shows, but definitely not like this. And this is the perfect type of concept, this Patreon series, to do a show like this, as this is a... Goes through quite a few years here. This this uh in, this subject in particular. Yeah, pretty much. Let me look at the data. Last thing we have here. Yeah, over four years. Just over four <laughs> years. The show is uncom- encompassing. Yes, and probably could have went longer, but actually, yeah, I'm looking been... at it now. It's about four and a half from when it actually yeah, starts. But... Four four year, a little over four years from. No, excuse me. Five, uh, yeah, four. No, I'm doing it wrong. A little over three from what we used as the anniversary to peg it to over four and a half from when the notes start. Yeah, so uh, long drawn out stuff here, but uh, a very interesting subject as we're going to talk about Superstar Billy Graham versus the World Wrestling Federation, which seemed like it's been going on and off for 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> but we're only going to focus on these years in particular. Yes, and the reason we're going with August ni- August as the anniversary to peg you to is that that's when he announces his lawsuit against the World Wrestling Federation. But we'll get to that later because he doesn't exactly file it right away. Yeah, but it starts back further than that. All right, now, week of July 15th, Arsenio Hall Show. July 16th, Hulk Hogan, during his uh, legendary interview with Arsenio Hall, talked about superstar Billy Graham and Bruno San Martino and uh, all the hubbub they've been drumming up about steroid usage. And uh, yeah, he's got some stuff to get off his chest. So let's go to the Hulkster. Have you ever heard of this? I, I saw a guy on a program named Billy Graham, not the Reverend, but mm-hmm. a wrestler. What's up with him? Well, superstar Billy Graham, apparently, um, in the 70s, was one of the top wrestlers, one of the top draws. I was a big fan of his. And he just came out during all these drug trials and admitted steroid use and abuse. And basically, he's saying that these are all the reasons his body's falling apart. But basically, um, Basically. there have been several other wrestlers like Bruno San Martino, who didn't have any problem working with Billy Graham at the time. He's on steroids and putting all the money in his pocket that have completely turned into hypocrites and knocked Hulk Hogan and said Hulk Hogan's never seen the inside of a church, and I doubt if he even says his prayers. And there was, there's been all kind of allegations, but Billy Graham was a top draw during the 70s, and, and he apparently was a heavy-duty steroid abuser. Yeah. Um, before we say goodbye, um, I know you called me, and you wanted to come and and uh, straighten this thing out yes, and, 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 I and tell the you truth. Come out here. Yeah, would you like to say anything else to your hulkamaniacs? Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, steroids, like cocaine and a lot of other hard drugs or class three drugs, if that's what you want to call them, the federal government calls them, is a dead end street. And basically, basically. Um, as far as kids trying to get into athletics, and this is the 90s, the era of the fitness, stay away from those type of drugs because basically they're all kind of side effects and adverse reactions. And 
From what I can tell you, I've got a wife and two kids, and I don't want to miss one second or do anything that's going to take one second away from my life to be with my wife and kids. And as far as these kids go, if you work hard, if you train 20 years like I do and start as soon as you can, I mean, you can get what you want out of your body. It just, it's a little more intense. You've got to be a little more uh, dedicated. And be a leader. Don't be a follower because that's what this whole thing's all about. And that's what we're trying to bring to the, the front of the WWF and Hulk Hogan. We're a bunch of leaders, not a bunch of followers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, um, uh, no, very quickly, and I have to ask you this question. Um, I was so... Okay, we don't need this. This is when Hogan gets flustered when he asks him what should happen to the doctor. But we don't need to go further than that. Um, what an asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's, the, it's Hogan. We, I mean, this is what it was, and... People ate it, you know, ate it all. You know, they they didn't get any blowback from this from most people. So, you know, yeah, it's what it what but it's what caused uh, Graham to go nuclear on Hogan, though. Well, yeah. Um, but how many times do you think he said basically there? <laughs> uh, basically, about six, seven times, maybe. Basically, according to Steve Beverly, in the entire interview, he used it. 22 times. Yeah. His go-to word, I guess. At John Rezzi's wrestling fans convention in New York over this past weekend, Graham was scheduled to donate his wrestling boots and a custom-made tie-dye tuxedo to an auction. He also donated a frame 11 by 14-inch personal autograph photo of Hulk Hogan himself, which he claimed was one of his prized possessions up until recently. Putting up for auction shows my real disdain for Hulk's appearance on the Arsenio Hall show. So in that photo was me... Was me doing a symbolic way of showing that I'm washing my hands of him. When I saw the performance in me, was like a piercing stab in the back. I can't get over that shit. How in the hell did Theodore Densmore think that that was going to, you know, because it's the world wrestling federation, Chris, but shit, fucking, uh, Eugene Densmore would have probably been better attorney in that case. Well, he is a wrestling savant. (laughs) It, well, luckily, they didn't have to worry about this. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Let's keep going. And, poor, and and you could tell that Billy was, you know, crushed by Hogan doing that thing on Arsenio. But what did you expect? I mean, really, what did you fucking expect? Yeah. You expect that to go out there and, you know... Put it all out there for everybody. Yeah, I, I'm, I, Billy's right. Yeah. So, what we have next now is the separate Inside Edition story. Um, for a second, I got confused with the other one, but it is a separate one, which and airs sometime in October. I could not pin this down at all, but thankfully, there's nothing directly surrounding it that we have here anyway. So let's move on to that now. And this in part addresses Graham's upsetness with the Arsenio interview. So we start with this clip here, which is. So I look at how I have a time this a little under two minutes. The undisputed king of the ring is Hulk Hogan. 
hero to thousands of Hulkamaniacs, as his young fans are called, the Hulkster preaches clean living, prayer, and vitamins as the keys to success. I'm the last great American hero since John Wayne died. Forget the baseball players. Forget the football players. Hulkamania is what tears Madison Square Garden in every major arena down around the country. But some of his former colleagues say that the gospel, according to Hulk Hogan, is not quite kosher. The kids are believing that if they take their vitamins and say their prayers, that they're going to grow up to be some super athlete. Well, I got news for you. You can take your vitamins and you can say your prayers, but you're never going to grow up to be 300 pounds with 24-inch arms unless you take steroids. Dave Schultz is a former professional wrestler with the World Wrestling Federation. So is superstar Billy Graham. They both watched the Arsenio Hall show last July when their old wrestling friend Hulk Hogan appeared and made this statement. But I've, tra I've trained 20 years, two hours a day to look like I do. But the things that I am not is I'm not a steroid abuser and I do not use steroids. But Hulk Hogan's former teammates have a very different story to tell about his past abuse of steroids. I myself personally have injected Hulk Hogan with anabolic steroids. I brought him into my home. I let him sleep in the house. I gave him food. And in return, he gave me steroids. He showed me how to use steroids. Any thoughts on what we just watched? Here's the thing about this stuff is no matter how much of this is probably correct and true, a lot of people would see these two guys as as malcontents and they have an agenda and they're bitter. And that's why we, it, it, it needed somebody to be in this that didn't have something that had already happened that they come out and say, this is what's going on. Somebody who would have been perceived as someone who had maybe more credibility. You know, Schultz, you know, God knows, been all over the media forever. It says Stossel. And Graham, you know, Graham is Graham. But if there had been somebody else who they could, could have come out and they could have pointed to them and said, you know, this this person right here, they're not like that. They're, they don't have an axe to grind against the World Wrestling Federation or whatever. I think that's what this whole controversy needed to mm -hmm. to get it to that next to that next level of public consciousness, you know. Yeah, I feel like it hurts Schultz at the time more than it does Graham. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's the same old song and dance, you know, the same old malcontent. So these guys, they're bitter because they can't get they can't get work. But they're also them. not going to say anything until they know they have no chance of getting a job anymore. How it always yeah. works. So that's wrestling. Yes. Well, let's go to the part where Graham and the Schultz two come back up, and that goes through the end of the segment, and then we'll talk about this more. Billy Graham, World Wrestling Federation champion of 1977, is retired now. He suffers from devastating physical problems caused, he believes, by his years of steroid abuse. He wants people to see the price he paid for his moment in the wrestling spotlight. Billy, what is it that you want from all this? What is it that you want the Hulk to do? I want him to be honest. I want him to tell the American public 
because of the overwhelming evidence of testimonies like people like myself and the common knowledge of all wrestlers who know him for years. He's taken steroids from the late 70s through the whole decade of the 80s. You know, I want him to come clean. He owes it to his fans. You see, he owes it to the children of this country. And as you heard, superstar Billy Graham told us he wants to spread the word about the dangers of steroids. Is that He's now Glass? making appearances in schools so kids oh, can see for themselves um, how he has suffered because of his unhealthy pursuit. Nancy of Odell? No, 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 no. That's Nancy Odell's on was Entertainment Tonight. But she was, on, she I think she was on Inside Edition too. I, I before. know what you're talking about. That's though, Nancy. Yeah. That's, I think that's Nancy Glass. Let me look, make okay. sure. Nancy Glass. Yes, Nancy Glass. Wow, that's a blast in the past. But uh, here's the thing, yeah. especially at the end. Graham's right, in large part because someone who we thought was his friend used his name to lie and shit on him. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of everything like he said about Hogan so far, and the later stuff is a little dirtier, but I, if it was honest, and I do believe it was, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Like... Up to this point, though, he really isn't—he really isn't shooting that many daggers, you know. Uh, well, Ho he wasn't until Hogan did Arsenio. And not the Hogan direct. He's not going that far yet. Yeah, no, not really. Schultz point, is. <laughs> Schultz is, but still, but but Graham, Graham just seems sad. Yeah, exactly. You know, and understandably so. To hear this entire show. Support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.